everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 403. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We got a big 2001 week here, we also have a new Patreon show to talk about. Yes, we do. Looking at the uh, war and lawsuits and all that between Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff from uh, 25 years ago, 1998, which started 25 years ago, well... Actually, wait, I guess it's not this month anymore by the time the show comes out, because it's going to be the first by the time everyone hears this. Here's this. But yes, for April was the anniversary of when all that got going, with uh, Flair not appearing at a Thunder in Tallahassee, because he was going to his son's uh, AAU wrestling meet in Detroit, and whether or not he asked for permission, or whether or not he had to ask for permission, and all that mishigas. So... That's the topic, and we go pretty in-depth. Chris finds some things in some newspapers, not necessarily reporting on what was going on, but that are relevant to the timeline of everything that don't appear to have been reported at that time in the newsletters. The show ends with an interesting discovery that neither of us expected as far as... We don't end up with a ton of answers, but something that... uh, I don't think anyone realized was playing out even after Flair came back to WCW. Uh, We've got Flair giving an interview to Bruce Mitchell on a Greensboro radio station. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, just how obvious it was that Flair was coming back once they went in a certain direction on TV, even though some people didn't seem convinced of that. Flair's possible talks with the WWF and much more. Am I forgetting anything noteworthy? No, without giving too much away, no? Not really. Yeah. So, patreon.com slash between the sheets. $5 a month gets you access to that and all of our past deep dive theme shows that we've done in the almost seven years, I believe, of the Patreon. Uh, Almost seven complete. Yeah. Yes. And if you want to sign up for annual billing, you get 16% off. So that's $50.40 a year. And we should also note, since we haven't as much lately, because it's still kind of new, we do have anniversary billing turned on on our Patreon now. So it doesn't matter when in the month you sign up. You sign up, you're char- if you're doing monthly, you get charged again exactly 30 days later. If you sign up for annual, you get charged again a year to the day. So that's how it works. Thankfully, they finally added that a few months ago. So that's patreon.com slash between the sheets. Now... A dollar and up also gets you access to our Discord chat and a thanks on the show during the halftime segment. $25 lets you pick a week for us to do. $50 lets you sit in for a segment on on the show for that week. And 100 lets you sit in for the whole show if you choose. So that's patreon.com slash between the sheets. And we should have a free peer review, hopefully, of the new show at the end of this show. And there you go. So everybody get on that if you... Uh on a part of the Patreon already, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know. It's, let's just say this: that you know, we've been in a lot in 1998 on uh, the Patreon lately with the Mike Tyson stuff, then the Ric Flair stuff. Well, we're not 98 no more in the next two shows. Yes, that's right. So next, the next two editions of our Patreon uh, shows will go to. The early 2000s, which we are this week, and talk about Andrew McManus and his WWA All-Stars 
from the birth of it being I Generation and the tour Australia tours, Vince Russo, heavy Vince Russo involvement, um, then the, the pay reviews, both international and in Las Vegas, and uh, all kinds of other stuff going on. So, so yeah, a two part show because there's so much in the newsletters about it from various uh, key sources to Dave and especially Way Keller. So, uh, yeah, this should be quite the little mini series we have starting uh, next month. Well, this month, the month of May, end of May. So uh, that should pique your interest because, I mean, this is a topic that's not really talked about a whole lot. And um, I'm definitely glad to get it out there and talk about it because, I mean, TNA and WWE were basically, uh, you know, sister promotions in a way. And a lot of similarities there with talent. And that's all other insanity. So uh, definitely want to uh, get on this, folks. This yeah. is going to be fun stuff. 20 years since WA was really well, since on, they closed, on the radar. That's the end. Since they closed well, on the radar, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think people forget how well they were drawing, too. You know, one thing we'll get into on those shows is how the places they didn't draw as well were the places that at the time were still getting fairly regular WWF tours. But... yeah. Yeah, they were drawing really well with those shows, you know? So we'll get to talk about that. We'll talk about uh, Bananas in Pajamas because of their involvement on the first pay-per-view and much more. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. So, yeah. So, totally different uh, direction, which we're always glad to take it to another direction on these shows. So there you go. All right. This week, we discussed in the week that was April 26th through May the 2nd of 2001. And um, it's 2001. There's no ECW. There's no WCW. So this is going to be a, definitely a heavy WWF show, and it's going to take up the first half of the show. But first, we begin with uh, WCWWF. Yes, their um, version of WCW, which is still in the big plans at the time, and. Uh, we, thought, we start off with Dave here talking about Jim Ross has spent the past two weeks with meetings in Atlanta and Los Angeles, putting in the talent in the new WCW organization, which is telling me it's being targeted for a June 13th relaunch date, uh, June 13th relaunch taping for an air date on June 16th. At press time, those dates are tentative because negotiations with TNN hasn't been finalized by Stuart Schneider of WFE. Sources at TNN have confirmed June 16th as the TNN have confirmed June 16th as the current plan startup date with the station bumping Grand Ole Opry to make room for WCW. Yes, they aired the Grand Ole Opry uh, live every Saturday night on TNN, going back to the old days. So, uh, I yeah, that would have been a big deal. But that they still carried it on the new TNN, though. Yeah, it was one of the few holdovers. <laughs> From uh, the old days, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're still, at this time, having the big, you know, plans for TNN, having the TV show on Saturday nights. It's still, a, you know, a thing. I mean, here's the thing, like, I'm trying to remember the specifics, but, how do I put this? Isn't there are also reporting and stuff to suggest that TNN ended up just saying they didn't want WCW. There's varying stories on that. So well, it's very confusing. I mean, you you got some saying that that you got 
other saying it was all Vince making the call and everything. And there's various stories uh, about what really happened with a WCB television show. But anyway, Stu Schneider. Uh, interesting. He's uh, his name's here, <laughs> considering uh, he was key in the death of WCW. <laughs> yes. Well, and he's a former Turner executive. Yeah, but still, Patreon.com/slash Turn the Sheets. So there you go. All right. Now Ross met with uh, Rob Zakowski, Rob Dam, his wife and agent Michael Meltzer, for the first time on April 25th, and as in the Ross report. He described the meetings as very positive. There was a major roadblock dating back to the few shows Zakowski worked for WF while being part of ECW, including refusing to do a job at a television taping. Zakowski and Terry Brock, Sabu, ended their relationship on a bad note with Vincent Mann, but that was also several years ago. Ross had one phone conversation with Meltzer several months back and it appeared that there was no interest in him. The reality that the new WCW product would be short of potential headliners, particularly at first, plus the fact Ross had been wanting to meet with him for some time. Led to the meeting. No decision had been made if a deal were to be made, whether he would be placed in the WF or WCW camp. But just because WCW would be a short at first on headlighters, one would think he'd be placed there. The feeling was that the meeting went well, but no money or contract offer was made by Ross. I mean, you pretty much have to bring him in at this time. And it would have been interesting to see how he would have been brought in if WCW would have been a thing. I'm sure they they would have probably had to like done something where they signed him as a free agent or some shit or whatever. Oh, but it was an interesting did, to mean, see how they played. You mean if they did the originally planned draft storyline? Well, yeah, the originally planned WCW storyline, yes. Not ECW involvement, yes. Right, where Linda orders a draft or it's part of a Vince Linda divorce or whatever it was supposed to be. Yeah. But yeah, they, I mean, they pretty much had to bring him in this time period. So, and he shows up. Yes, and he well, he was going to be part right, of Bischoff's that... WCW too. Yeah, yeah, he was. There was also a meeting with Brad Small, the agent who represents Booker T, Diamond Dallas Page, Johnny Ace, Billy Kidman, and Chris Canyon. Each of the aforementioned people have ter- different issues. Canyon's contract with Time Warner expired last week, so he's basically got a lot to go in. Ross has made it clear that virtually everyone he's negotiated with that the salaries offer will not be a league of what they were used to earning. There's potential to earn more than new more when the new company is successful. Many involved in the meetings with Ross have noted that he's thought, tried to stow them with the idea that they may make it more money and bring some potential negatives, and most feel that they were being dealt with more honestly than typical wrestling negotiations. Booker has a $750,000 deal in more than one year. One source close situation says nearly two years remaining on it. So he's walking away from potentially a lot of money. But it's made it seemingly clear he wants to be part of the new group since the belief is going in the big three would be him, DDP, and Scott Steiner. At this point, WF has all, for real purposes, given up on pursuing Bill Goldberg because they decided against making him an offer anywhere in the ballpark of what he's making not to wrestle. With him having an excess of $6 million left for nearly three years remaining less time on a contract. TDP has about nine months left of his deal, which guarantees him one of the a million dollars, but it's also anxious work for WF. You know, he wouldn't be getting an offer anywhere in that ballpark. How anxious and how much money he's willing to give up is a decision he hasn't made yet. Those close situations believe the odds are better than 50% and neither Page or Steiner would be available for the relaunch, but that both will come in at some point down the line. While no deal a Booker is made, nor has he got a release for Tidewater, 
The belief is he's more likely than not going to be signed by the time the division is relaunched. Kidman also has more than one year remaining on his $300,000 per year deal and has no 90-day cycle. So for him to come in immediately would mean he's passing up a lot of guaranteed money. Most seats on Warner's dragging their feet on offering buyouts, even though the result is they're paying a lot of huge salaries. Besides names listed, also people like Kevin Nash, Chip Jarrett, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, while not operating a company that's bringing any income. Johnny Ace ironically has more options than most, but not probably not as an active wrestler due to his smooth maneuverings as a politician. He has a guaranteed contract for two more years of Time Warner, and as an office employee and not talent, he doesn't have to get a release, so it can likely double dip. Still get his Time Warner paycheck while also being paid for another company. Either way, the for potential offer is the Hulk Hogan Universal deal goes through. More on that later. Rick Flair has expressed an interest in joining your company and spoken with Jim Ross about it, but with two years left guaranteed and a high dollar amount, his situation is unchanged. Okay, it's funny to the What's funny? It's funny the Page thing, because Page is there. I mean, Page is there right at the beginning of everything, but he's not part of the WCW deal. He's doing the Undertaker angle at first, yeah. Which was always weird. I know we talked about this angle before on the show, but it's always weird to me that they brought him in for in that position when he should have been brought in as one of the WCW top guys. Yes. You could have just put you just could have you could have put somebody you already had on the roster in that spot that for some elevation. Yeah. You know? Yes. That never made any sense to me even back then. It just didn't fit. No. Because we know that and then another thing too, and they should have they should have definitely had the quality control on this. Why would he be why would he be stalking Sarah Undertaker when he's married to Kimberly? And everyone knows that he's married to Kimberly. Yes. I mean you look I mean that 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 spot could have been given to uh you know, a few a, a, you know, different people. Albert could have got that spot. So there's somebody like that. Somebody that you know could got some elevation in that regard. Use it to debut someone out of elemental. Give it to Steve Bradley. Like whatever. Yeah, Steve Bradley, uh Ron Waterman. Yeah, I mean give it somebody else besides uh DDP. This it just Always was weird, but actually, you know who probably, you know who probably would have been done the best job as character of everyone they had signed, even if it probably would not have worked more broadly, but could have done the promos and stuff. Doug Basham, when you consider like what his promo style, like as the machine and stuff, was in OVW, like it wouldn't have worked, but it wouldn't have been for lack of trying. Like I think I got I got one for a total re- uh, about a rebooted. Uh, Joey Abs. Hmm. Yeah, he's still there at this point. Yeah. Developmental. Yeah. Total big, rebooted gimmick. Big guy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's... All right. So that's yeah, that's DDP. I mean, it, it, that was a whole issue. All right, uh, Booker T. We'll start with him first. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But the dude I... wanted to work. I mean, real quick, I wanted to give the actual details of DDP's contract too. So DDP is signed through February 1st of 2002, um, and so he has at this point, yeah, about a million left, because it's $1.35 million for the last contract year. So Booker, yeah, Booker is signed through January 30, 31st of 2002, and he... 
uh, he's contracted. Yeah, he's it. So he's making you know however much of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars on the final contract here. So he has. So it's minus about three. So yeah, so three quarters of that. So yeah, I mean it's a lot of money, but he's not quite missing out on as much by taking the. I mean it's still a buyout though. I forget what was it fifty cents on the dollar. Yeah. So he's still getting a nice lump sum of money and also getting paid by WWF. Like, if you're Booker T, you're the champion, and you have less time than most left on the contract, and it's not as ridiculous an amount of money, and you know you're probably going to be used on top, I think it's a no-brainer for Booker T. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's something interesting that I had forgotten, though, because we've had our conversations about how we're pretty sure they're... Outside of, like, certain things with Hogan or whoever. That time Warner contracts, quote-unquote, didn't exist and was just people with no termination cycles. Yeah. Booker did have termination cycles in his contract. Hmm. Which, I mean, that's just an... Like, I, one thing I've wondered is, like, is there any way Time Warner could have offloaded the contracts? Like, I know it's a small sum compared to also having to pay the production and the full headcount of the company and all that. But just how well, much how about them, it, would there be any way that these guys could have asked, could have got a, uh, them to some, uh, like a judge or something to rule a breach of contract because they sold the company and that that's denying them the work. No, but most of these guys want to get paid since they're getting high guarantees that they wouldn't get from WWF. That's the issue. I mean, really. Is that all these, you know, these guys are on relatively high guarantees. WWF is not going to sign them for nearly as high a guarantee. So it becomes a matter of how do you think you're going to be used? And how much time do you have left on your yeah. contract? Like, Goldberg had no reason to take a buyout. Goldberg did the smart thing. And but, he was probably worth but... more being away for two plus years anyway. Yeah, and then when they got him, we saw what they did with him on that run. So well, that too. But yeah, and Scott Steiner. <laughs> well, that's a little different. But and Booker absolutely made the right decision. Goldberg not going. Oh, yes. Absolutely made the right decision. Um, who else do we want? At first, go to? yeah, yeah. Canyon, depending on how you look at it, had either really bad luck or really good luck. He probably would have wanted to go anyway, but. There was no buyout for him to take because his contract's up immediately. Yeah. So he wasn't able to make any, you know, for him, for someone like him, who also didn't have really that high a, high a contract, like his, let me look again, I think it was about 250. Uh, yeah, it was like 240, 250. I mean. I mean, Canyon was good. I mean, he, he was going to go. He's a New York guy anyway. I mean, he... Oh, he, already, actually, he worked there, as, he, he worked, he worked there uh, as a young wrestler, as a, as a television job guy. Yeah. Actually, his contract may have been for more because his 2000 payroll, and this is only through mid-years, 240. So maybe he got a boost that's not properly recorded here, because it says he's supposed to make 240. I don't know. But... You know, Canyon had only one decision to make because his contract contract just expired on the twenty third. Yeah. Um, Kidman. Kidman. So Kidman, it said, has no termination cycles and is making a lot of money. Three hundred thousand a year is what it said. Okay, so his deal is up. 
June 21st, 02. So he's got a little over a year left. And so he's about, oh no, both are the same amount. So, so he was making on the last two years of his contract, 325000 a year. This says, though, that he had termination cycles, though. Well, somebody's wrong. Mm-hmm. It says 12 cycle, 90 days notice. Yeah, somebody's wrong. Yeah. All right, so... But he... Wait. Yeah? He's... I get why he took the buyout, or whatever it was. I mean, I guess... Well, no, he probably got terminated then, right? This is probably wrong in The Observer. He probably got cut. So... I mean, if he was someone that wasn't getting cut, I think if you're making that much, but you're in a position you don't know how well WWF will use you, I think Kidman was better off trying to get booked into Japan or something while getting paid the WCW money. I mean, maybe. Maybe, but I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Tori Wilson was going to when he was going to want to be her. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yes, there is that. And uh, Tori wasn't under contract to WCW at the end, (laughs) though. I know, but I'm saying he's going to want to follow her lead if they both could be there together. Yeah. And then we got one uh, John Laurinaitis mm-hmm. who, who was able to get paid by two companies if he because wanted he was to. office. So wait a second. Is he I'm getting pretty, paid by both companies sure. while he's in the WWF? Yeah, I'm I mean, sure he if is. this is true, yeah. Yeah, he's, he was not talent. He was office. He probably was. So he had some kind of no-cut contract as an employee. Wait, is he under a no-cut contract, or is he getting severance? Because my understanding is everyone was getting... But, well, no, he wouldn't have gotten any real severance, though, because he had been there less than a year. So hold on, what, does it, what exactly does it say about him here? Let's see again. It said, Laurinaitis, ironically, has more options than most, but not as an active wrestler to do some move maneuvers as a politician. He has a guaranteed contract for two more years with Time Warner. And as an office employee, not talent, he doesn't have to get a release, so he can likely double dip. Okay. So, also to me, that indicates that Laurinaitis had an idea the company was going down. <laughs> I'm sure he probably did. Kevin Sullivan knew, so I'm sure Johnny Nation knew. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly he made the right decision, which, of course, in some ways... I mean, for man and womankind was the wrong decision, but <laughs> that's Laurinaitis for you. Um, so who else do we have here? Steiner. That's it. Well, Steiner, yeah, is it, it's talked about as you know, with the Goldberg type of way. But yeah, I mean, Steiner made the right decision in in hindsight, you know, because I mean. Well, his imagine Scott Steiner November thirtieth, anyway. I know, but imagine Scott Steiner in that whole invasion angle, yeah. being being subservient to Steve Austin. That would not have worked. No. Now, if they were going to do that, they could have done that uh, Undertaker stalking angle with Scott Steiner. And that would have been him in as a new He was just looking for a new freak. Yeah, exactly. That would have worked. Yeah. Also, but, the guy, I mean, the guy has, the guy has, by then, like, just a few months left, you tell him he's working a program with The Undertaker, if he gets 50% on what's left of his WCW contract, he's probably coming out ahead. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So that's it at the moment with guys that are currently uh, under contract. Now, regarding 
free agents. No contracts have been offered at this point to any talent, so there's no real barometer of what kind of money would be offered. Um, the most recent WF signees like Terry Guerin, Rhino, Jerry Lynn, and Yoshio Tajiri came in about $100,000 level as far as downside guarantees concerned. Lynn, uh, excuse me, looked at the wrong line, and Matt Heisen came in well into that figure. Those working on the road on the WF would earn more because they are paid on percentage of the house, and WF side houses are usually very good, and they do 18 to 20 house shows per month, plus a lucrative pay-per-view event. The WCW side eventually wants to build to a Wednesday through Saturday night schedule and monthly pay-per-view events, but at the beginning, it'll only be one show on a Wednesday, so at least at first, nobody would like them at more than their downside. That's a great point, though. Wait a second. So yeah, oh yeah, wait a second. I just realized at this point we're, there's no invasion angle. Really? No. No. So yeah, what like if you're if you have any kind of decent contract, why are you why would you come in unless you're just itching to wrestle? And that is what your desire above everything else. That and being in the WF at the time. Right. I mean look. It's not just the money. I'm sure some of these guys were just enjoying having the time off after being on the road for years. Um, like I'm I don't sure think... that. Go ahead. I'm sure that they liked being able to rest, but most wrestlers will tell you they don't like that downtime. No, but I mean, like you know, Jeff Jarrett, for example, treated it just as a paid vacation. His time that he had left. It, it, well, it, it depends on the. It also depends on the person too. Well, Je- Jeff does you know? have a very different temperament from a lot of wrestlers. There is that. And Jeff and Jeff wasn't hurting for money, so you know, Jeff could afford to be out for a while. Yeah. You know, your but younger yeah. wrestlers are def- definitely going to be more eager to want to be out, out there. But yeah, if you have options. You know, but you're going to be put on the WCW brand that at this point is theoretically happening. There's only one show a week. You're probably just getting your downside. How much is your downside? Yeah. I mean, if I was making any real money in WCW and they're offering me 250 or less, I'm not going. You know, taking in the road expenses and stuff. Yeah. But I think part of it too is they just want to they want to be part of the beginning of the whole thing, some of them, and go from there. Yeah. All right. As we move on, Jim Ross also met that day with Rick Cornell, Reno, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Chuck Palumbo, and Sean O'Hare. He later went to the XPW show that evening and seen the show the most interesting: Nathan Jones, John Heinrich, and Josh Wilcox. Who was a member of the XFL's Los Angeles Extreme, who did the elbow drop on the football, scoring the first touchdown in the million dollar game. Ross wrote a report that Wilcox could be used in WCW right away. There's talk of attempting to use him as a cross marketing deal with WCW and XFL, if there is an XFL next season. Uh, come on. Which I had XFL stuff as part of the notes, Bix, but I took it out because it, that was another five or six pages. About half the XFL players have asked to be released in their contracts and negotiate with NFL teams, and many have been signed. But Wilcox, who played last season for New Orleans Saints, feels because his number of years in and being a French player, that the NFL PA minimum salary and salary caps will make it impossible to make an NFL team, and it's committed to staying in the XFL if it's still around. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we would have quite a few uh, XFL things to talk about, but I took it out. Uh, Wilcox might work at DPW show was surprisingly good, and it had to be, since he was doing an angle with Adam Pierce. 
who's a hell of a talker. It should be considered for a worst a Bobby Heenan like manager part time wrestler role, if not as a wrestler, because one of his weaknesses in the current crew is the lack of strong interviewers. Well, how about that? <laughs> Imagine telling 2001 Dave Meltzer what 2023 Adam Pierce would be. <laughs> Man, Pierce is one of the m- more effective characters on WWE television. Yes, although in a very different style of promo than he was cutting on UPW shows in 2001. No, but he's really good in that role. And and yes. he's, uh, I think that's the reason why he's been in that role for so long, because he's really good in that role. Yes. And, I, 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 and I'm not saying to take away, anything <laughs> away from Adam Pierce, though, but like, could you imagine until that happened, especially being told like in this time, that in 2023, Scrap Iron Adam Pierce would be a fairly powerful member of the WWE, like behind the scenes creative and producing team, and also a weekly character on their TV. Yeah, I know. The timetable seems to be putting together a full roster in about two weeks. Now, wrestling crews, road agents, referees, front office announcers, etc., we're probably finalizing a few weeks after that. The plan with Wednesday tapings is taped in smaller sized arenas, four to seven thousand five hundred seats. In the same geographical location as the SmackDown tape as the night before, since they will use the same production crew and production truck. As mentioned last week, there are both advantages and disadvantages. None mysterious over taping on Wednesday, easier on the crew, more time to get out mistakes, as opposed to Saturday, lower cost to fly in talent, more immediacy, easier to sell tickets to the events. And that would have been perfect. Yes, it, it, it would be like the old WCW schedule, where they would tape Nitro and then. Uh, Saturday night. Uh, Saturday night, and WCW Saturday night, and then Thunder. So I've been like, WCW was new. <laughs> uh, um, all the former WCW performers that had nine-day cycles in their contracts are finally informed this past week that the inevitable, that they'll be cycled out, which means most will become free agents in July. Probably the biggest name on that list that WF has some interest in is Oscar Gutierrez, a.k.a. Remistero Jr. There's been no talks for him thus far. The ones that WF doesn't pick up probably become regulars on the indie circuit or hook up one of the numerous startups that are expected. Probably being the man for foreign stars like Dave Penzer has been trying to round up people for European <laughs> tours, as well as some will have shots in Japan. Okay. Wasn't it always said that Ray had a Time Warner, quote unquote, Time Warner contract, and that's why he doesn't sign until Lado 2? That was a uh, narrative at the time. And if we just use Time Warner contract as a substitution for no termination cycles, that's accurate. This is not because Ray was on a zero cycle contract. Yeah. How is this much get being gotten wrong, especially for someone like Ray that Dave has a relationship with? I mean, it, and Ray doesn't work anywhere but Mexico in 2001. 2002, he works, you know, some U.S. stuff. Well, but, here's the reason. Yeah. Because its contract expires on New Year's Eve. Yeah. So. That's so that's why. Yeah, that explains a lot. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, he doesn't work any U.S. Indies till O2, right? Mm-hmm. He works CMLL and Tijuana stuff. I mean, was w, so was WCW blocking him from that? I don't know if I'd say block with the word. I mean, Time Warner, I guess. I mean, again, I don't know if I'd say block as the exact word. I guess he just, he, he, 
they told me he probably couldn't do anything, so he worked in Mexico where it wouldn't be a big deal and That's what until I mean. his contract yeah. ran out. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Um, so the Raw Sport officially listed 24 wrestlers the company had already signed up. Mike Awesome, Hugh Morris, Lance Storm, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Sean Stasiak, Johnny DeBull, Shane Helms, Shannon Moore, Evan Courageous, uh, Chuck Palumbo, Sean O'Hare, Mike Sanders, Mark Jendrak, Edith Skipper, Alan Funk, Lash LaRue, The Wall, Kathy Ashi, Jamie Noble, Young Yang, Stacey Keebler, Reno, Kid Romeo, and Jason Jett, making easy money. All expect to be cycled out of their current contracts, and most, if not all, offer new contracts on the of terms after the new WWE begins and the new ownership can evaluate them. Wait, 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 wait. But if pretty already, much wait, it, it, Dave's last sentence of this paragraph doesn't track with the first sentence, though. If they're already signed, what is he talking about? They took their contracts. Remember? I don't think they actually t- bought their contracts. Yeah. Yes, they did. But then why does he say signed? Because they already signed the deals. Okay. Now, now, now you get the new contracts when their contracts run out. Yes. So. Okay. Um. Any thoughts on this group? I mean, that was kind of what was expected at the time that they would pick up all these guys. Well, they were younger and cheaper, mainly. Yeah. And you know, they were pretty much all all was there for a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of these guys never leave developmental, though. So actually, yeah, in this no. run, how many hit the main roster? Uh, awesome, Demont, right? Yes, he Storm, counts. Chavo, Stasiak, Helms. Mm-hmm. Well, Johnny the Bull, don't forget him. Not in this run, he doesn't. No, he's never That's on right. TV until he's resigned in 03. That's right, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Columbo O'Hare, so that's eight. Uh, I'm looking more. Keebler's nine. Yeah, so n- only only nine of the 24 make the main roster. The rest go to developmental and then eventually are released. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, of these guys, of, so of those 15, I guess, is there anyone that they... Well, actually, not all of them are released. They keep Jindrak. But it, I think it's everyone else's cut, right? Uh, of the ones that are le- were left in developmental, I mean. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, okay, of the 14 that don't eventually hit the main roster, um, I, I don't know if anyone's like a huge miss at that time. I mean, you know... Jason Jitt was bigger than the other quote-unquote cruiserweights, and they probably could have done something with him. And he pretty much just winds down his entering career coming out of this to just focus on making gear. Um, I don't know if there's anyone that was like, can't miss that they fucked up. You know, obviously Kazayashi's a great worker, but they were never going to push him. Uh, There was one that was jumping out to me as kind of interesting. Besides that, who was it? Um, I'm looking over this list again. Who was it that was... Oh, I think... I think there was no reason to go for the wall at this point. I think if he was what he was a year later, where he got into such great shape and was having the best performances of his career or something, 
If he was anything like that version of himself, I think you would have wanted to sign him. But at this point, I don't think there's any reason to really hold on to them. Is there? Uh, you know, we know too. I mean, well, actually, wait a second. When is he cut with all the other WCW guys? Like, is he already in that shape and putting on those performances? Because I mean, all that stuff is really early TNA. So is he already that guy when he gets cut? On the Indies, yeah. Okay, so they probably should have kept him by the time <laughs> by the time he gets cut. They probably should have kept him. Yeah. All right. Um, is believed the main names being considered for announcers, announcers are Scott Hudson, Mike Today, Joey Styles, Mark Madden, and Jerry Lawler. Lawler is at best a very long shot because at this point, Vince Man doesn't want him, and there are obstacles to work through because it is believed he won't come back without his wife, and Vince likely won't budge on that issue. It's feeling he'd be best man for the job, and there's a natural storyline of him going with Shane and hating Vince. The story of his departure has gotten more mainstream publicity. Hmm. All right. We always have to dance around the story. Um. Okay. I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this based on what's public. Um. I mean, look. It's very obvious that she didn't just get fired out of the blue for no reason, with no explanation to Lawler. There is no way that is what happened. It never made yeah. any sense at the time. It hasn't made any sense since. Obviously, we know factually that there are photos that are, or at least a photo that is leaked afterwards of yeah. her in the act with, um, with Mike Maverick. Mike Hard. In a manner of speaking, yes. Um, <laughs> he was Mike Soft. Yes, that's the joke, Chris. Um, Mike Flaccid. If we go with the idea, because it's the thing that makes the most sense because of what's, I mean, based on what's public. That it had something to do with that. I don't think she's fired if that happens now, right? <sighs> I mean, we have precedent. I don't think it. Ha I don't think she gets fired. I don't think she gets fired. I don't think she gets fired. I mean, but it. Pay, I mean, Paige is the example, right? Yeah. I mean, the the thing that would be different is you yeah. have the married and is she cheating on Lawler? Is Lawler aware of or, or is well, Lawler really I mean, aware the, of the it? Thing is, too. Yeah, but the thing is, too, is also it is involving other people that were at the time employees in the company as well. So did the Paige stuff. That's what I'm talking about with Paige. I'm not, oh, okay. I'm not talking about Stacey. Well, I mean, so was Mike Maverick was under contract at the time, too. <sighs> Bix. That's different. <laughs> I mean, you got Xavier Woods, who you know this was part of. It's part of a big act at that time, even at that time. Yeah. Brad Maddox, who was on TV all the time, you know that's different than a dude that's stuck in developmental. But I you still know? don't. I still don't think either of them would have been punished for it if it happened twenty years later. Don't I don't put anything past Vince. Well, that's a different story. But based on things that have happened in recent years, it's a different situation. Again, it's a different situation. Again, it's also a situation where it's not the husband of the of the woman that is in is in the picture or anything. I mean, there's a lot of even though other it sure situations. seems like he might have taken the picture. Oh, 
It appeared to be taken by the same kind of camera that he was using in all those photos of her. But... I know, which would have made it more of a story. Yeah. It would have been all, I mean, social media would have just been tearing it up. You know? Oh, yeah. And see, that, and see that's, that's also kind of a different thing, too, is that, let's, let me, you got to remember, the page stuff was a part of a hack, so to speak. The law, I mean, the Stacy stuff was put on kinglawler.com. Well, the, the, like, nearly nude photos, not the photo of her and Murray Happer. Yeah, but still, I mean, it was all part of the same deal. Oh, no, wait, Murray Happer's out of Schwanz. What's Mike Maverick's real name? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing, Dick? <laughs> Just call him Mike Maverick. You ain't got to call him by the real Mike fucking Maverick, name. Mike Maverick, Mike Har. I don't know. It, oh, but, for some, for so, oh, Mike Howell. How did I forget that? Anyway. But anyway, I mean. Yes, I would like to apologize to Otto Schwanz. It was not your Schwanz that was in the photo. No, it was not. But again, it's, it's, a, totally di- it's a totally different deal, even though it's similar in, in a way. But, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, Lawler. It would have made sense for the angle to do that Lawler gets brought in by Shane, this, that, and the other. But, but and it wouldn't have been a good idea. At the time. It, Based on yeah. just how the heat was and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, of the options, you know, they end up trying Hudson a little. I just... Uh, yeah. I think part of the problem... I mean, granted, he was saddled with Arn, who's not an announcer, and it didn't click. But that, that it was all part of the stench of that whole thing. Well, that's the other thing. Well, you yeah. Know. I mean, I, I don't know if Scott would fit in with those people who would be producing him, though. You know what I mean? Like, I, as good as an announcer as he was, I don't know if he would have been able to excel in that company. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Joey Styles... Might have been the best pick actually at the time. I mean, he was gonna do he was gonna do Bischoff's WCW anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, Heyman's there. I don't. know. I mean, oh, your point being Heyman can produce him so he can fully yeah. do Joey Styles. Yeah. And Hudson had Bruce. Hmm. So I mean, I don't know what happened. Happened. That's all you can say. All right, the company's looking at a lot of resumes and storyline ideas submitted by people applying for writing jobs, which will be filled within the next few weeks. The writing team for WCW will be separate from WWF. The two teams will work together on Mondays and Tuesdays to make sure angles don't conflict, such as both Bruce, for example, building up to cage matches on television on pay-per-view during the same week, or angles being repeated too closely with different characters on both shows. So they need to get these be happening today. Yes, is this one John Muse applied or was that later? Um, this I don't know if Muse was part of that or not. I think this might have been it because it's in this general time frame where he submits this idea, and Dave tells him it's great, but it won't get you hired because it's centered on Jerrica. Yeah, but anyway, it's good they're trying to have some continuity. Yeah, I, I, it depends on. I mean, it also depends on who the writers are as well, far as their backgrounds and how different they are to what a WF writer would have been at the time. So I don't know. 
Let's go to three or four weekly. Scott Steiner posted the following message on his website this past week. To all my freaks out there, all I can say right now is that things are in the works. I'm getting all kinds of email from wrestling fans looking for news. You all should know that the moment I know something, I'm allowed to say publicly, I'll say it here. In the meantime, I'm getting healthy and stronger than ever. The best body in the business for a reason. I work my ass off to keep it that way. In the gym, eating right, and getting ready for a return. Stay tuned. That's fairly sober, surprisingly, for him. Yeah. But it's going to be a minute before yeah. he's back. So there you go. Meanwhile, on the torch. Although it seems strange given that his history from a physique for so many years, a big drawback with Steiner in the eyes of WFE management is his size. He is simply so muscular that he's injury prone and a flashing red light regarding potential accusations of illegal muscle enhancing drug use. Friends continue to encourage Steiner to back off on his muscle mass, but Steiner continues to be stubborn and prioritize being as big as possible over all else. I love that they're saying this in 2001 WWF, where everyone looks like they're doing horse steroids 24-7. <laughs> yeah. And nobody's really saying anything about it, you know? Yeah, I think one of the things, though, is like... I think everyone getting on the bass hat... Getting on the getting back on the gas happened so like gr- happened gradually enough in terms of their size gains and stuff that it wasn't as noticeable at the time as it became after the fact. Where now you look at invasion photo invasion era photos, and it's alarming how big some of those guys are. Oh yeah, Te- I mean test. Well, the guy who was named after a steroid test. And he's not even at his biggest. He gets he's his biggest a few years later. Um, yeah. But yeah, like seriously, if you haven't looked at pictures of some of the guys who are on the roster at this point from this time, go look them up because they all have that like big and cut and really hard look to them that like. You know, you did not get with most wrestlers in the company at other times, but at this point, it's like it feels like it's everyone. Yeah. All right. Uh, staying with the torch, and we got the torch for the rest of this segment. The torch said, "There's a little chance your Lawler will be hired as a WWE color commentator." Meanwhile, Lawler's telling friends he thinks he killed his chances by asking his supporters to email WWE writers and office workers. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't help. Lawler's also telling friends that while he talks to Jim Ross on a regular basis, he has not heard from Vincent Man since being fired. Well, he wasn't fired. Well, he quit. <laughs> well, <laughs> he fired himself, I guess, in Wade's eyes. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, Scott Hudson met with Jim Ross while Ross was in Atlanta. Ross did not offer Hudson a contract, but instead spent the time getting to know Hudson as a person. Hudson is telling friends that he is concerned the idea of accepting a lump sum buyout off from Time Warner instead of waiting to collect his money throughout the remainder of his contract. So I guess the implication there is that Scott was not an employee, which makes sense because his day job was as an employee for uh, – was it state of Georgia at the time or was it uh, the federal court or whatever? Either way, government employee. Yeah, yeah so, government employee. So he's probably an independent contractor. He was never full-time. He was never in the office, and clearly he negotiated a no-cut deal. If this is true – and I mean it's Scott Hudson in the newsletters. I would hope it's true. Yeah. WFE managers considering setting up WCB rings that got as part of the sale and replacing them with more modern, wrestler-friendly WF-style rings. 
There's some resistance to that, at least at first. This overall look of the WCW rings is such a big part of the promotion's identity. If new rings were made, they would be designed like WF rings structurally, but will look different. Wrestler-friendly compared to WCW is an interesting way to put it, because, I mean, these are the newer WWF rings at this point, but they're still stiffer than most rings. Like, even today, a, st- a WWF ring is still stiffer than, you know, your usual indie ring like your High Spots rings. Yeah, what does that say about the what does that say about the WCW rings at that time? So Bret Hart is the only one I know that really didn't like them, and has been vocal about it. And the way I understand it, because then like later on he would be asked his comments on TNA when they had the six sided rings, and he would bury it and would say it's like a gimmick version of that terrible WCW ring. My understanding, because I remember I asked Sean Waltman about this years ago on Twitter when he was talking about rings, is that some wrestlers who had bad knees liked the WWF rings better because the footing was so much better from being so stiff and hard. Even though it was so unforgiving on bumps, some guys liked it better because they felt more comfortable in it with their knees. And there's something to that, too, because there's the whole story of uh, when Kabashi came to ROH, because they had this really bouncy flex beam ring. The Noah office told them, you need to do whatever you can for Kabashi's knees to make sure that ring is less bouncy. So they went, you know, at least for the New York show, they went through the hotel where they were running at in everyone's rooms and started grabbing comforters to tie around the flex beams to stiffen them up. So like they, you get the idea. I mean, it, I'm, I'm curious just how much of a big difference the footing is that you would need something like that. But clearly if they asked for that for Kabaji, it's a big difference. Yeah. And key WF officials have laughed at the recent inner reports claiming that WF is considering abandoning the WCW project. The management has been meeting regularly to discuss WCW plans. I won't use it that's bullshit because I'm sure it's true at this point. <laughs> it is true at this point, yes. Still. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> yeah. Still interesting to read, though. Yeah, I mean, they're gung-ho on this, on, on doing this, you know? As they should. So, and we're still, you know, two months away from Tacoma. So, yep. long way to go. All right, let's go to WF proper now. SmackDown, April 26th, leads off. Take two days earlier in Denver, a lot more of a wrestling-oriented show than has been the case with WF as, late, as of late. However, no main event during sweeps may not be the best policy. The surprise didn't work. Although they had they announced also Triple H versus Kai and Ty, that would have been a worse idea. Yes, that was the match. We start off with... Regal and Angle against Jericho and Benoit. Regal Angle won in Team 53, which must be the longest opening match on WF television in probably close to a year. Great match with Super Heat. It was Duchess of Queensberry Rules, which was never explained. Everyone got their key spots in. Finally, Regal and Angle both double-teamed Jericho with submissions and the ref called for a DQ. Regal didn't explain the rules in a tag match or that double submissions are legal. Maybe they meant Duchess of Guadalajara. <laughs> so they won the match. 
And the reason why they're doing Dutch Queensberry rules for this is because we have the pay-per-view match coming up we'll talk about. Which is not a tag match. It's a singles match. <laughs> Whatever. So, more on that later. Vince told Triple H and Austin that he had a secret team for them to face later on, and they weren't happy. Okay. Matt Hardy beat Eddie Guerrero to win the European title of 7-18. Pretty good match. Saturn and Jeff Hardy fought outside the ring. Finished on leader to Huracarano Eddie off the top rope. And Matt got the pin with a twist of fate. They did the big kiss scene afterwards. Was this the first time? Was this the first time they kissed? I think that was a Raw, wasn't it? I thought it was Raw, too. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Yeah, that was Raw. Yeah, that was was... February 19th. February 19th, Raw. So what is Dave talking about? Um... I guess they just kissed in, in the ring or something. I don't know. Okay. Sure. So wait, so this is... Because I have the window with the network and stuff. This is at the end of Hardy of A, right? Yes. Kind of curious to see what's there now. Uh, oh, we have a re- well, we have a replay. So let's just see that, I guess. A moment ago. Oh, wait, they just they were cutting away from that. So let's go back about a minute then. Everybody's happy in, in Hardyville. Congratulatory Oh, okay, they just did a big kiss. That's it. They were kissing for a, a while there. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did get a little uncomfortable, but yeah. <laughs> well, they were very, very happy together at that time, I guess. Anyway, all right. Um, and Terry Runnels was with uh, Eddie because she's aligned with Perry Saturn. And radicals are kind of a thing at this point, but not exactly. Or at least Eddie and Saturn are. Yeah, Eddie and Saturn are. Yeah. So, all right. Um, Edge Christian with the Regal, which ended up changing the preview to Matt versus Eddie versus Christian for European titles. Since Christian claimed this grandfather was from Luxembourg. <laughs> and to throw Raven a bone, they put him with Rhino for the hardcore title. Kane then beat Edge Christian by DQ in 537. Old school style, mainly working on Kane's left elbow. You know, to a wood. It was elevation for Edge Christian to a point in that they came out of the deal looking strong. There was a backstage scene where Deborah was sent out for coffee by Stephanie. What was she sent out for, Kevin? I didn't oh, make a new drop yet. Oh. Sorry, I forgot about that. Coffee. Um, <laughs> she came back through the coffee all over Austin. It's funny because Michael Cole during the show tried to portray his Austin getting out of control because he got so mad just because his wife asked spelled, accidentally spilled coffee. And they later even showed a replay making it clear she threw it on him. If it was supposed to be an accident, it was terrible acting on Deborah's part. If it wasn't, then they sure made Cole look like a goof. Could have been some of both. <laughs> I guess do we do we need to see this for sure to see uh, to see uh, if this was done on purpose or not, Bix? I guess so. It involves coffee. So what? Where there, am I? The chapter's right Deborah there. Deborah gets there coffee. Okay. Well, she brings coffee. Well, we got we got two clips. We got that, and then the the clip where she brings their coffee. Let's go to that one. So should I do both or the second one? Just do the the second one. Okay. His arm has got to be broken now. Oh, yeah. He ain't that tough. 
you know, I'm so sorry, but they didn't have any, um, the scale or the chicken's clean. Sorry about that. Sorry, mine's good. This is perfect. Thanks. Oh, good. And this is for you. Truck! Get in the truck! Do not leave until I come get ya! Son! You alright? Well, you think that discussion was had in real life? <sighs> That's a very uncomfortable <laughs> segment. <laughs> Knowing what we know, yes. Yeah, let me see this again, though, to see exactly. She definitely threw it on him on purpose. Or she's a, ter- I mean, she, or she's very terrible at trying to act like she's accidentally doing it. Yes. No, she definitely did on purpose. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's, that, that that discussion definitely happened in real life sometime. Also, what an all timer uh, of a weave she has here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> says, well, mine's perfect. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Steve. My coffee's wonderful. <laughs> she was talking about Steve's talking to Steph. <laughs> All right. Um, Rhino beat Tess in a hardcore time match at 455. They did. They used the garbage can and fire extinguisher in front of the crowd before going backstage. Tess did a dreaded death kick into a garbage can into Rhino's face. Show went up in one of the store's locations in the building and smashed Tess twice, went into a garage door, and Rhino got the pin. Big shout out to the match. Took Slam Test through the cardboard. Yes, because remember, Test and Shane McMahon are friends. So there's that. And showing Shane are feuding. After the first two weeks, ratings came after all the network promotion. UPM was clearly desperate about Chains of Love. They're going to do them a favor doing a spoof on the show with Steve Blackman handcuffed to four large women. Okay, we got to watch this. <laughs> we have to watch this. <sighs> All right, what am I looking for? <laughs> I'm not sure if this is on here. They may have cut this. All right, so we got Tess and Ryan over for the Hardcore Championship. All right, so it would be after the match. Okay. It, before X Factor calls out the Dudley Boys, you're, you're dealing with the X Factor. So rewind from there. All right, so wait, this is about just over an hour, so let's go back to... Let's go back a minute or two. It is a two-hour show, right? Yeah, they cut it. They cut it. So even though it's something they shot themselves, I I, I can never understand the rhyme or reason to some of this. Yeah, they they, they cut that out. Okay. Interesting. You think maybe because it was the tie-in to uh, the thing? I'm thinking, yeah. Or potentially, I mean, it could potentially be content, too. Because you, you got because Grandmaster Sex A is in this segment and they're a thing at this time. Mm. Tag team. Because wasn't Scotty too hot? He hurt or something? Didn't he like get fucked up? Maybe. Let's see here. I'm I'm trying to see if another recap at least explains this better. Uh, but uh, okay, this is from what the hell is this blog? kingsrecaps.wordpress.com It's from 2012, so it's before the network. So they're definitely going with an off-air recording. Uh, Back from the break, Steve Blackman yells at Grandmaster Sexay while being handcuffed to four fat ladies. 
Blackman said he agreed to be on Chains of Love, but was promised four sexy women instead of them. Blackman says he can't get a meal in, he can't get in the shower, and says one of them eats in her sleep. Okay. <laughs> Sexay explains he told the producers to provide the hippest P-H-A-T-T-E-S-T girls that they apparently misunderstood. Sexay throws some chocolates in the air, and the ladies scramble for them as Blackman tries to control them. Sexay right. has... What, you found it? I got it. Where yeah. is it? Where'd you get it? Daily Motion. Daily Motion. What did you search for? <laughs> I have my ways and means. Okay. <laughs> All right, this should be about a uh, minute 43 in. Okay, minute 43 in. This is obviously taken from VHS. It's taken from Japan, too. <laughs> oh, the Japanese broadcast? Yeah, but it's in English. Okay. Wait, is that Fox thing? Is Japanese? Okay. It goes Rhino. A minute 43. No counting. Oh, I know. Uh... All right, here we go. It's a love show. I was told to be with four hot, sexy women. Not Humpty Dumpty, Bertha, and Isabel. Who cares? I can't get a meal in, I can't get in the shower, and that one eats in her sleep. Or just what the hell did you tell these people? Hey, man, I told him to send the flies, the hippest, the fattest girl. The what? The fattest, you know, pretty hot and tifty. But as you can see, these girls are definitely fat, Steve. <laughs> Watch it, watch it, watch it. Hey, girls, look. Hey, 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 I'm thinking that might have been cut for content reasons. Yeah. Throwing candy in the air. No way we just running to jump it on. Yeah, I can see why that was cut. Yes, thank you, uh, Japanese WWF fan. Um, Dave says, segment was hilarious with GMS talking in that GMS slang, saying when to get four P-H-A-T, all caps, women to handcuff Steve, but somehow they wound up with four fat women. See, this proves Vince Russo's point. Dave was allowed to call women fat, and that's why they still draw sellout houses. GMS threw chocolate on the ground, and the women all die for it. Then the least attractive one started hitting a black woman. I like David that she was the least attractive one. So does that mean Dave would not call her a stripper-looking woman? (laughs) Except for the first two matches, it's the best thing on the show. (laughs) X-Factor interview. 
just incredibly clean. He ran the Dudleys out of ECW. Eventually, the Dudleys ran out. Dudley's an interview on the stage where he said that Big Daddy Dudley always told him to keep his friends close and his enemies closer. I guess that means Big Daddy Dudley has finally been revealed to be Buddy Rogers. <laughs> they did a six-way, which ended up with Spike doing the acid drop, which on SmackDown seems to be called the Dudley Dong on Credible. Then they did the What's Up on Albert and the 3D on x Undertaker then beat all four members of Right the Censor. When they finally beat him down, Steven Richards won the pin. The other got mad and walked out and just stood there in the aisle while Taker gave Richards the high kick and last ride. Shame him. And then read a poem about how he was going to beat the big show at the pay-per-view. I don't know if we need that, do we, Bix? I don't think that's no. necessary. <laughs> Austin and Triple H supposed to turn out to be Kai and Ty, but Taker and Kane came out at the end of the show pounding on Austin and Triple H. Smackdown drew a 3.7 rating, tying its low for the year. Without an announced main event, the promised surprise bonus didn't whet fans' interest enough going against blockbuster competition like Survivor, drawing a 16.6 rating, and CSI, drawing a 14.4 rating. NBC threw everything it had with kind of disappointing results as friends with Renona Ryder and a promise Girl Kiss only did a 10.9. Will and Grace with Woody Harrelson did a 10.5. And Just Shoot Me with Kathy Lee Gifford did a 10.2. You know how much networks were killed for those ratings he says. <laughs> the tip point two. Yeah, and to be clear, this is the first night of sweeps. Yeah. The girl kiss on friends. Yeah, we got lesbian angles back to back weeks here on Between the Sheets. Yeah. Yes. I barely remember that deal. This is this is season two of Survivor at this point in time. So yeah, Survivor is a. Uh, Pretty hot on the uh, American culture scene. Still going today, amazingly. UPN 9 New York in their weekly post SmackDown Drive news story did an interview with the Road Dog. He mentioned the piece he was getting divorced and blamed himself for his problems. Besides drug issues, he's already publicly acknowledged when WF fired him, they were very concerned about his family situation. So there you go. Backlash. It was 29 for the Allstate Arena in Chicago. How about that, Tommy? Considering we just had Raw as we recorded this from Allstate Chicago. I wonder if CM Punk was backstage at this show, too. I wonder was if CM Punk tribute... was asked to leave this show, too. <laughs> he was mad in the crowd. Uh, was Harley Mann's a tribute to Johnny Valentine? Sadly enough, the name was never mentioned on either a telecast or a pay-per-view, but in a weird way with the long matches and the by-the-book style of booking, much of the show felt like a throwback to 70s throwback to 70s style psychology, but with more modern moves. With a weaker main event going in than most of their favorite events, combined with coming off such a spectacular series of big shows, culminating at WrestleMania, there was bound to be a letdown factor. Judged against the last four favorite events, this wasn't anywhere close. The matches on paper looked to be the best were disappointments for different reasons, but none was really bad, except perhaps the Duchess of Queensbury stuff, which was too reminiscent of the Canadian Rules match last summer with Mike Awesome and Lance Storm on the WCW in Vancouver with Jacques Rougeau as the referee. Well, a lot of people brought up copying a concept that was disastrous when it first was used. It was also the concept Vince McMahon used himself with the rule changes throughout the match, which heel promoters on indie shows have copied to death since. That was successful. Problem was, it was predictable. Sort of a cloud show. And the contradiction between that match occurring over Chris and Wild, which followed, which could only work if people were taking it seriously, was a negative. While the Angle Benoit match got the majority of votes for best match, there was something missing. The match played much better on television than it did live. And that was because of the commentary. Bottom line is it 
is as great as Matt wrestles as both men proved to be, this was too long. And it was too much of a handicap to eliminate near falls. This is a match that would have played much better during the 70s in the United States. But even then, they had two counts to play with. Or in Japan, where the submission moves were more over. Crossface and ankle lost spots got to try to react. But moves like arm bars or D-lights have been progressive submission moves. But they had television, the crowd wasn't educated to them. Without the ability to use gimmicks, do near falls, and break tables, 30 minutes was too long for the live crowd. Most false concepts also worked against the match because fans still see that top guys don't tap out. And these guys both did three or four times one night. They didn't think anyone would argue that none of them really got over regardless of technical skill and who won or lost. Man, if it was just an elongated Raw match, and it was, again, nearly 30 minutes, which was too long on the show, we already have one match go that length. It's roughly as good as everyone expected. Good match, but they've had set expectations so high because of Triple H, Raw, Austin, and Angles, string of man events, this couldn't compete with the stat there. It was probably Undertaker's best performance in a long time, however. Show drill sold at 15592 which is 14751 paying 831510 with another 143908 merchandise sales. That was the 18th sale on the road Chicago on the broadcast. Actually, it was the 17th. And the last 18, this one show came very close, and the sellout street was so impressive they decided to just continue the street because, well, this is pro wrestling, and you do those things. Hey, at least it was in the XFL where they announced sellouts are totally empty upper decks. Well, there is that. All right, Sunday Night Heat. Jerry Lynn made his TV debut, winning the lightweight title from Crash Holly at 337. Paul Heyman was talking about Lynn mentioning his matches in the past with X Pac, Global in 91, and Rob Van Dam. Yes, he bitched Rob Van Dam on WWE television. Aside from a loud ECW chant, crowd was quiet. They were a little off on some stuff, but the finish was well done. Fans applauded the good wrestling. Lynn won with a schoolboy holding the tights. Yeah, I mean, so now he, you know, it's the pre-show. It was a good way to bring Lynn in. Were they still you know, doing win- a full pre-show card or just one match at this point? No, they got two matches. Okay. Because we're about to do another match. Well, let me pull this up, though, too, real quick, so we can Sunday night see Hito. the finish. Yeah, which, I mean, it's an interesting Hito. way to debut the guy. Yeah. Um, Are you? No, commercial. No, but like, it says commercials? It did at the beginning. But I, I always but, thought it was weird that he's kind of heelish. And then that never goes anywhere, but... Right. Yeah. Able to counter from a near fall situation. And through no, Jerry Lynn bridged out before the three count. The hand was coming down. There's a roll up, but Jerry Lynn's got the tights. He got the And that never goes anywhere because he's just a babyface for the rest of his run. Yeah, pretty much. Very strange. Um, <laughs> and also, technically, his debut was at Access a month earlier. Wow. But no, but it was on... Uh, they did some show where you could hear his debut in the background. And I don't remember what the hell it was because this isn't the year of WrestleMania all day long. But there was something... There was something where you could hear Howard Finkel saying, winner of this match, Terry Lynn. But I don't remember what it was. 
That doesn't count. I know. Maybe in in your world it does, but it does count. All right. Um, well, obviously still, this is a TV Tom, debut. Yeah. He went to Tom the first match in. That's, that's, that's my heavyweight title, but still. The and he ends up cutting a shoe promo on the promotion a few months later because they're not doing anything with him despite him being the light heavyweight champion. Yeah. Lita pinned Molly Holly in 240 after Moonsault. Some good acrobats, the two were rough working with each other. Lita went with a twist of fate and a moonsault where she slipped slightly and acknowledged the commentary and landed sort of on Holly's knees. Scully built towards Lita as a baby face, challenging a heel China in a title program. Dave senses a major phase down for China. Oh, you think so? Oh, there's a lot <laughs> going on here in just this one thing. Yes. Um, China is being phased down, so she has something to do completely. I mean, she's already removed from Triple H, but it seems like they want to keep her in her own world. So she got the women's title, and now she's defending the women's title. And in her defense against Lita, she undermines Lita very much in that match, even though she's going over anyway. Very obvious. We covered that show, <laughs> didn't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and as for Lita, yes, Molly Holly, very good wrestler at worst. Uh, Lita never actually good, as I think we finally learned lately if there was any disagreement on this. I would hope that Lita, Lita had her time and place where she was effective and good at what she did, but I would never have called her a good worker. No. Certainly not compared to Trish. You know, if you look at them as, contempor as contemporaries, especially. Oh, God, yeah, Trish, Trish the, the, the best all the way, better all the way around. Better yeah. performance, period. Absolutely. But I, th I think we can finally close the book on people thinking Lita was good, right? I think this, I mean, I mean let's be honest, Lita has been out of the game for a long time. But so and she's Trish, older. and Trish never looks that rusty. I mean, Trish yeah. is fucking timeless. <laughs> Trish. No, Trish Trish is in better condition now physically than she probably ever has been. I mean, she's just timeless. No, but I mean, it's also the, with Lita, though, it's not like we're talking about, like, the Moonsault or the Hurricane Rana looking bad. It's that it's her transitions and everything looks so well, awful. She's, I mean, yeah, she, she's worse than she ever has been now. Yes. But it's not stuff you would expect to degrade so much just with age and stuff. Well, it did with her. And by the way, we forgot, right. to, we, we forgot to talk about the Dudley Dong earlier when you mentioned uh, the Dudley no, Dog. No, I didn't. I Yeah, but still. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. All right, the paper you opened up proper with X Factor. Sean Waltman, Albert, just credible, beating the Dudleys. Bubba Ray, Devon, and Spike at 759. One of these days, Basically, though, you got you got to read the, all the real names. You got to do X Factor, Sean Waltman, Matt Bloom, and Pete Pilato. No, you got to no, read it no, as it's no. written in the Observer. They beat the Dudleys of Mark LaMonica, Devin Hughes, and Matt Heisen. No. They beat him at 759, based by the book match. He don't Devon most of the way. Hot tag to Bubba. New spelling. That's just B U B B A. Who told Devon to get the table? Albert laid out Devon with a high kick and then later squashed Bubba in the corner. Incredible. And next gave him a double super kick for the finish. Dudley's did a usual post match with Devon Crotch and Albert, despite doing the acid drop, which they say he thinks he called the Dudley Thong. Incredible. And then 3D on next spot through a table, which ended at two stars. Whatever. 
trying to push X Factor. Got that great new song. All right, Ryan over 10, Hardcore title being Raven in 810. This would be the only match of the show that exceeded expectations. It may have been the best battle on the show. A lot of creative spots put in the match. Ryan around the ring steps, killed Raven on a chair, but he moved. The Rhino crashed into the chair. Raven ran up the steps and nailed Rhino. Started hitting each other with lots of garbage cans and street signs. A shopping cart came in, which saw a bunch of 10 items or less jokes and commentary. Raven did a drop to a hole in Rhino's face, went to the shopping cart. They killed each other with hard shots with signs to the head. That can't be good for you later in life. Maybe every wrestler who lets themselves be pounded on for the sake of art at 30 should meet some guys like Floyd Patterson or Joe Frazier to see what potential long-term can come from this. Good near falls. Rhino got a shopping cart and went through the open. Raven pummeled the shopping cart with a kitchen sink, and Rhino was nearly pinned, but finally came back with his gore for the finish. Three and a quarter stars. And yeah, I mean, this this was a hell of a match. Yeah, and that gore through the back of the shopping cart. I mean, you know, it's going into the where the cart gives and opens up. Uh, I'm guessing that was a fairly large factor in his neck problems that came out of the early part of this WWF run. Well, take it for somebody that's um, had their hands on many shopping carts in their time. It doesn't matter, you know, the car. Those things are solid, and they do hurt. <laughs> no, I know. That's what I was saying, that it's like even though it's going into the part that's moving with him, it's still – he's still running into a hard metal thing even if it's moving as soon as he hits it. Even though – I mean, no matter what, it still hurts. Yes. So. And that was like – that was – I think in the subsequent highlight packages, that was like the big spot in the match was uh, Rhino goring the shopping cart. Also, uh, not mentioned here, though, we did have the arrival of the Duchess of Queensbury before this. Well, the match is coming up, but go ahead. What? I, I thought we were playing everything involving uh, her duchessness. Well, go ahead. I, got, I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have it in my notes. Mm -hmm. So you got it. I don't. And well, speaking of cars... this is going to be. I'm afraid to find out. It's a deaf guy. Who are those guys? Because he's doing the secret service touching his ears. Your ladyship, your ladyship. Duchess of Queensbury, you're finally here. Oh, did you have a wonderful trip, dear? My trip will be so much better once I'm out of this horrible, horrible city. Woman. I wholeheartedly agree with you, but... Your ladyship, thank you once again for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, William. Uh, gentlemen, now look, I know you're used to guarding the Duchess, but America is a barbaric place. Barbaric, I tell you. So remember, forewarned is forearmed. Okay? Well, are we going to stand around here or what? I I'm sorry, your ladyship. It's my fault. Please, gentlemen, take your ladyship to her quarters. Thank you. By the way, dear, you look absolutely ravishing tonight. Magnificent. Absolutely wonderful. Bye. The Duchess of Queensbury is one Sue Aitchison, Hall of Famer. Yeah, what do you think that conversation was like to get her to play the Duchess of Queensbury? Well, my thing is, look how much young, younger she looked. I mean, it's twenty years ago, but yeah. I mean, does she? I don't think I would have known it's the same person. What's her official title? She was head of talent relations at one point in time, community relations. She is, yeah, Director of Community Relations since March 86. Yeah, she's been a long time. 
So she, yeah, yeah. When people talk about her overseeing make, the Make a Wish stuff and Special Olympics stuff and all that, that basically for the entire time they've done that. Yeah, pretty much. Although you know they're they were saying you know on TV this week, apparently the Make a Wish relationship goes back to eighty two. Yeah, I can believe it. Well, what what starts in eighty two? What Capital Sports is done, and uh, we have yeah. Titan Sports. Yeah, that begins nineteen eighty two. So. I mean, Capital Wrestling, Capital Sports is a double double C. Well, Capital Wrestling Corporation, yes. Yeah. But anyway, all right. So we have the Duchess of Queensbury match. William Regal, Pinkers, Jericho, and twelve eleven. What was billed as the Duchess of Queensbury match? Complete with a matronly look- looking woman dressed as a Duchess at ringside, playing a cross between Vince McMahon and Jacques Rougeau, what? and doing a gimmick of, of changing oh, oh, yeah. the rules as they went along. Match was fine as far as work, but got still in the hurry. Jericho and Regal pinned after a line salt when the Duchess signaled for the belt claim was the end of the first round. Regal gave Jericho a weird-looking German suplex on his head. He didn't use the Regal stretch, but Jericho made the ropes. Then when Jericho got on the walls, Regal tapped. So now submissions aren't allowed under the rules. Regal then hit Jericho over the head with the Duchess's scepter and was DQ. Of course, it was then ruled that there was no DQ on the rule, and the match continued. Regal finally ended up with his face in the Duchess's crotch and did his priceless facials. Jericho threw her into the ring and put her on the walls. Regal nailed, Jer- nailed Jericho with three chair shots and got the pin. From an idea standpoint, it was as bad as the Vancouver match from last year, but it didn't come across quite as bad. Still, the idea of trying to directly follow this with a match requiring suspension of disbelief was very strange. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, first we have the Duchess explaining the rules or something before the match. And... Oh, put that down. It's disgusting. Excuse me, Duchess of Queensbury. Duchess, excuse me, Your Majesty. I was wondering if you could please enlighten us on the rules of the Duchess of Queensbury rules match that's going to take place here tonight. I beg your pardon, but who are you? Your Highness, I'm Jonathan Coachman from the World Wrestling Federation, and I was just wondering if you could tell our worldwide audience what the rules are for the match tonight. Ah, yes, it's really very simple. In order Duchess, to win... Duchess, you, you don't have to answer that. This man's a commoner. Coachman, you should know better. Badgering the Duchess like that. Who do you think you are? Well, Commissioner Regal, you told me earlier once the Duchess arrived, I could ask her any question I wanted to about... Rubbish! The... I said no such thing. Now, you better be gone with yourself, sunshine, else you'll be back calling potato sack races in Kansas City or wherever you're from. Go on, bugger off! Bugger off! Your ladyship, I apologize for these commoners, but... I appreciate you very much coming to watch my match tonight. When you go out there, don't forget, dear, don't look anyone in the eye because all of these people, they're insanely jealous of your beautiful good looks. Okay. Thank you. Take care of it, gentlemen, please. Enjoy yourself, dear. Well, Commissioner Regal will take on Y2J and... Regal in this whole deal is wearing his gear... And he's wearing a collared, button-up WF attitude shirt. <laughs> inside, tucked inside of his ties. Is that a button-up or is that like a... Yeah, it is. What the... <laughs> All right, so Fantastic. what should I skip to? Just the finish or... Yeah, that's what I would say. All right, so let's see. How far back should I go here? See, that's something I miss about the original... Uh... Bam Tech WWE Network is that you had the chat the separate chapter mark for the finish, you know. Yeah. Idea, but 
think tell me she's probably not a duchess. Is that... No. I mean, she's, a, she's, she's beautiful. She's not a cowgirl from Oklahoma. She's royalty. And look at Jericho stomping away at the commissioner. There's no disqualification, right, Paul? No disqualification. There you like go. Don't say. And Jericho following the commissioner in. And now Jericho, what well, a can't win by submission. Can't win by submission, Chris. But there's no disqualification. And that was like but the, the nasty shot. Right in the Royal Jewels. And oh, oh my God. Oh, well, that brought River right out of me. So Jericho hit a baseball slide into Regal, and Regal went face first into her lap. And Regal's doing his amazing selling. Yes. I think the idea is just supposed to be that he's horrified that he uh, impurified the Duchess in some manner. Yes. Yes. I would hope that's it. Regal has... <laughs> must be a cologne or a perfume or something. I don't know. The ladyship has been smooch right in front of your very eyes. Regal just... Jericho just took down the... The, the ladyship's security. She's not an athlete. She's royalty. Oh, my God. What is Jericho doing here? So next we go Chris Benoit being Kurt Angle on a submission, Iron Man submission match at 31-31. Of course, the mat work was very good. Even in Japan, and work shoots where a lot of mat work is done, and they don't do pinfalls or near falls, such as rings work style, which doesn't really exist anymore anyway. They always bounce it out by allowing knockouts, which dip blows were used to count on the mat work and set up working for submission and building. Even the best submission guys in Japan need the hard striking instead of make it work, and only the best go 30 minutes to an educated crowd. They also did 30-second rest periods, which was longer than last year's Triple H Rot uh, 60-minute match, which had far more leeway in what guys could do with uses of near falls, using objects and breaking furniture so they didn't have to give fans moves the fans had been educated towards. Then one did a cross face outside the ring, an angle tap, but it didn't count. Paul Hammond explained in the Olympics, if someone did a submission, they rolled off the mats, it wouldn't count. Huh? Oh, uh, yes, all Angle the submissions won. in Olympic wrestling. Yes. Angle won the first fall in 634 with a knee lock. Move wasn't over since it wasn't had never been used as a finisher before. Heyman did a good job in explaining that taps be quicker in this match. 
You didn't quite say because the match continues and you have to go 30. It's suicide to avoid tapping because you'd be a dead duck the rest of the match. And pretty much with an injured joint, but explain the psychology of it. Then one with a second fall on 803 with an arm bar. That move wasn't over either for the same reason. Then one started working over the shoulder and doing another arm bar leading to a rope break. The old shoulder breaker out of the 70s. Then one threw the breath down, allowing Angle to use chair shot and put him in an ankle lock in 10 19. Angle did with a three of the wood using Benoit's own crossface on him in 1105. Noticeable cheers for Angle live at this point since he beat Benoit with his own move. Benoit backdrop Angle over the top rope and posted him, then used the ankle lock on the floor, but it didn't count. Benoit again went to the arm bar, which still wasn't over. Did a sharpshooter, which was over for a rope break, before using the half crowd for a submission in 1802. At 3 2, Angle started stalling. With no clock or scoreboard, the live fans didn't seem to get a story. They were telling him about logical stalling and riding the clock. Ross, with a sports background, did a very good job of getting that across to the TV viewers, which is why I played so much better on television. Dave thought the very first suplex of the match didn't come until 2640 by Angle, who did a few of them. Benoit then did the Rolling Germans. Angle then came back with Angle lot that would put out the match out of reach, but Benoit reversed into the move and suffered the submission, tying it up at 2750. That story didn't get across well live. After the rest period, they had a minute 40 left. Benoit did a German suplex. Angle did a low blow and ankle lock, but a rope break, another ankle lock, and another rope break. Angle did a back suplex to another ankle locking. Benoit got it out until time expired. Then right after the bell, tapped out, which pretty well guaranteed he was winning. They were so left overtime, and Benoit got the cross face in 131 to win three and a quarter stars. I just love how we always get overtimes in these matches for some reason. Hmm. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a strong wrestling match, but it wasn't the all-time classic that a lot of people thought it was going to be going in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The 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 best match they have with each other is the Royal Rumble 03 match. Yeah. I mean, th- this match has a lot of fans online, though. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was a good match, but it wasn't the... It, <laughs> I just told you the expectations. Yes. It was good, but it just wasn't the classic. Well, and also expectation-wise, you have to remember, you know, the first time they worked together was at Mania a month earlier. So that's the first time they did kind of like the really quick chain wrestling. But you can't do that for a half hour without blowing up. Yeah. So it has to be at a slower pace than that. And I wonder if there was also the expectation that it would look more like the best parts of the WrestleMania match. Yeah, but we did. I mean, the whole education thing that Dave talks about, you know, and all this edu- fans were educated and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, it's before the UFC boom. Yeah, but still. Yeah, I think fans would know what submissions are. <laughs> right, so. but they're not necessarily going to get up for you know a Hujikatami the first time that someone uses it in two thousand one. Yeah. All right, so next we go a totally different direction. Shame it, man, beat the Big Show in 11.53 in the last man standing match. This wasn't the easiest match to do. There was nothing terrible about it, but aside from the bump, nothing much good either. Shane did three real hard chair shots to the head. They did an old E-thrown towel given by Shane to put Show down, but he didn't stay down for 10. That's from the Cornette playbook. Vince hit Shane with a chair, and Show gave Shane the final cut. Jack Doan gave a real slow count, and Show picked him up at eight. Well, he's losing for sure. Show slamming again, Show picked him up at eight. 
Show then put Shane to torture out when Tess ran in as he designated WCW Savior, which is kind of scary in itself, with his dreaded high kick. Show then threw Tess over the top and beat him up as well. They ended up fighting to the entrance area where Shane climbed the beanstalk, which is actually the backlash setup. Show wouldn't climb up too, but Tess pulled him down. Tess started killing Big Show of a sign. And Shane got up to the top. And well, you can guess what happens next. Also, keep in mind, we're like eight months removed from the last time he did this. Yes. Which is also a little weird. Shane McMahon of Shane McMahon getting to work for the Big Show, who's got that pipe, that lead pipe or whatever it is. And Shane McMahon doing the smartest thing that he could do, and that's to get as far away from the Big Show as he can. But the Big Show's following him. My God, a 500-pound giant following Shane McMahon. The biggest stalker in history. Oh, Shane McMahon, a single. Tess pulling the Big Show down. Another shot to the Big Show's head. He's going to break his forearms if he's not careful trying to cover up from those shots. And now the Big Show, back to that big arm, that big hand. A low blow. Tess got the low blow in top. The Big Show was going to chuck slam Tess right there at the entranceway. Filter. Shane McMahon to put his body and soul on the line to drive his body through the big shows and look at the broken wood, the broken bodies. And both men are down, and the referee is counting. How far the ball do you think that was? Oh, my God, I, I have no idea. Unbelievable. Staging, but both men are down. Shane McMahon and the Big Show are down. And Tess helping Shane up. Holding, putting Shane over the, over the camera, the cream. Now, is this a dub? Because I thought he doesn't debut the song until at least a few weeks later with the Kurt Angle thing. Maybe a dub. For If it's a dub, it's well done. That's got to be at least 50 feet. Maybe more. I'll tell you what, I've seen it a lot. Oh, we got this is 
We'll be looking at this piece of videotape for years. No, we talked about really. Mick well, off the top of the <laughs> she wait a couple of years ago in Pittsburgh. That had to be over 50 feet tall. I mean, I don't even know. I can't even tell you. He was all the way up there at the top of, of, of the entranceway, and he dove off. But you know what? He had to do it. Because if he didn't do it, there was no way on earth he could put away the big show. He landed right on top of the big show. Oh, you're right about that. The I... momentum. It's overwhelming. Shaming man putting his life on the line to win this match. That's how badly Shaming man wanted to win and prove something maybe not only to the big show, but to Shane's own father. Shane is the owner of WCW. I don't care what he's the owner of, what he is right now, is the owner of the big show's ass. Because Shane McMahon, look what he's willing to do to take out the big show. My God, look at the momentum coming down on, he never even hit him. on the big show. Yeah, that was not a good thing. Yeah, that was the Can worst thing on the show. What the hell that is? No huh? idea. Can you tell me what the hell that is? Dad. Dad, I don't know, but you gotta calm down, okay? At least we've got the championship match tonight. All okay. Um, now look, the filming and the choices of what replays... I mean, the filming live of this was perfect. The choices of which replays to show, not perfect, but mostly good. But here's the thing. When people complain about AEW crash pads, no one is complaining that AEW is using crash pads. They are complaining that AEW does a terrible job camouflaging the crash pads. Well, that that's the thing. I mean, that looked good because that stuff just cracked immediately. Right, and that you like you saw a little bit of a bounce on Shane's landing, but that was about it. You didn't you there's nothing that looks like an airbag. Like the facade over the crash pad looks good. It's not like, you know, when Jericho went off the top of the cage into the stage and it was very clearly a crash pad with just a fake grade on it and stuff. Or, you know, the second uh, Blood and Guts where Sammy went off the cage into the world's largest timekeeper's table. And and, and, and it looked like giant pillows. That's another thing, too. That did not look like a pillow. That that looked like there wasn't a whole lot of give to that pad. Right, you could tell it was a crash pad. Yeah, you could tell, but it didn't like have a lot of give. Right, but if they, they did a good job doing the design on it. And they also yeah. gave a reason for why this mysterious big box was there. Because it was, what did it Air say filter. it was? Air filter. Yeah. Air filter. <laughs> you know, whatever. It's it's not like it. they gave a lot of thought to it, but still it's something. It's Yeah, again, when... When people complain about the AEW crash pads, no one's complaining that they're using a crash pad. No one wants well, them to do those yeah. stunts without crash pads. It's the no. whoever they have on prop design or whatever, and I don't know who this is, and I'm not trying to insult them personally, they don't do a good job dressing them up at all. No. But anyway, I, again, and, and we're two months away from King of the Ring where Shane's really going to go off, so... Oh, with the angle match, yeah. Yeah. Um, they talked about the finish. She said they showed a mini replays and that took a ton of guts to look down and jump. But the replays also showed Shane never came close in the big show, star and a half. Well, only the last replay showed that. The last one more than any of them, yes. Because that was right, like, level with the crash pack. And it was close up. They shouldn't have shown that last one. No. 
Uh, next, Matt Hardy retaining European title in the three way over Christian and Eddie Guerrero in 652. No, he was very smooth, good wrestling. A few near falls. Edge came out and speared Matt. Dave was expecting Saturn to come out, but maybe because of his arm injury, they decided against it. Jeff came out as well. Chris did the unpretty on Guerrero and then hit Jeff. And Jeff hit the swanton, excuse me, behind the referee's back, which I actually totally missed Christian, leading to Matt using the twist of fate on Christian for the pin. Two and three quarter stars. And then we get the main event. Stone Cold Triple H beat Undertaker and Kane in 27-11 to win the tag titles in the match where Austin's WF title and Triple H's IC title were both also at stake. Thus, Triple H joined Shawn Michaels, the only wrestler to hold the WF IC European tag titles. They tried to tell a story with Kane having an arm injury and Taker trying to protect him from his own guts. Undertaker took the punishment, went tag out, worked on his knees, but he went and tagged. It was scary how badly the fans were wanting to cheer Austin. Early in the match, he went to one corner, and you could see everyone in the building on the side cheering. He certainly never did it to the other corners, teasing a second, and then not doing it as a heel move. Kane tagged himself, and they bumped for him as he did the one-arm gimmick. He gave Austin a clothesline off the top, slammed Triple H off the top. Austin Triple H started working on Kane's elbow. At the old divorce court move, Austin hit the arm with your chair. Undertaker somewhere got his cuts from last month, open hard way again. At this point, something happened with Austin and Kane, as you can tell there was a major communication problem. Came in for a clothesline. Austin was out of position, not expecting it. Austin went for a back suplex. And Kane wasn't ready and didn't jump for it. They had some trouble later. Triple H did a pedigree on Kane, but instead of going for the pin, which would necessitate a kick out, he tagged Austin. Saying Triple H is so clever is not a knock. <laughs> it's praise, and he is. It's a knock that sometimes what is good for him isn't good for the company. We've seen with Hogan and Nash and the end result of that. Clever stuff like him tagging out doesn't hurt anyone. Taker chose some also with Stephanie distracted referee Hebner. Hebner showed Stephanie off the apron. Kane did into Geary, but Triple H crashed into Hebner. Hebner missed the hot tag. The Undertaker gave Triple H the last ride, but Hebner wouldn't count, thinking he was a legal man. Another ref bump. Austin did the stunner on Kane with no referee. Stephanie gave Triple H a belt to use, but Kane used a high kick on him and then her. This up misses running with a sledgehammer. Kane went out to Vince, but with cameras missing a finishing sequence again in the how does WCW happen? How in the WCW does this happen department? Triple H hit Kane with a sledgehammer to the head and scored the pin. Three stars. All right. Let's watch how all this played out. A referee on the outside, and so are the Undertaker. And, and Austin, and wait a minute. Stephanie just gave her husband a one of those title belts. Championship, those championship belts. Austin knocked over the railing by the Undertaker. But meanwhile, Triple H has the title in his hand. Kane barely able to stand. Triple H took the last ride. He's barely able to stand. But Triple H is going to win. And he got knocked back in his face. My God, after all of this, are you going to tell me?
power trip have all the gold, but by God, if the Undertaker's got a breath in his body, there's gonna be some serious hell to pay. Somebody's gonna get hurt badly. Somebody's gonna get their ass kicked. Here it is, Kane has Triple H by the Google, stopping and showing a life's love for her husband, gets kicked right in the face, and Mr. McMahon, the world's greatest <laughs> running out. to defend his daughter. <laughs> Yelling. And look, look at this, the sadistic son-in-law for the sledgehammer to the injured elbow of Kane, and then this, he'll come back for the sledgehammer, hitting Kane right in the head. Okay, so there's the second shot that the camera missed the first time. And also that another camera missed on the floor because they were turning towards what was on the floor, so they had to switch replay angles, too. Um, (laughs) Okay. At the time, and for years later, everyone thought Triple H was being selfish by refusing to turn babyface as planned and do this and almost making... Anyhow, especially for how it seemed at times Austin was supposed to be subservient to him. All of that said, knowing how badly the heel turn went, should we be viewing this at more as Triple H protecting himself from being programmed as a babyface against a heel that everyone wanted to cheer more more than anything else? Well, you don't want to say he got lucky he got injured, but he got lucky he got injured. Well, he got lucky he missed the invasion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) He got lucky he wasn't part of any of that. He was seen as a savior in the end. (laughs) Yeah. Also, it just occurred to me that the whole narrative, the official narrative of that Stephanie and Triple H didn't really become a couple until he was rehabbing the injury is because China's out of the company at that point. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's so far gone. I mean, that narrative has no relevance. We, I mean, we openly talk about. It. We watched those shows in two thousand where they're. I mean, they're in love with each other on the air. Yes. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, the one I always remember. I think it's the second Jericho match. For Heat, I think hasn't Stephanie even talked about this or something that sounds like this moment later, as being kind of when she was like, "Oh, that's interesting," when he just like for Heat in between spots goes to her at ringside and kisses her. But, yeah. like, very nonchalantly. And I remember at the time, even the reaction was like, that's interesting. That's not like the other stuff they do. You know, and that's yeah. a year before this. Yeah. But as far, though, as Triple H not turning babyface, I feel like he's right to not want to be the guy feuding with Austin here. Well, again, I mean, he gets hurt. No, but I'm saying, no, but the original plan was for him to be a babyface like right away and he was already shifting towards babyface and then he just goes back strong heel and aligns with austin yeah i mean before all this not not after he gets was you know not for when was after what turned out to be when he got hurt but he just decided not to turn babyface and at the time it was seen as this bullshit thing and yeah it was for self-preservation but no they didn't have any babyfaces ready other than Triple H, if Triple H went along with the original plan, but, like, I do get why he made that call, don't you? Yeah. Because, like, it just, it was a losing situation to be the babyface against Austin in that role. 
Now, once Austin's in the Alliance and changes his character up more, that's a little different. Because he's a stronger heel, it settled in a little bit, even though it still was not a good idea in the first place. But I think he was right to read the tea leaves and be like, eh, this isn't a great idea. Yeah. Alright, um, Blake Keller's thoughts. Backlash has taken a leave of pay-per-view. Well, I mean, there are pay-per-views in the past of the week on paper, but turning great shows. This is just a fair show. I do a product overall right now. It was a pay-per-view that seemed predictable and patterned. Everybody worked hard, but it was a pay-per-view that didn't seem to need to exist for any reason other than they needed to have a pay-per-view this month. But there have been a lot of those over the years. The current attempt to book the company old-style session in case of the main event is admirable. It might be smart to go back to what worked for decades for. Beginning fans react to traditional big face heel spots is going to take some patience. And the path there isn't going to be especially entertaining for many fans. Oh, especially in that era. And even now, a lot of the time. So, yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't even remember. That is true. How did Triple H lose the Intercontinental title? Because remember, he loses it to Jeff Hardy, but then wins it back. But I don't remember who he loses it to the second time. Is it Kane? Are you talking about this era right here? Yeah. Um, he loses the title to uh, Jeff Hardy. No, but then he wins it back. I don't think Hardy, Hardy gets it from him again, does he? Right, that's right. That's right. Kane beat him. Kane beat him in the chain match at Judgment Day. Okay, and that's when Kane loses it a couple months later to Albert. Austin, that's when Austin accidentally, well, that's when Austin accidentally hit him on the head with a chair. So Austin calls him lose title. Yeah. So they were going and going that direction. So it just didn't happen. Yeah, they were going back towards it after a certain point. Yeah. Alright, uh, stand with the torch. There was also no truth to the widespread internet rumors that Booker T was being considered as a surprise for the show. There was a problem near the end of the show in, in the main event in terms of the planned sequence of let us improvising, which may have been one of the director missed a shot of Triple H, KO, and Kane with a sledgehammer leading to the pen. Well, a little improv work, huh? Well, I guess that'll do it. Shame Man was up and about after his bump on the show. Which, you know, he lay on that crash pad. It looked great. It's still a big ball. I would say. Yeah. All right. The Batlash preview that aired on Channel 4 in UK was on a 50-minute delay, screwed up in the order of the matches. There had been one angle before Jericho and Regal. After airing the Jericho match, they started video airing the Benoit match and stopped it mid-transmission when someone figured out they already aired the match. The Vince show talking seminar aired twice. They also took commercial breaks at times in mid-sentence between matches. This well, is a weird era because it's not every pay-per-view. But a bunch of pay-per-views are airing on, you know, over-the-air, free... Well, I guess free-to-air is the technical term in the UK. But free-to-air, free broadcast network TV. Yeah. All right, next we get Monday Night Raw. The next night in Milwaukee, on April 3rd, for a sellout, 13438 paying three nine three seven eighty. It may have been the poorest received Raw of the year, coming oh, off an average pay-per-view show. The first hour was good. second hour was bad. Not so much execution, but in booking, which was scary. Angle open where reviewing got great heat. The one came out and the two got into a brawl, which had more action in one minute than the rest of the show combined. The upshot of all this was been one left with Angle's medals. Angle and two and far too comic a bit spent the rest of the show looking for Benoit, who already left. Matt Hardy pin edge and to keep your pin title at 421. Bout was good, but the heat wasn't good. Christian and Jeff were fighting outside and Edge had Matt Penn when Jeff threw Christian in the ring and that referee stopped the count. Edge got mad, shut him out of the ring for blowing the match, and we turn around, Matt it hit and twist the fade for the pin. X pop in Spidelli 319 with the X Factor in a good match. 
only problem with this part winning is we meant to admit we had to hear that interest music twice. <laughs> oh, come on, Dave. Dave, obviously not a fan of uh, you dealing with the X Factor. If only they would have kept it like that and then maybe added some type of different instrumental music, it would have been different. But, not but the then you went to Uncle song. Yeah. Yeah, then you went to Uncle Cracker. I got everything I ever wanted. Yeah. All right. Um, if it was like you're dealing with the X Factor, and then it's like some nation of domination type riff. No, you know? well, okay. What did you think of the second X Factor theme then? The one that wasn't the Uncle Cracker song. Um, I vaguely remember it. Let's see if I can find it real clear. Uh, okay. Version three. I would hope this is the right one. Oh, there's three versions. Okay. Hey, yo, you dealing with the X Factor? Okay, yeah. No, not a fan. I remember this. I know you're watching. Yeah, it's kind of. What's the first version? So, okay, do we think V. I mean, it's possible it's just slightly different edits of Uncle Cracker things. So, let's see. X X Factor WWE theme V1. Uh, Do we have anything actually labeled V1? I'm assuming it's. Okay, first entrance video, so probably Uncle Cracker. Yo, you dealing with the X Factor. I got everything I ever yeah, wanted. Right, and yeah. Now... yeah. Alright, what's the second version then? Hey, yo, you dealing with the X Factor. Okay, so there's two different edits of okay. this one, I guess. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, so of course, one of the. Uh... Wait, there's a. Oh, wait. Oh, so there's also. Oh, are they say. Are the people who are tracking this calling the dub over Uncle Cracker on the network version, too? Hey, yo, you dealing with there the X Factor. Yeah, I mean, this one calls it V2, so maybe that's the reason for the confusion. Again, it should have, uh, should have been some type of, uh, Nation of Domination beat. Anyway, enough about that. Alright, Stephanie... Uh, was all made up. Nice made up Bruce and the pair of views. She wanted Tess to pay for what he did at the show. Of course she did. <laughs> and the vignettes are pretty flat with Crash Holly getting drunk and taking at cars by the APA. It's one of those inside ribs that 90% of the audience doesn't get because Crash has gotten in trouble for getting drunk in the past, including fine once board during a public appearance at the New York uh, thing several months ago. But Crash getting taken, Bob Holly shut and broke it up, challenging the APA to a fight. <laughs> yeah, let's take a guy's real life issues and make it into an angle like this, huh? You know, I was gonna say at least they wouldn't do this today, and then I not they, not with not not with this. They wouldn't do it with this, no. But they still do stuff they shouldn't. I mean, then the thing I was thinking of was the the thing where Jeff Jarrett was on a pre-show panel, and Elias is few. I guess. Was he feuding with Jeff Hardy? And somehow the punchline ends up being that Jeff, it must be Spanish for junkie. And you can tell by the look on Jeff Jarrett's face. He had no idea that was coming. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just doing something like this, this in your face. You well, he's actively going through it, too. Yeah. 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 Well, he is actively off the wagon. Yeah. So wait, this is... Is this the first APA segment or the second one? 
Well, there's multiple ones, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm it's all throughout the show. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of curious what it looks like, but let's just keep going. All right, um, Rhino and Jericho to keep the hardcore town through 52. Regal was at ringside, getting into a Jim Ross. Edge Christian came out. All the weapons, including Christian, used a fire extinguisher to Jericho's face and him up for the gore. After the match, Jericho destroyed Regal in a garbage can shots. Vince's Steph came out. Vince did his interview talking about Triple H and Austin. He's really talking about himself, whatever that means. Vince was furious about Stephanie's bruise in order Austin to take out the injured cane. Linda appeared on TV from New York and said that she would postpone divorce proceedings if Vince would change the main event on television to Austin versus The Undertaker. So Vince made the facials and he changed it with Austin freaking out. <laughs> Lord. All right. Uh, APA beat the Hollies with Crash acting drunk the entire match, even supposedly hurling, although he didn't appear to have draws as talents of being able to do it on command. Oh, boy. Bradshaw pinned Bob with a Larry 252. Bob and Crash fought after the match. Triple H destroyed Tess, leaving him for dead with chair shot to chair shot, getting to keep 56 seconds. It's almost like they're trying to copy WCW. They either could have done a six-minute match, given Tesla's office, elevate him, and have it in the same way. This way, Tess wouldn't let such a punk and be buried. Kane saved him with his one-arm house cleaning. Well, Dave is Tess. <laughs> Tess is a whipping boy, in a way. I mean, so, what's the best way to ask this? Do you think Paul Levesque was genuinely threatened by him? Whether in terms of another tall guy with long blonde hair, whether until he cut his hair, yes, yeah. But how do you think the Stephanie storyline fits into that? I think it fits in on on on, into it on television. I don't know about real life, but in the television portrayal of tests, you know that definitely is a factor. It just, I mean. Nothing happened between the two as far as we know when they were programmed together as a couple, so... Yeah. But then again, you're the guy who got together with her when you were programmed with her as a couple, so... Yeah. Let's keep my threats away from her. <laughs> Show to clip a rock at the Mummy Returns premiere. China pinned Trish Trash in 84 seconds, killing her death at our press slam. Lita came out in China, basically falling all over her, making it so that if anyone actually wanted to see the match, by the time these two were laughing about it, they would have no interest. Perhaps the most botched-up interview segment in a long time even included the music excellently playing for Lita in the middle. Seriously, whoever wrote lines for these two didn't grow up watching guys do promos that led the people buying tickets. Dave gets the ideas for China to go in his friends and turn on a pay-per-view. Bad news means that Lita rematches and more TV time spent on this feud. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> This sounds interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> what should they have done with China? I mean, just keep her away from Triple H. That's all you gotta do. Well, okay, I'm trying to think back. But, I mean, she hasn't been aligned with Triple H since the Stephanie thing started, though. I know, just keep her away. Keep her against guys or whatever, you know? I kind of want to see this now. What? Which part? The interview. I want to hear some of these shitty lines that was written. Okay. Uh, so this is... Where is this in relation to the... To I mean, it's after China and Trish. Okay. So it's after the match. Yeah. All right, let's see. 
All right, there we go. All right, so. Is that the finish? or? Okay. got to be. There we go. And this is the most feminine China has ever looked in WWF at the time, too. Well, they've changed her hair and her gear a lot. Yeah, like, but she's also made not as... Well, she's also not as as built either. She's very she's way leaned out here. Yes. Yes. Actually, are her implants smaller too? Uh, possibly. Yes, they're not as big as they were. Yeah, no. So it's also just even less of an exaggerated presentation in that sense too. Yeah. Well, Trish will fight another day, but tonight was not her night. I have to say that as much as I respect all of the women in the World Wrestling Federation, and I do, I felt as of late that I really don't have a whole lot of competition. So instead of pinning my fellow divas, from now on, I'm just going to have to spank them. Spank? Hey, maybe I should become a diva. Interesting. The mic's not working. China, you have been a total inspiration to me. You have totally paved the way for us women competitors here in the WWF, and you know that I have so much respect for you. Listen to how different her speaking voice is when she's still living in North Carolina. <laughs> Yeah. She, I mean, you can tell it's the same person, but her voice is the same, but, like, that accent is gone now. Yeah. You know, when she started living... Well, that, ha that, that happens. Where is it that she lives most of the year? It's, it's somewhere in the Caribbean, right? I think so. And maybe also sometime in Mexico? I forget exactly where. I do. But, you know, I also have a lot of respect the WWF women's title and uh, if it's competition you want well you know I'd really be honored if you'd let me fight you for it there's a challenge apparently from the leader to China I like that leader China China well alright you bad girl come get your spanking And then the music cuts on. Stop, I'm serious, okay? I want to challenge you. Stop. No, I'm serious, Julia. You deserve it. And if you want a match, I'll give it to you. You name the time and the place. <laughs> yes. But don't be surprised if your hiney's a little sore the next day. Let's do this. Oh, I don't know when. I don't know where, but I'd like to be there to see it. Me too. I'd like to see Lita versus China. What, do they show this during promo class for the women at the Performance Center or something? <laughs> Hold on. 
I have always wanted to be a WWE superstar. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah, yeah, for comparison, here's the Roxanne Perez Shawn Michaels uh, segment from a month ago, where they're clearly not in the same room. Look, I know you're better physically, but mentally, you're just not sure. <laughs> I love how obviously that's not Shawn Michaels. Yeah. Roxanne, you're 21 years old. You've got a long, wonderful career ahead of you. There's going to be other standing delivers. Will there be? I can't think like that. Did you think like that? WrestleMania was the most important night of the year for you. I know that you never had the mindset of, well, there's always next year. It was here and now, and you stole the show every time, and that's exactly what I want to do is stand and deliver. My anxiety is crippling, but I can't run away from it. I have to confront it. And the only way that I can do that is by facing it head on. The only way that I can win this battle is by climbing that ladder, retrieving my title, a title that I never lost. You know what's scary? Her delivery here is much better in that than in that segment we just watched. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a much better. Yeah, I mean, for as much as everyone has rightfully been talking for the last month about how bad the segment was, she's still noticeably better than Lita and China are in the 2001 thing. It, 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 one thing we should mention for context, though. Mania, a month earlier in 01, was the debut of the WWF Diva branding. It was Mania yeah. weekend that year. And all of a sudden, in the actual women's title fuse, which, after they got away from Sable and Deborah and, all, and the cat and all that, has been much more, even if not necessarily good wrestling, on the serious wrestling side for, what, the last year plus... Now, all of a sudden, we get spankings and all this. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway. All right, Austin and Triple H Troy came backstage. Undertaker came back for a save and laid out Triple H. Austin Undertaker brought to the ring and did a 57-second main event, ending the DQ <laughs> finish with Triple H interfered. Crowd groaned a little when the bell rang in Triple H's match, but they really groaned when the bell rang this time. Then they started booing. And it was that WCW booing at the end of a TV show. Doesn't mean they're getting the good heat. Those match were strong. We're both destroying Tech with a sledgehammer. Except for the fact there's no spray paint used. It looked just like a nitro, and that isn't good. Kane came out, and just like a WCW Bayface would, and with Tess, the heels punked him out without even making him look decent first. They did the broken arm deal with the chair on him. Also, destroyed Undertaker with numerous chair shots of great heat. They could have done all they did with storyline wise, still did a seven minute match. With a run in, so fans wouldn't have felt so ripped off being hyped for something that basically wasn't delivered. Yeah, but hey, they're the only game in town. You know, at that point in time. Mm -hmm. We don't even have so. World Wrestling All-Stars yet. We don't even have the XWF or MECW or Superfed or Wrestle Express yet. No. Anyway, that was running that raw. Which drew a 4.98 rating, 4.74 first hour, 5.2 second hour, 7.7 .7 rating, which translated into 6.47 million viewers. P rating was a 5.62 for Undertaker and Austin, which is not a strong sign considering they were trying to sell the rematch on a pay per view. Other strong quarters were 5.3, mostly Undertaker Austin, but tight at Trish. 
5.28. Vince interviewed with Stephanie, Linda, and Austin, Triple H. Triple H tested a 5.1, which is the same as Jericho and Rhino, which is a 5.1. Yeah, sure, that was fun for Triple H to see. He did the lowest rating in the history of the show with a 1.08. Doubly scary because it came on the day of the pay-per-view. Even the Heat show, which went head-to-head in the Super Bowl in January, did a 1.10. Wow. Oof. Oof. I mean, Livewire did a point nine. Yeah, I was going to say, go ahead. Livewire did a point nine. Superstars point eight six. The fact that it was so barely ahead of Livewire and Superstars is bad too. It did worse than the Super Bowl Heat did. That's oof. That's well, rough. In the first year since Heat started, that did not have halftime Heat too. Yeah. Ugh. Wow. They were confiscating signs at TV again this week. The major ones were those involving characters of the old WCW, such as the IWWFO, and drawings of Triple H with Hulkamania shirt on. <laughs> Fantastic. Our written merchandise for the week, now included the was $215,034, or $8.09 a head. Pretty good. All right, SmackDown tapings. Now, SmackDown tapings took place the next night. Um, let's see the city here as I look. Uh, that would have been Indianapolis on May the 1st. There's a backstage blow-up at SmackDown tapings. X-Pac, who showed up late for the taping, although he apparently kept the touch throughout the afternoon through a phone with the personnel, yelled at Michael Hayes when he found that his plan to SmackDown with the Dudley's had been changed from what had been previously discussed. He yelled at Hayes for manipulating the storyline so that his group, including Albert and Justin Credible, didn't have any heat on the Dudley's Going into the pay-per-view. Okay, this was the SmackDown from the previous week. That's okay. Okay, I'm sorry. SmackDown we talked about earlier in the show. Um, Stephanie suggested the X-Pac go to Vince McMahon with his problems since yelling at Hayes wasn't going to do any good. Hayes, always known as a big proponent of the Hardys, is also close with the Dudleys and Andrew Christian. X-Pac felt Hayes was unfairly favoring the Dudleys in the booking of their feud. Paul Heyman took him aside and had what turned into an hour-long talk with him about the incident and other matters. Paul Heyman doing Paul Heyman things there, I guess. I mean, I don't know in a situation like that, you know? I mean, did they even know he was going to be there? Well, what's funny is, I mean, who wins the pay-per-view? X-Factor. You know? Yeah. So who knows? Manager signed Jerry Lynn. This is from the torch, and I wonder who 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 the source of this information is. Manager signed Jerry Lynn. He has given them a professional impression thus far. Lynn is going through an adjustment period with the ring ropes since they're higher than he's used to. Thanks, Jerry Lynn. (laughs) It isn't coming from the torch. Higher than he's used to. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if someone from Minia- from that Minneapolis scene who's taller, who's more used to those ring ropes, also uh, said anything about that. But I kid. Um, and gee, I wonder where that Shaw Waltman story came from as well, from those in the torch. Hmm. Well, he's not the only person uh, here that we know is talking to Wade, though. Yeah. The... Braverman Bloom Talent Agency has soon joined Joni Lauer for skipping out on commissions since she left their management. Lauer was on the contract of Barry Bloom as an agent from March 1998 to December 2000, during which time they negotiated her day of contract and advised and counseled her on all her entertainment matters, including acting, Playboy, her fitness video, and best-selling autobiography. 
The suit said that when Lauer terminated the contract in December, she allegedly agreed to pay $10,400. She still owed them, plus continued to pay them the percentage for the Playboy deal. Her autobiography, her fitness video, and a television project called Longings of Lolly that was part of. What? Yeah. Longings of Lolly? That sounds like a horrible porn film. Longings of Lolly. The lawsuit claims Lauer owed them on their percentage of those deals two hundred fifty thousand two hundred fifty thousand dollars. The lawsuit says she hasn't responded to numerous attempts. They've made the contact her and has refused to pay. The lawsuit was filed by attorney Henry Holmes, who is best known in wrestling as Chambalaya's representative. So wait a second, Henry Holmes was the lawyer for the Braverman Bloom Agency. I guess so. Huh. Uh, I mean, or they were, they were using counsel, him. at least. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, let's be realistic. And looking at the time frame we're talking about here, this is Joni Lauer developing a very bad drug problem and just probably not keeping up with this stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think she's maliciously not paying them. <sighs> yeah. I mean, now, so, also, I guess the payment doesn't go through the agency at all, though? I guess not. Because I feel like when I've talked like, to literary agents and stuff in the past, they're, I want to say, maybe I'm just misremembering, I want to say they said that they, that the commission went straight to them in some form, but maybe not. Yeah. But anyway. Oh, God, this yeah. next story. I'm watching it on E right now. <laughs> uh, yes. Let's go to Figure Four Weekly. Howard Stern aired the Contention for Attention, a boxing match featuring Wat Pat members Crazy Cabby and Angry Black, live from WF New York on Friday. Well, no, Crazy Steve... Cabby was uh, Crazy Cabby wasn't Wat Pat member. He was a K Rock. No, he's part of the show. He was one of the staff. Yes, Angry Black was part of the Wat Pat. Uh, Crazy Cabby was part of the staff. That's right. Sorry. Uh, it was live in New York on, on uh, Friday. Steve Austin and Triple H were, atten- were those in attendance, and the event aired live on the huge Jumbotron in Times Square. Also in attendance was Nicole Bass in her first appearance since her illness. Former boxer Jerry Cooney, Michael Buffer, Burke Sugar, boxing analyst and co-author of Complete E's Got the Pro Wrestling, former boxer Iran Barkley, and speaking of Iran, the Iron Sheik. Cabby and Black got into a legit argument on the air and led to Howard looking at this match to sell their differences. The fight consisted of five two-minute rounds with a 90-second rest period in between. The judges were Hector Macho Camacho, Mark Breland, and Arturo Thundergatti, former boxers who apparently had not received enough punishment during their careers. Joe Frazier's daughter, Jackie, was a timekeeper. And Brian says, I guess Howard had some money to burn. Austin and Hunter did commentary and cracked jokes the entire time. Hunter took advantage of the fact that Cabby had admitted to a past bisexual tryst. Brian wondered if he used to say his response back in the DX days when he was asked if he was bilingual, where he said, I'm bi a lot of things, but lingual isn't one of them. <laughs> Hunter said when he and Austin split up, he was going to take half of Austin's money like his ex-wife did. <laughs> Cabby and Black uh, actually lasted five rounds, but Black pretty much collapsed from exhaustion afterwards. Both guys hugged after a match in a touching display of disgusting sweat and body fat. Judge ruled, judges ruled the draw. A rematch was threatened. 
And yes, if you want to watch this, the hour and a half version, which is combined uh, two nights worth of e-shows, is up on YouTube. <laughs> this is the fight we've been looking for. I did have Seth, yes. after I finished with Dynamite, I, I asked him Yeah. I yeah, remember oh, as well. Yeah, were they just mixing this in with other stuff? Um, I mean, it's possible, but, I mean, yeah, it's all in there. <laughs> Austin and Triple H in there. Uh, oh, we've got Nicole Bass. Yeah. Who, at this point, has pending litigation against the World Wrestling Federation, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, that hasn't gone to trial yet in 01, has it? Yeah. I don't think it was till later, right? Yeah. Bag, you really got to know what you're doing, and I, I got my money on Angry Black. Nicole yeah. could kill both of them, by the way. <laughs> that's right. Hey, that's that's right. put me in. I totally forgot this was at WWF New York, though. If you want to get to Austin Triple H... Yeah, I want to uh, find something with them. They're around the one-hour mark of this. Okay. Maybe a little bit later. Because we get interviews with the contestants from Stuttering John. Of course. Because uh, I've seen them about 102, 103. Uh, yeah. I'm Keep trying going. to scrub fairly slow. We got a break. Okay, here they are. All right. Okay. Yeah, there they come. Huge men. Look at the size of these guys. Stone Cold, you just saw two guys who are really pissed off at one another. Did that scare you? Yeah, what, I, I saw you look. You were kind of amazed by this. I, yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't, I don't know, what, know what the whole backstory is, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going <laughs> out of violence here. I, I feel mean, right at home. Triple H, Stone Cold, this is a big fight. I mean, these two guys, this is going to be a real fight in the sense that these guys hate each other. They're I mean, really angry they at really each other. They really hate each other. Gabby needs to calm down, otherwise he ain't even going to make it to the ring. <laughs> that sounds like Paul Levesque doing a Paul Levesque impression. Cavi <laughs> needs to take it easy. <laughs> I don't, just, just judging by Cavi's past performances, I'm saying he's going to go down probably for a blow in the third round. Really? <laughs> oh my god! He's, a, he's a, but he sounds he sounds like Punk or someone like that doing an impression of him. <laughs> Look at his face when he made that joke. He was, he is so Some kind of blow himself. in the third round. Okay. Yeah, a, a, if there's an offer of a blow in the third round, he's going down for it. <laughs> Seriously, though, when you look at these two guys, you guys are both muscular. You're both uh, good fighters in your own right. But you guys got into shape for yeah, what I mean, you, you guys do. Are in shape. You, you guys, have you guys, when you wrestle or you box or something like this, aerobically, you've got to be in some kind of condition. You can exhaust yourself, can't you? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know Steve's why I got say this that? good beer drinking regimen, he does it. Cabby has been training by walking into the ring and eating mashed potatoes. Honest to God, he feeds pigeons in the park and watches them fight over the bread. He's doing, like, mental exercises. Don't you need to have some kind of physical conditioning? I would imagine it would help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, angry Black's been out running. He's been trying to at least get himself. Yeah, he goes condition. into the gym and actually works He's out. He's got an angry workout that he does. It seems to be working. For what him. about the fact that Crazy Cabby is a hundred pounds heavier than the guy, though? Can that help him? 
if he if he hits him early, maybe. You know what I mean? He's going to have to get in there early and try to knock him out with one shot because he's probably only got about four or five swings in him. So. <laughs> yeah, I say after the first round. It's yeah, all he's, he's history. Stone Cold, be serious. You first. What What is your prediction on this fight? You know something about both fighters. Give me your prediction in what round. I got to go the cabbie. The cabbie. Yeah. I like the whole gimmick. Will all we right. see a knockout? Uh, I don't. I don't think you're gonna see a knockout. I think one of them's gonna quit. You think one of them will have a heart attack? I, and die? I think one of them's gonna have a heart attack. I don't think I can hit hard enough to, to knock anybody out. But I'm going with the cabbie. And Triple H, what's your prediction? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Angry Black. I think Cabbie's gonna peter out in the first round. <laughs> That's what I think. Yeah. I think the guy's gonna collapse onto Angry Black and knock him out. Yo! His only chance is if his gut so expands cold. enough to whack him. Slow out and knock him out. Who do you challenge to a fight? How about yeah, I challenge you to a fight for the world heavyweight belt? I get this to be your biggest fan. Now I'm gonna kick your freaking ass. What's he saying? He wants you. He's calling, He's calling you, you out. out. Oh, tell the son bitch to get in the ring. Get in the ring right now, slow Adam. That's slow Adam. Yeah, slow Adam. He's rat retarded. Rat. You give him a chance. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. Hey, Camacho, Camacho, Schiffer's daughter. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious what athletic commission involvement there is in this, too. This is an exhibition. You still need athletic commission regulation for that. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm pretty sure you do, Chris. It, it, exhibition? I'm trying to figure out who our referee is here. Didn't they say? Earlier? Or uh, didn't the no. newsletter say? No. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is uh, all on YouTube, folks, if you want to watch this. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> if you just look up Crazy Not a lot, Cab- a lot of action. Yeah, Crazy Cabby Angry Black Boxing Match. It'll come right up. Yeah, not a lot of action here, but there you go. All right. So, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> what a blast from the past. Yeah, that's why I forgot about this until I did the notes, yeah. Well, more on Triple H and Figure Weekly. The smartest man in wrestling was on bike this this, this last week. Jeff Jarrett, Triple H, Kevin Nash. Hunter put over WrestleMania as one of the greatest nights of his life. It was amazing to work in front of so many people. He said he'd been a fan of Motorhead since he was a kid. Yes, they are old. Instead, he was really happy to hear them play a song live, especially a song about him. Brian wondered if he was happy to hear that the lead singer did not know the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I he said mean- Motorhead... Though the later uh, performances would be better at that on WWF, WWE. Yeah. yeah, Lemmy clearly did not know the words to the song at this point. He said Motorhead performing his song was a revolutionary and opened the door to other mainstream bands playing wrestlers' themes. That was a good one. It got better. He said he was all about helping others and wasn't there just to take from the business. <laughs> he said if he could be... <laughs> he... <laughs> that's bullshit! He said... It, it... He said if he could be a guy on top who helped the younger guys get over, that's what he wanted to do. Kind of like how he helped Test, and Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Jeff Hardy. Should I continue? In a funny line, he said without change, the business becomes stagnant. He said he was a big fan of guys having to pay their dues and said he didn't like how some amateur athletes were just taken into the company without paying their dues first. Brian hoped he wasn't talking about Kurt Angle. I am kind of curious who he's talking about there, but that's another story. Hunter, who is 31 and has never worked in old territory in his life, so there weren't a lot of guys around nowadays who worked in the territories and really paid their dues again a passion for this business. Okay. 
for years. I've been trying to remember when and what was the interview where Triple H tried to imply that he had worked the territories. <laughs> and I'm guessing this is it. Here we are. <laughs> um, he said he didn't feel demoted to holding the IC title. He saw it a step up for the belt. He said now would be a good time for young guys like Edge, Christian Hardy to step up. Not all the way up, apparently, but up. He put over Ric Flair as the man. Funny how Flair used to sell his ass off for baby faces, and Hunter does no such thing. Also, he was asked, three years yeah. earlier, he thought Ric Flair was too old. Mm-hmm. He was asked about the people on the internet who criticized him for playing political games. He said these were all opinions of people who didn't understand the business and weren't behind the scenes. He said those people just watch TV and think they know wrestling. So he doesn't pay attention to anything they say. Oh, if you ever wondered why he takes all the Tony Khan stuff personally. Brian remembers people in WCW saying the same exact thing. We were talking about the signs that eventually led to the death of that company. He meant the fighting for what he believed in, although he wouldn't specify what that exactly meant. He said he'd heard that some people claimed he used his backstage influence to get what he wanted. He said that was coming from people who had no clue because the bottom line was Vincent Mann made all the final decisions. Yes, that's true. But you're telling me that Vince cannot be influenced? Nobody said Hunter made the decisions, but he does in influence the decisions. Yeah. Well, funny this comes up. A KWF source denies rumors of backstage political problems. This is in the torch. torch. The source reports that Triple H and Steve Austin have been easy to work with despite rumblings to the contrary. There's never been less politics in the history of WF, said the source. Triple H, Austin, Undertaker, they're all being totally cooperative and have not been campaigning for anything. Other sources say that the entire point of having Jeff Hardy joined in Continental Time about the Triple H recently was to establish that Hardy isn't at Triple H's level yet, with the keyword being yet. I'll put it this way. Yeah. If there were no backstage political problems at the moment, the post-WrestleMania main event would not have been Austin and Triple H versus Undertaker and Kane. They would have tried <laughs> to build someone up for a singles match with Austin. Yes. Same with the tourist. There are no plans to abandon Steve Austin's heel turn. The officials are happy with it up to this point. Well, the long-term plan seems to be turned Triple H babyface. There are no plans to do so in the immediate future. The officials think it would be a mistake to turn Triple H prior to The Rock making his babyface return. Okay. Well, yeah, we can't, can't have that. So that means that while well, they started to go in that direction, the plan was not for Triple H to turn until at least the fall. Yes. Once they decided they were maybe going to turn him. Again. Yeah. WS still has a contact with Shawn Michaels to send him home right for WrestleMania. Jim Ross has been placed in charge of presenting Michaels with his options, which includes getting his professional help for his problems, or he won't be welcome back. You know, it's always weird to look back at the times where they're just explicit in the newsletters, like, oh yeah, this guy has a drug problem. But it's also amazing that how much of a difference a year made. And he never got because treatment, of... though. That's the no. thing. Yeah. I mean, look. He just quit cold turkey. I mean, look, religion has clearly worked for that guy. Yeah. And, you know, whatever people's opinions are about certain organized religious groups, you know, the stories we always hear from people who go to, like, his church appearances and stuff is that he is very much a live-and-let-live type. You know, it is not a toxic brand of religion. So, and it worked for him? I mean, I, I gotta think, if he didn't go to rehab... You know, look, obviously AA and stuff is not the only way, but like, 
presumably hasn't gone to a meeting or anything in his life, and as far as we know, has been completely sober for over 20 years. Well, not completely, actually, because there were the stories about Flair getting him to drink again. Yeah, but it wasn't anything that turned into an issue. clearly didn't get out of control, no. No, when Jericho's drinking was getting worse, you know, it was uh, Michaels who dressed him down. Yeah. <laughs> he need to be around them more in recent years. <laughs> well, you know, and also, though, like, I think it is the right move these days. Like, I, we wouldn't get reporting like this if something like this happened now. And no. I think that's probably for the best. Yeah. Like, with... In some cases, like, if it becomes obvious, I get it to a point, if someone has, runs with the law, of course, that it is probably for the better that we're not hearing everyone's dirty laundry with regards to their drug issues in the, in, in the dirt sheets, like we used to, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, with Michaels, you know, there had been certain things previously, like, you know, the police report for Syracuse talks about him being passed out in the car. You know, there's stuff like that, which is fair game. But I think the shift that there has been has been for the better. Yeah. All right. China's move to the women's division away from wrestling men was done because of her change to a more feminine image. Although she would have preferred to keep working with men, it wasn't feasible with her new image. There no, you go. I mean, in the context of 2001 WWF, no, she would not have. She would not have looked credible. There you go. All right, Figure for Weekly has some notes from the Ross report. He said Ron probably be back this summer. He talked about a strip UPW show on Wednesday, put over promoter Rick Bassman and the rest of the crew for being hard, very hard workers. He really put over John Heidenreich and Nathan Jones. Mm-hmm. He said he hoped to see Tommy Dreamer as part of either WCW soon. He said Victoria was coming along, and her bout with Molly at the show was not a bad match. Good rib. <laughs> he also said Nova had an excellent match. He said he thought Josh Wilcox might be a good prospect for WCW this summer, and they'd be discussing the possibility of him in the coming weeks. She had a very positive meeting with Rob Van Dam and his reps. He's young, healthy, and I hope that out of that meeting last week in L.A. that we will come to terms with Rob, whether it be in WCW or the WWF. That, combined with the fact that they mentioned his name on the pay-per-view Sunday, indicates a strong chance he'll be coming in. In regards to injuries, Rikishi has been cleared to return from his eardrum injury. Kurt Angle suffered a stinger on last week's Raw, but didn't miss any action. Saturn injured his forearms on the ring steps at SmackDown Tavens, so X-Ray came out negative, and he worked through the pain. Regal suffered a minor shoulder dislocation on SmackDown when the Dragon Suplex with Benoit. And Hyper's in his elbow. Clearly, he's still working. Eddie Guerrero's elbow has been bothering him, but he won't miss any in-ring action. K-Quick pulled the muscle on his back. Sky Too Hot, has no return date except from his neck injury, and we'll be seeing orthopedic specialist on Friday. Rodney strained his knee. Shooter Schultz just had double hernia surgery in the last few months. Hardcore kid from UPW about six weeks with back surgery. <laughs> this is stuff also you don't get anymore. This whole laundry list of injuries for people in the company. So there's that. Yeah. He said Kurt Angle will be in Dungeon Amateur Wrestling Hall of Fame this June and footage will air on WF television. Tough Enough finishes shooting on May 11th and the show begins on June 21st on MTV. He talked about SmackDown's 3.7 rating saying it beat both ABC and WB. Well, he was half right. It beat WB. He said changes we made in the town development program over the next few weeks. He said UPW and OVW were solid, and while Memphis was doing well, they reluctantly had to release Bobby Eaton. Don't know why. Well, we're about to find out. And he said IWA Puerto Rico was doing a terrific job. Okay, before we get to Eaton, though, 
Um, so yeah, at this point, we have OVW and Memphis Championship Wrestling as full-time developmental territories, UPW as a feeder where they would send talent, but also when they signed UPW guys, they were basically left to stay in UPW until they had a spot for them in one of the full-time territories, and IWA Puerto Rico, which is an affiliated promotion that is mostly autonomous, but will be sent wrestlers when needed. And that starts to constrict fairly soon. Um, so the UPW show, I'm surprised actually that we you didn't have the results, because we're recording out of order, in the indie section, but... Because it didn't take place during our week. Oh, that's why. Okay. Because I wanted to mention just real <laughs> quick, though. It's a place the day before our week started. That alleged really good match that Nova had. It was Nova and Kazarian against Edge and Christian. Yeah. Interesting match there. Yeah, that's why I mean, it wasn't in there. It was on the week before our week. The last day. Yeah, on the 25th. Yes. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Bobby Eaton. And we go to the torch. Bobby Eaton was released from his training duties at WF Developmental Territory in Memphis. In this week's Ross report, Jim Ross wrote they reluctantly released Eaton as a developmental trade in Memphis. Sort of school situation reported that Eaton had been at odds with Terry Golden, the owner of MCW, to the point that Eaton recently challenged Golden to a fight. Sort of school situation accused Golden of making life miserable for Eaton. One source notes that although Eaton was under the impression that he was in charge of his training facility, Golden refused to issue him keys to the building. The same source alleged that Golden had canceled wrestle workouts without informing Eaton. The feeling among people close to Eaton is that Golden wanted to replace Eaton with a friend of William Regal's from England, not David Taylor. So that's <clears throat> presumably Robbie Brookside. Probably. Although Regal lived with Golden throughout most of his stay last year in Memphis, Eaton does not believe Regal's behind the problems, as he and Regal have been friends for years. Sources allege that Golden was bothered by the fact that Eaton had been staying at the home of Power Pro Wrestling owner Randy Hales and helping him book television while Power Pro was still working for the WWF. Golden confronted Eaton and asked why he was helping Hales instead of writing MCW shows. Eaton claimed that Golden had never been asked for his, never asked him for his input. Eaton, since being dismissed as Memphis trainer, has been reassigned to WS Ohio Valley Wrestling. Since Eaton's release was announced, it's believed that many developmental workers who were working under him approached WF in his defense. By all accounts, Eaton was very popular with the trainees, with the exception of Spanky, who's considered a close ally of Terry Golden. Torch learned that Eaton was scheduled to start work for OVW on May 7th. Dwight believes OVW would be a better fit for Eaton because he'll be working closely with his former on-air manager Jim Cornette, who may also put in good work for him. Meanwhile, there are rumors that Golden's working relationship with may be coming to an end. In wake of those rumors, Ross indicated some changes are going to be made in the developmental process. I'm going to be spending a great deal of time in restructuring the infrastructure of our development pro developmental program in the next few weeks. He wrote his most recent website update. We'll be making some changes to help strengthen our program. And hopefully we'll be seeing better results and more superstars being evaluated in a more timely, systematic, and organized manner. After labeling OBW and UPW as solid, Ross said that MCW is doing well despite Eaton's release. Okay, I'm so confused. Is he released? Or is he just being reassigned? <clears throat> and if he's released, is he going to OVW on his own? He's released from, uh, I guess, his released from his duties in Memphis. Is released from his duties in Memphis and then reassigned to OBW. That's what that means. Then why why are we using the word released though? That's because weird. he's released from his duties in Memphis. Back. I know, but that's a, no that that is a common phrase. I know, where, but 
where where people would be released from their duties, but they're still employed by the organization, just reassigned to another part, another area. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, from the details we get here, it seems like Bobby's largely in the right on this. Yeah, I mean, I guess, as far as we know, yeah. You know, like, he's known Randy Hales for decades. But again, like, that's quote-unquote competition. No, 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 not at that point, it's not. In a way, it still is, no matter what, though. But they were, the same wrestlers were on bo- everyone's show. I yeah. know, but it's still... And there were storylines across both promotions. There's still that competition among the promoters, you know that. You know that. Now, granted, Power Pro was not actually a developmental promotion at the time, though. It was... It was just that because they were feuding with MCW, everyone was working both shows. For both promotions. Um, I mean, I get what you're saying, but it's still... At, at, at that time, it's kind of ridiculous to complain about that. Um, <sighs> Brookside, I believe, is around, so I, I have to think that's who's being talked about as the replacement. Maybe. Um, as far as what else here... Yeah, MCW's about to be done. Um, but that, it, you know, with HWA taking over its spot, which, you know, was such a weird move at the time, because, yes, they had a more of a school infrastructure... Because MCW didn't really, I guess at this point they have a facility, I don't know what it is, but for a long time the guys were training in Buddy Wayne's backyard. But, you know, they didn't have anywhere to shoot TV, they're not a territory, they're, you know, they weren't running regular shows, and more so after they got the developmental deal, but still, like, I, I don't think that was a positive move, though. What like, And I don't say that like as a negative on Les Thatcher or anything like that. I just think <clears> that as the two way the pr- two promotions were set up at the time, and certainly with as good a product as MCW was putting on, and they were putting on, a, I think, a better TV show to learn WWF style, I do think overall they made the wrong move. Yeah. All right. Um... Simon Diamond, this figure for weekly is telling people he signed the development of WWF and be working Memphis. Did he sign? And just no. get released right away? I don't think he ever signed. So why I think maybe he was going <laughs> yeah, I think he was going to sign, but it probably it just didn't happen. Because of WCW. Because of WCW and dropping Memphis, presumably. Yeah. Alright, back to the torch. Brock Lesnar and Shelton Benjamin are said to be two Ohio Valley wrestling wrestlers on development deals that are most ready to be major WF players. Lesnar has a better look, and he's only 22 years old. But both have made good impressions. They may be called up from Ohio Valley any time, but at first man wrestles every week in dark matches only, which is what happens. So, All right, SmackDown's being moved at 7 p.m. Thursday nights on the score in Canada, which is one hour earlier than the U.S. because UPN is available in Canada and cities near the border. The belief the score is losing some potential viewership by it being split. So score, which is partially owned by WWF, is hoping the move, that, well, the move will help increase the Canadian numbers. They also do a replay at 11 p.m. I forgot about that whole thing with them buying a minority share in the score after the IPO. Yeah. And when did that's that a end? smart move. Uh, I guess when the score ended. I don't know. It was a smart move that uh, to do that in that case. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Did that last just through the end of the score existing? 
pretty much of having its place in Canadian television taken up by uh, Sportsnet. Yeah. All right, interesting question is, does acquiring WF strengthen the network? The obvious answer is yes, in that Rawls ratings themselves are the highest rated regular show on cable except during football season. Last year in April, TNN averaged a .6 in primetime, and this year it's a 1.0. However, if you take two hours of Raw, the mix, the rest of TNN's primetime average is .55. In other words, it isn't the We Got Pop slogan or any other program as a team effort in the change in ratings. It's just adding to one specific show, which has zero carryover ratings for the rest of the network. That makes the entire difference in the ratings. USA was down 26% losing Raw, but their profits were up from last year, so it doesn't matter. TNT was down 21% losing Nitro, and TBS was down 12% losing Thunder. Eh? Hmm. Another sad example was been the theme of wrestling over the last several weeks was USA Network releasing their financial figures. You know, USA's network's ratings for themselves were down since losing programming. Their ad revenue and bottom line are doing better than this time last year, even with a softer market. Well, I mean, that goes into the ad race discussion we've talked about for a, a, a long time, mm-hmm. up until recent years. And, you know, up at, well, I mean, in recent years now, it's been a while. But until Stephanie McMahon became more of a presence behind the scenes and, and running the company, you know, that's when everything changed. And even then, like, there's still strides to be made, you know, like, they still have not landed a, you know, cell carrier sponsor that's actually one of the main car- carriers. They've, they're only able still to get, you know, Cricket is owned by AT&T, but they don't get mainline AT&T, you know. UFC, for a long time, I forget if it's changed now, was Metro PCS instead of T-Mobile. I think the only the only one that's actually had one of like the main post paid carrier was which one was it that was on AEW? Was it Sprint before the merger? Maybe. I don't remember. But yeah, it's like there are still ways to go, but they have car commercials, they have their K jewelers spots and stuff. You know. Oh, they got a lot of shit going on that they they didn't used to have. I mean, let's put it this way too. Even though it's not commercials. And that money doesn't go directly to WWE. What was it that they made in sponsorships on WrestleMania this year? $20 million? Yeah. All right, let's close out with this one from Figure Four Weekly. Daft.com puts a very intriguing con by a fellow named Seth Mates. Hey, we know going on, Going on and on about internet smarts and didn't know what they were talking about in regards to elevation of younger wrestlers. Ironically, there have been a whole bunch of internet columns recently, which may have been which have been running down the internet smart, which is really funny when you think about it. Seth claimed in the past year alone, no less than four Federation superstars have become main eventers: Chris Benoit, Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho, and Rikishi. His rationalization was that fully loaded almost a year ago, Hetro main event with Angle, Benoit, and Jericho all working matches. He did point out they all lost, but he said, "Would you rather have they won the opening match?" His list of main events for year 2000 went like this. Steve Austin, Mankind, The Raw, Triple H, Big Show, Undertaker, Kurt Angle, Kane, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, and Rikishi. Seth continued, Jeff Hardy pinned Triple H, and what was rightfully deemed an upset. The game reclaimed his title that Monday on Raw, as he should have. And you know what? Upsetting the game and then losing him on Raw did more for Jeff Hardy than with 1,000 matches against most Federation tag teams. Yeah, good one. I remember people using that justification of WCW, guys like Kidman. People claimed that Kidman got a rub just being in the ring with Hulk Hogan, even if Hogan made him look a fool throughout the match. Kind of like Hunter made Jeff Hardy look like a fool in their Raw match. 
Of course, that would mean all those mid-80s jobbers should have become huge superstars because they got the rub every night being squashed by the top stars. And I guess that means Red Rooster, Hibbley Jim, and Coco Beware were all main event superstars because they headlined Survivor Series in 1988. I remember when WCW started going downhill. Strange. Defensive editorials like this started appearing on WCW.com. What an odd coincidence. <laughs> and Seth Mates is still around today. Not in the company, but... No, but he's on, on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. And... Yeah fairly regularly tells some interesting stories about his time working for uh, World Wrestling Federation Entertainment. Yeah. So, <laughs> internet smarts. Yeah. So we had Hunter go off on those on those folks, and here's Seth Mates writing a column about it. So, that's uh, interesting. Interesting synergy. Oh, his current job, I didn't even realize this, is that he's the VP of Design and Strategy for Baseball America. There you go. All right. It's halftime already. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. long WF stuff. So after the break, we'll play some great 2001 commercials, then come back, and then we'll have uh, Japan. So we'll talk about uh, a wrestling war over the memory of Jumbo Sharuda. We have uh, Antonio Noki coming back in the U.S. where he negotiated with Mike Tyson, allegedly. Um all kinds of other news and views from Japan, including combats on wrestling in big Japan, all, all kinds of other indie shows, lots of indie shows and so much more after the break. It's a time for getting out, going places and having fun. We've got what you need to get there. The full line of Chevy cars. Lease a 2001 Chevy Malibu for as low as $229 a month with $1334 do it signing. Residency restrictions apply. Call for lease details. That's $229 a month on Malibu. So get out there and make your money count at your Chevy dealer today. Speed Pass from mobile. Now you can refuel inside the store, too. It's another way mobile keeps you ahead. Jerry's dating a lip reader. It's like having Superman for your friend. I know. It's like X-ray vision. On the next Seinfeld. Tonight at 11 on Fox 5. Trust no one. It's an all-new The X-Files. The X-Files is brought to you by the Intel Pentium 4 processor, the center of your digital world. Intel Pentium 4 processor, the center of your digital world. It's the hottest thing to ever come out of Taco Bell. Introducing the grilled stuffed burrito. El Benitez is hot. Yeah, but take away the grilled stuffed burrito and what do you got? Just another international swimsuit supermodel walking through a Taco Bell parking lot. 
Inside, it's sizzling with flavors melting together. Outside, grilled crispy and delicious. The new grilled stuffed burrito. Grilling makes it better inside and out. Hey, guys. That's one incredible burrito. You behave yourself, Angus. Rear seats that fold down to create over 67 cubic feet of cargo space and an all-too-convenient retractable tray table. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed all those great 2001 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment show. Where, yes, we had the new Patreon show up, patreon.com slash 20 sheets. We did the big plug at the beginning of the show. But, yes, we are talking about uh, 25 years of Ric Flair versus Eric Bischoff. So a lot of uh, fun stuff on that show. So everybody go check that out. And next month begins a two-part series on the look at Andrew McManus's WWA from the beginnings of I Generation to WWE All-Stars pay-per-views from all over the world, basically. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff as we go back 20 years to 20 years plus, really, but 2001, 2002, 2003. For an interesting time in wrestling history, an interesting promotion featuring a lot of big names came came down the pike working for them. So everybody check that out. Five dollars a month gets you access for that and all the other shows that we've done in our near seven full years of the Patreon now. Patreon.com slash twenty sheets. A hell of a bargain in my opinion. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this section, which we'll do in just a minute. Twenty five dollars lets you pick a show for the week. Now, make sure that you have other shows in mind just in case the show that you pick. Um, it could be something we've already done. We could have a conflict in the timeline. We're actually going through that right now, actually, uh, with, with one of our patrons. But we'll get it hammered out. But, um, yeah, so always get with us. Ask us questions. And we want to make sure that we can get whatever you want to talk about on the air. So, And there's reasons. You know, like I said, there's going to be something we've done already you may have forgotten about. Could be something that's taken up already in the calendar. Could be something that, uh, you know, just in various things. So do that, and we should be able to uh, get your show on the air. Always remember, you got the 30-day uh, rule. Get that information in 30 days for your show. Or more. Ten-year rule. Or more. At least 30 days. Ten-year rules in effect. You got the uh, Wednesday, Tuesday in a timeline, all that good stuff. So make sure you follow the protocol, get the information to us, and we should be able to get your show on the air. $50 as you said for a segment of the show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose at patreon.com slash 20sheets. And do not forget that, uh, yeah, we got the annual part of the, the pricing. So you can always go annual with us, which is 16% off of whatever pledge you put in. Yes. So you do that, you should be all right. All right, who is our new and returning guest this week, Bix? Or guests, uh, patrons, sorry. Well, they are our guests in some way. In a way. Yes. All right, we'd like to thank Joshua Dean. Thanks, Joshua. And then with uh, switching from monthly to annual, we've got Pat McGregor. Thanks, Pat. Then we've got Derek Austin. Thanks, Derek. Chris Jones. Thanks, Chris. And uh, switching from monthly to annual, Taro, past and yes. presumably future guest on the show. Yeah, good friend Taro, yes, of the 
Revolution Pro Group. We'll be talking about just a little bit later on the show. One of our, our good friends. So uh, thanks all of you new patrons, old patrons. Patrons that have been there from the beginning, left, came back. Patrons that have uh, all that come along the way. We thank all of you for being part of our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. All right, Bix. IWTV, Fight TV, what's going on with them? I mean, biggest thing on IWTV this week might be that we've got another All Japan Women update and includes both Dream Slams. That is correct. As well Big with, shows, major shows. Yeah, at least as of today, only three instead of the usual five, although the Dream Slams are long. Um, yeah. I mean, not as long as a USA Pro show, but long. Yeah. So they've put up the February 28th, 93 All Japan Women show, which includes... Uh, Toyota and Yamada against Takako Inoue and Yumiko Hota. Ajakan Keiru Ito against Beth Yoshinaka and Kyoko Inoue. Dan Malenko, Terry Power, and more. And then, yeah, the two uh, Dream Slams. They're, what, like a week or two apart? I mean, I know we just talked about one of them. But they're close, yeah. right? I mean, hold on. Yeah. I wasn't being responsive for a second. So, yeah, it's... April 2nd and April 11th, 93. Nine days apart. Yep. So Dream Slam 1, famous for the Akira Hokuto Shinobu Kandori match, which is the, I guess, not technically the main event, but is the singles main event of the card and considered in some circles to be the single greatest pro wrestling match of all time. It's definitely up there. And Dream Slam 2, which we talked about a few weeks ago, there it is, includes the rematch from Dream Rush the prior December for the Triple AA Tag Titles as Toyota and Yamada defend in a 2 out of 3 fall match against JWP's Dynamite Kansai and Mayumi Ozaki in a rematch of what is widely considered one of the greatest pro wrestling matches of all time. Yeah. So... You know, especially seeing it in the nice quality and all that. Yeah, you can check that out on IWTV. The, uh, it's still so weird to me. I have no idea who Ladies Ring is and why they own this stuff. But it, it's cool that it's on IWTV. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Can, anytime you got stuff like that going up on something like that, it's good, you know? Absolutely. Yes. We need more. Especially since that alleged official All Japan Women channel on YouTube seems like it's some bullshit. Well... <laughs> You've seen that, right? Uh, not really. It's a bit badly ripped VHS stuff so far. Well, with it's in pixel vision. With, oh, stop it. That wasn't a real thing. With poor quality graphics and stuff. But anyway, so that's up on On Demand on IWTV as part of the monthly uh, All Japan Women editions. And then as far as the live streams, I guess the main thing's coming up this week is that on... Uh, Saturday afternoon and eve and night, actually, I guess I should say, since eight o'clock. Uh, Tommy Fierro's Independent Superstars of Pro Wrestling makes its IWTV live stream debut. How about that? Yes, yes. Tommy has finally figured out better distribution than trading copies of them to everyone as trade bait, and then uh, building up his collection that way, as he did in uh, when was that two thousand ish? Yeah. When he just started emailing, like, every tape trader online. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see, do we have lineups or anything on the ISPW site? Because I don't see any on IWTV. Uh, 
I see the ticket link. Let's see if the ticket link has anything. Match was. Because uh, they have a show at 80s Wrestling Con during the day, and then they have the show at night. And come for the con, stay for the show. Let's see. Does it actually say what our matches are? Okay, yes, these are actually wrestling matches. They're using the convention graphics, so it's confusing. Oh my god, what a lineup we have. Snitsky versus Alpha Jr. <laughs> Dirty Dango versus Eugene. <laughs> um, I'm going to skip this one because it involves a certain uh, wrestler who may or may not believe some very inappropriate conspiracy theories. Uh, oh, there's a few of them. Danny. Is it Loki? No, the one in California. Oh, okay. Oh, speaking of wrestlers who believe conspiracy theories, uh, the former Danny Doring, Danny Morrison, is taking on Val Venus. <laughs> um, there's a three-way between the powers of the pain, the headbangers, and whoever the now are. Uh, Chris Candido gets inducted into the ISPW Hall of Fame. I have no idea what some of this stuff is supposed to be. Oh, there's a rumble of some kind. Great. Okay. I mean, it, well, it certainly feels like an ISPW show, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like a old school '90s uh, Northeast indie featuring old WWE names, WF names back then. Oh, okay. Here's a match that'll actually be conventionally good. That's in the bottom corner for some reason. Uh, Harry Smith taking on Crowbar. Yes. Name people. Uh, and now uh, let me see. Can I? What's on this other show that they're running on? Uh, the Saturday, or do they... Okay. Yeah, they're making this very confusing. Okay, this says this says 6 p.m. start. So maybe the convention stream is just going to be stuff at the convention and not the card? Because they have separate con separate streams for rock and wrestling in the convention? Yeah, okay. So yeah, I have no idea what that'll involve, if there's going to be panels or anything, but that's going to be on IWTV. So... If you're not already an IWTV subscriber and you want to see the likes of uh, Crowbar, who, bringing his wife as his valet for the first time in a while, I can remember, uh, taking on Harry Smith, sign up for IWTV, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Where else can you see Alpha Jr. versus Snitsky and Dream Slam? I know. All right. Fight What's TV? up on Fight TV? I guess main thing next week is that GCW has their shows at Bamboozle Fest, which I guess since they're festival shows, they don't have any lineups or anything announced. Oh, okay. Which, you know, in this case, I don't think it's Brett forgetting he had shows, as he may have with other shows on other streaming services we talked about last year. Um, I think yeah. it's just, it's it's the festival gimmick. So. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember if any specific wrestlers have been advertised for these, but I'm sure it'll be fun. You know, different atmosphere. Always interesting to see how so certain wrestling shows come off in that environment. So, not already a Fight Plus subscriber, tinyurl.com slash btsfight, that's B-T-S-F-I-T-E, to sign up using our referral gimmick, and you can also use that URL for Fight TV pay-per-views as well. All right, today's episode Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access and America's number one virtual private network. You know, he's in Condita mode, your internet service provider, storing your browsing data, and many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. 
private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic to one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over that, shall we? We have three plans we offer you. You can get a regular monthly plan, eleven ninety-five a month. You can get a yearly plan of three dollars thirty-three cents a month for thirty-nine ninety-five a year. Or the best deal, three years plus four free months equals out to a dollar ninety-eight a month, eighty-three percent off, seventy-nine dollars first three years. Usually thereafter, what a bargain! And that's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you take advantage of the private Internet for thirty-day risk-free challenge. Try it out for thirty days, see if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. So you get that in US? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com/slash/betweenthesheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet. Completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1988. And we'll have quite the show as we have the end of the Midnight Rider angle. We'll talk about that. And we'll have all kinds of other clips and discussion from Jim Carr Promotions, including the Midnight Express ripping off an angle they did four years earlier. Barry Windham is a member of the Horseman, first promo on television. On TBS, that is. So we'll have that and much more. We got a big wedding in Japan to talk about. We got a New Japan big show featuring uh, interesting political ramifications. We got uh, kind of stuff in Lucha. We got a big show in Puerto Rico to talk about. We got a lot of clips from the U.S. Uh, We got stuff from USA Wrestling in Knoxville to talk about. We got stuff from Continental to talk about. We got... Uh, Memphis to talk about, which is Jerry the King Lawler, 35th anniversary, winning the AEW whatever it's off from Kurt Henning. So we got a lot of clips on that one and uh, discussion. Then world class, we got the Parade of Champions show to talk about. We got clips from that and uh, all kinds of other stuff going on. The promotional war in Portland, we got the stuff on that. Billy Jack Kane's up in his promotion. And we're also Federation. They got an article in Variety Magazine about their television business. So we'll talk about that. We got some house shows, a few clips from there. And in Canada, we got Owen Hart losing the North American Airway title, the Muck and Sing, and on his way out. And what is Stampy going to do with Owen Hart gone to Japan? Possibly for good. All that and more next week with our special guest, as he's confirmed now. Returning the infamous Robert O'Connor next week on Between the Sheets. I'll need to get our uh, legal representation. In <laughs> we have a lot of interesting stuff on this show to talk about. That's for sure. Yeah, and all I right. Understand uh, why you didn't group the OWF with the WWF, though? Being the, you know, well, as we know, the OWF is the only regional promotion that works with the World Wrestling Federation. After all, w- both of their names have Wrestling Federation. Yeah. But anyway, all right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R, show proper at BTC Spot, Big Set, David Bix. And Bix, I know you're laying low right now. Nothing's going on in your world, right? Nothing too major, no. But I, I know you wanted to talk about something that I read over uh, the day before we were recording this, the uh, lawsuit uh, filed against the World Wrestling Entertainment this week. 
I mean, really, should we be shocked? But the thing, the thing is, though, I mean, is we know, you know, the track record they've had. And the main thing is the, the writers involved in this one was Ryan Callahan and Mike Heller. Um, Ryan, Ryan Callahan, Callahan, who previously got fired for uh, his disagreements with Dave Kapoor and then rehired a few months later. And he's the vice president of SmackDown. Which is apparently a thing. Yes. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of racial stereotype stuff in there. I mean, it's it's the one about Mansoor, Mansoir, doing the uh, 9-11 thing is just so ridiculous to even comprehend that that would come out of somebody's mouth. Right. Especially when the guy was six years old. Yeah, I mean, when that happened. Even if it's thrown out as a joke, that's not something you should say. Yeah, and 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 and, and I kind of think that they were going to set that up to be an angle as a joke because it would have been so completely obvious that this dude was a child when it happened. But still, to have that even think like that in your head, don't you? Let's 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 uh, joke about nine eleven. Well, but also doing it while you have someone on your roster who lost her dad in 9-11. Yeah, it was all part of a love triangle between Mansois, Aaliyah, and Angel Garza, which, that's interesting, the thing about that whole deal. I mean, and, and just this other stuff, too, you know, I mean, if you don't know, I mean, you, it's easy to tell with I mean, some, with for, some and real quick, for those who haven't seen seen the story about this, basically a former WWE writer, Brittany Abrahams, sued alleging wrongful termination among other things saying she complained about stereotypical and racist storylines and they retaliated by firing her right after wrestlemania last year claiming that she broke company rules by taking home an abandoned uh, wrestlemania commemorative chair which, which i remember that i remember that story yeah i vaguely recalled it but it's like as she points out and as i'm pretty sure is the case like writers and other personnel take the the abandoned commemorative chairs home all the time i'm yeah i mean did you see the thing in my replies i think i quote tweeted it uh i think it was jeremy peoples saying that once he did some kind of media event touring the warehouse and they just told the media that were there yeah just any pay-per-view chairs that you want just take them (laughs) but i mean like one of the things she mentions though in the lawsuit is like Writers who, like, writers who wanted the chairs were even told, like, we will arrange to ship it to you so you don't have to put it in your luggage. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, you know, red herring for her being fired. Yes. And 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 she was, uh, I mean, how long has she been there? Uh, about a year and a half, including her time as a temp. Yeah. So... But what I was getting into was like, I mean, it's very obvious that WWE has issues booking minorities. Yes. I mean, it's extremely obvious. Um, Some more than others. Um, And and it's not just stereotypical in a way. They just, like Bianca Belair. I mean. They just don't seem to know how to market her. They don't know how to market her. Yeah. They really don't. And hopefully that will change now with Endeavor getting involved. But, I mean, we'll see. But they, she has, you know, 
she goes out and you know has these big elaborate entrances and she does stuff all the time outside of wrestling but the she thing is tons is that of media yeah yeah and maybe this new show she's doing with montez will get both of them you know broke out as you know bigger stars and all this and the street profits they've done well with in a way but there's been so many others that they've just they had no clue and the you know that's that happens and and it's not i mean women women in general recently the book of the women in general has been terrible and then what you expect when you when basically have a bunch of guys and mainly white guys doing the, the booking and writing yeah. for for something you, you, you gotta have different voices and, and, and different, you know, people at the table that can, you know, relate their real life experience or whatever to to something like that. You need to have that diversity. If you're gonna have a diverse group of talent, you need to have a diverse group of people writing. Right. And you know, <laughs> this came up with the whole thing last year when Kenise Mobley got hired, went on that podcast and then got fired. Um And they've had and it's not and, and they've had minority riders for for a while now, but it's just they don't break into the main part of the writing team. They're not the main riders. No. They're not they're the one the calling rocks. the shots. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I mean it's going to be interesting. I, mean, I and pretty much guarantee you this will end up as a settlement. Oh, I would think so. Yes. I mean, the even setting aside discovery, it seems like she saved a good amount of emails and Slack chats. But Ryan Callahan should definitely lose his fucking job. Yes. I mean, yeah, his name comes up more than anyone else, and it's like it's not just Mansoor did nine eleven. It's like let's have Shane Haste hunt Reggie and lock him in a cage. Oh, was it Reggie or Apollo Crews? No, that was Reggie. Okay. I, I was shocked with Apollo Crews that she mainly talked about the accent, or her and her lawyer, I guess, mainly yeah. talked about the accent. They didn't bring up the spear, which I kind of expected them to. Yeah, I mean, that that was insane, too. I mean, they just... It's no surprise to me that all this stuff has come out, what came out. I mean, good Lord, have you watched WF Television, WE Television? Since its existence, <laughs> I mean, I was listening to John and Waylet, you know, on their show last night on their Dynamite show. They talked about the lawsuit. Yeah, they mentioned like, yeah, Tazawa was still a ninja a year ago. Yeah, it seems it. It seems like some of this stuff has gotten better, but it's still a long way to go, especially with the women. Yes, got to get more people in there, especially women themselves as writers and people with creative influence for the women. Yes. And I don't see how hard it could be to, to have a separate writing crew for the women. Yes. How hard is that? Yeah. And we should mention with Bianca too, that in the lawsuit, it's alleged that like the promo line that Brittany Abrahams uh, objected to as being, you know, a negative stereotype and stuff. She claims that Bianca Belair then told her like, ugh. He tries to get me to say that every week and every time I tell him no about Ryan Callen. Yeah, so that dude needs to fucking go. <laughs> Just that simple. Get his ass out of there. Yeah. Here's to hoping that at least the pressure of a lawsuit leads to changes. Yeah. But again, I don't... 
with Vince still kind of being involved, even if he's not doing the day-to-day and the meetings and stuff, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have any positive expectations with that. Well, interesting. Vince isn't the, the be-all, end-all anymore, either. So you got a lawsuit like this. Ari Emanuel may want to get involved, or Mark Shapiro. Mm. I mean, this is a lawsuit. So we'll see. But... Yeah, it's gonna be this is gonna be one of the interesting things to follow with this, you know, endeavor ownership. So we will see. But uh, yeah, I'm not even I don't feel only feel like talking about CM Punk being backstage at Monday Night Raw because that was all a bunch of silly shit. So I mean, it seems like it was genuinely <laughs> one of the few times. Ta- like, seems like it was genuinely like a rare thing that actually led to it being kind of a. I don't necessarily think he did it as a publicity stunt because once we found out. Oh, he was flying back from doing commentary at a CFFC card. So he was flying out of Tampa and on the same flight as a bunch of the WWE guys. And he they talked and they convinced him to go. That does explain the why did he never go to any well, WWF shows part. That wasn't the only thing he was doing in Florida. He had oh. the meeting. The, 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 like I said on Twitter, he had the version of the Jimmy Carter... Uh, Middle East pe- uh, peace talks with Tony Khan and Chris Jericho. <laughs> oh my God, that's so fucking silly! Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, yeah, we're as I said, there's so much more punk shit coming. It's gonna be crazy, but yeah, yeah it is what it is. So, anyway, yeah. let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to Japan now, and we start with All Japan Pro Wrestling. The latest wrestling war battles over the memory of Jumbo Sharuda. Last week, Noah announced it's Sharuda Memorial Show on June the 10th in Sharuda's hometown of Yamanishi. To beat them to the punch, All Japan a few days later announced its first annual Jumbo Sharuda Memorial Show on May 20th at Cork and Hall. When Jumbo died, from all accounts, those who were friends with him, it was right at the time, and the, right at the, time the split was taking place. He was back in Mitsuharu Masawa making the split since he was politically removed from all Japan not all that long before his death. Well, isn't that something? <laughs> um, Masawa, you know, is a, you know one of Jumbo's protégés. And yeah, I could definitely see him taking that side, even though... You know, Fuchi, who's one of Jumbo's friends, is is in all Japan. But I guess that kind of also tells you what, what he possibly thinks about Motoko Baba. Oh, you think? <laughs> um, I mean, okay, so he retired officially in 99, died in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I get both of them doing it. He died in May 13, 2000. So he died before the split even happened. But when it was in motion, yeah. Well, yeah, when things were being talked about, yeah. I mean, as isn't it that the split was actually planned like a year in advance and Nippon TV told Masawa they needed to wait a year? In a way, yeah. So, I mean, it's... Look, one, one is All Japan, the other has taken basically all of all Japan with them. And right around this time is when they start on Nippon TV, who owns basically all of Jumbo's career. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't think either's in the wrong. This isn't like Puerto Rico where it gets dicey, which promotion's going to do a Bruiser Brody memorial show, depending on where uh, Jose Gonzalez is employed. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, how it was. But, you know, I mean, we could we could say what somebody may have thought, but don't know for sure, because sure. if they're not around, you really don't know. But, yeah, yeah. But there you go. I Van Piro is likely to start working here until his WCW deal has ended. But if this group, NOAA, and New Japan have interest in displaced WCW wrestlers and aren't going to wind up in WWF, particularly if that potentially be big names for the Japanese market. But Bagwell, who did really well in New Japan a few years back, is Scott Norton's tag partner, may be a wrestler like Scott Hall, who the WWF has no interest in and may make a regular career in Japan if he wants it. And Bagwell never went back. I gotta think he knew that he was such a different wrestler after the injury that it didn't make sense. It probably, well, I mean, they, who, I mean, who's to say that if they didn't want, want him, want him there, but I mean, still, I would have thought, I would have thought that, uh, he'd be somebody that they would be looking for just for the name, you know, and the history with Norton and put him in team 2000 or whatever. Yeah. But Vampiro does work, um, an all Japan tour, if I'm not mistaken. I think he does more than one. I mean, he. He's in through... Well, actually, wait. So at this point, Muto is about to win... Yeah, it's not Muto's promotion yet, so that's actually kind of interesting. He's not being brought in through Muto then, presumably. No. Uh, He works all Japan in 2001. He goes back in 2004. He's on on two tours. He's on the uh, Summer Action Series and then the Tag League in 2001. 2004, he works... uh, one show <laughs> at uh, Cork and Hall, which is interesting. And then he goes back, let's see, 2006. He does a few shows on the Flashing Tour. Yeah, he worked there less than I remembered. I thought he was there more through Mudo, but I guess not. And he was there in 2007, uh, working a few shows on the Holdout Tour. Hmm. In fact, beating Kawada in four minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> wow. I totally forgot about that one. Hmm. At Cork and Hall. Holy On shit. On the tour opener, too. Yeah. Yeah, Vampiro always seemed like the guy that would, that could have got a good, you know, solid run in Japan with the gimmick. But, um, he really didn't, which maybe it was hit. Maybe that was his decision. I don't know. So. No, wait, yeah. who's, whose entrance music is holdout? Is that Kojima? Uh, I don't remember. No, his is Rush. Who's holdout? I feel like because I'm, I'm feeling like there must be a theme here. Oh, Mudo. Mudo had a hold. Had one. Mudo's had so many themes. I wouldn't remember that. <laughs> okay, let's see which yeah. one holdout even is. Then I'm curious before we move on. Let's see. Yeah, I wouldn't even remember that one. Oh, so it's like the updated version of the classic Mudo. Or or was the original yeah. version called Holdout, too? It may have been. But yeah, okay. that's the Mudo thing. Okay. I always forget which is which name is which of which of them. Yeah, because he's had so many. 
And we got to hear so all of them at the retirement show. They had a medley of basically all yeah. of them. Yeah. Including Final Countdown. Yeah. But anyway. All right, as we continue. New Japan at the April 28th house show in Bipu. The main event saw Scott Hall and Masahiro Chono go over Keiji Muto and Tai Okea when Chono pinned Muto with the Yakuza kick, which is a, the politically easy finish. Any finisher regarding Kea has his political issues. After the match, Chono said that he, Tenzan, and Kojima are the big three in Team 2000 and challenged Muto to pick two partners for the Fukuoka Dome. And he picked Kea and Hiroshi Hase to set up a six-man match that we reported on last week here in The Observer. When the Observer reported on it, it had been announced, and it wasn't public knowledge in Japan until after this angle. And then Muto and Kea teamed up on April 29th at Nagasaki to beat Tenzan and Testo Shigoto. And then on the 30th, and Kokoshima beat Nagata and Yuji Nagata and Yutaka Yoshie. All right, uh, April 28th, 3300 in Beipu for this TV taping. Wataru Inoue over Kasushi Takamura in your opener. Robbie Rage over Hiroshi Tanahashi. Silver King over Shinya Makabe. Dr. Biden Jr., Silver King, and Kenneka Shen over Makabe doing double duty. El Samurai Minoru Tanaka. Jushin Thunder Liger over Katsuyori Shibata. Osawa Deshibura is Shiro Kosudaka over Michiyoshi Ohara and Hiro Saido. Yutaki Yoshie, Manama Nakanishi over Super J and Scott Norton. Nagana and Takashi Azuka over and Tetsumi Fujinami over Tatsushi Kodo, Hiroshi Tenzan, Kojima, and Holland Chono over Mudo and Kea. I forgot Silver King worked a uh, non-Super Juniors tour in 2001, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, for those who haven't seen it, especially, like whether it's his CMLL stuff, his New Japan stuff, you know, stuff in Monterey, that guy has one hell of a resurgence that year. He's one of the very best wrestlers in the world in 2001, Silver King. Yeah, because he hadn't had a chance to really showcase that in the previous few years. He got to do it again. Wide array of opponents, too, between Japan and Mexico. You know, he has yeah. good matches with everyone from, you know, the Japanese juniors to Chris Candido to all the CMLL headliners. You know, the top indie guys like Park. Like, he has a hell of a year. Yeah. All right, another show took place on May, May the 2nd in Tokuyama, which was Choshu's hometown before 3,400 fans. Choshi returned from his vacation in Saipad to trade for the Fukuoka Dome in Nagoyagawa and appeared in the main event, teaming with Nagata Nakanishi over Chono, Norton, and Tenzan when Choshu lariated all three guys, then tagged to Nagata who pinned Tenzan. They're now saying that Choshu suffered a broken rib during the match, but they never bothered to say it until six days later. Of course, it's after a week. Apparently, using his ex-post-match facto excuse for his uh, poor performance at the Fukuoka Dome. <laughs> Yes, that's a, that was an interesting deal. Muno and Kea beat uh, Micho Shohar and Stoshikojima. Silver King's not wrestling with identical white masks as his brother, Dr. Wally Jr. He's wearing it to the ring, but he's taking it off before he wrestles. Usually, yes. All right, full results of this show. Which are in a way of Katsuyori Shibata. Shinya Makabe over Hiroshi Tanahashi. Asama Nishimura over Robbie Rage. Testosha Goto Hirosaito over Asama Kido and Shiro Koshinaka. Kenakashin, Osamurai, Jushin the Liger, Silver King, Dr. Wanda Jr., Minoru Tanaka, Yutaki Yoshie, and Sakashi Suzuka, over Super J and Scott Hall, Muto and Kea over Oharan Kojima, and Nagata Dakadishi Toshu over Norton Chono and Tenzan. And someone else to talk about, too. Robbie Rage gets really good during his New Japan run. 
kind of a shame that he just kind of fizzles out. I don't. What happened? Did he get hurt? Um, he was working wild side as well. Um, I just think he just probably just gave up the business. You know, I mean, I don't know. Dan Devine too. I mean, some of these people just fade away. You know. <laughs> yeah, the only Ro- the only Robbie Rage uh, matches on New Japan World are from the High Voltage Tour in '98. Yeah, yeah. So they have Yoshie and Black Cat versus High Voltage, and the Freedom Dogs against High Voltage and Fujita. But be some Freedom Dogs, don't you? Uh huh. Well, you have Freedom Dogs on the first Thunder. You got to send uh, High Voltage over to Japan to wrestle the Freedom Dogs after. Yeah. Antonio Noki returned from the U.S. on April 30th with photos of Mike Tyson to prove his much joked about negotiations with him were real. <laughs> there was a photo of the two shaking hands and another of Noki with a choke on Tyson, both taken on April 27th in Las Vegas. Anoki says he's continuing to negotiate and would like to bring Tyson to Japan to appear at a pro wrestling show at either Sumo Hall or the Tokyo Dome, but not as a fighter since Tyson's on a full fight schedule again. That's basically similar to the real Hicks on Gracie story. On May 1st, the Tokyo newspaper reported in the front page story that Hickson versus Riki Choshu was finalized for the January 4th Tokyo Dome. It's not unusual for sports papers in Japan, particularly those coming pro wrestling, the old wrestling magazine stores in the U.S. to make up sensational sports headlines that are forgotten the next day. Anoki and Gracie have both met since both live in Los Angeles, and while the Grace family has hated pro wrestling since the 1950s, when pro wrestling was a huge deal in Brazil, it doesn't even exist there anymore. On television, Anoki has now worked with Henzo in pro wrestling, and the wall seen that broken down since Hickson's made so much money working with wrestlers. At this point, the belief is Hickson would be willing to appear in a New Japan Big Show, but would not do a pro wrestler match. This dude... <laughs> I mean, it's a, it was just constantly... When's Hickson going to show up in Pride? When's uh, Hickson going to show up in New Japan? Hickson, Hickson, Hickson. He's just like this... He's... <laughs> He's like the white whale. He's like Moby Dick. And and the Japanese wrestler promotions were Captain Ahab. You know? I mean, this was it was it was amazing for a, about a two or three year time span. Yeah. That this dude was so just coveted. And he never did anything. Yeah, I also do wonder like if his personal introduction to pro wrestling is not all the UWFI drama. Where to him, you know, he's not seeing it as traditional pro wrestling. And I, I want to say in one of the interviews, maybe with Rogan, he says he has no problem with pro wrestling, but he takes an issue with Takata acting like he's some big fighter challenging him when he's just a pro wrestler. Um, So, like, I do wonder if he would have been willing to do something, you know, like a New Japan Dome show, if that if his introduction to it was not a pro wrestler trying to posture as some real fighter who could beat him, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Try googling. I could not find any of the Tyson photos. I did find uh, what website is this? Global Training Report is this a boxing site. Uh. From is this Gong or Weekly Pro? Oh no, it's some other magazine. An interview with uh, Anoki and Sugar Ray Leonard where they talk about Tyson, among other topics, that's been translated from January 01, so a few months earlier. Hmm. 
That'd be an interesting uh, conversation, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's in English. It's fully translated. Uh, let's see, what's the sec- relevant section of this? Uh, oh, and they talk about Hicks in here, of course. Well. Uh, okay, I'll, re- I'll read this section then. Um, so Sugar Ray Leonard allegedly asked Santonio Inoki, if you buy that Sugar Ray Leonard is a fan of Pride in 2001... Which, I mean, it's on American pay-per-view already, so there is that. There's one thing I'd like to ask. What is the Pride Dream match that you'd like to see? Who against who? Personally, I would select Sakuraba versus Hicks and Gracie. There's really no other fight than that one, really. Hickson is a friend of mine, and I am teaching him how to box. He is the number one warrior, in my opinion. Oh, I'd love to see uh, what Professor Tanaka thinks of this over his video phone. <laughs> during this PWI press conference here. Um, Anoki says, That's true, isn't it? That would be a good one at that weight. Yet, there are also a lot of good big young fighters out there, such as Fujita and other pro wrestlers, who deserve a chance to show what they can do in pride and rings. Interesting that he says end rings there, too. So, Leonard says, Hickson and Sakuraba, will it take place? Well, Hickson doesn't fight very often, and he wants to select his opponent carefully. And Leonard says again, I'm a friend of Hickson, and the Hickson I know would never duck any opponent. A champion is someone who doesn't duck tough opponents. There may be a reason why Hickson is not fighting just now, but because he is a champion, he will fight at any time if his conditions are met. Then Hoki says it'll be like a dream, and they talk about... (laughs) <laughs> Sugar Ray Leonard talks about how much he loves them putting judicas and karatekas against each other and then finally Anoki says what do you think about a boxer getting it on in pride and Sugar Ray Leonard allegedly says I would like to see it especially Mike Tyson he has a tremendously powerful body and fights low to the ground in a crouch if he understands ground techniques he has the potential to win he also knows how to bite well and then he and Anoki both laugh <laughs> yeah, I'm sure all that happened. <laughs> Do we need to get Stu Sacks on the phone? <laughs> uh, yeah, possibly. They, I mean, they, I'm curious if there's more than one photo in the article, or if it's literally just this one photo of them shaking hands. Yeah. But it doesn't appear there's a wrestling magazine. It said it's taken from SRSDX. I don't know what that is. Sean Rossat Deluxe. Well, we have, we've had enough of our SRS confusion this week as we're recording. <laughs> oh, man. All right, uh, let's go to Pro Wrestling Noah. The first Mitsama-style defense of the GAC title will be May 18th for Sapporo against Akira Tawe. The match was first set up on April 26th at Corken Hall, where Misawa, Akito Seido, and Yoshinagawa beat Tawe, Junakiyama, and Junazumita. After the match, Tawe laid out both Misawa and Akiyama, the two biggest stars of the company with Norawas, a sumo move similar to a choke slam. They're also doing a history storyline, and that is almost exactly five years to the day, May 24th, 96, of Tawai's Triple Crown with Tawai went over Masao, which is also in Sapporo. Hey! Full results of the show. 2,100 fans of Cork and Hall. Satoru Saka over Kishin Kawabata. Kataro Shigo over Yoshino Kanamaru. Rush Kamura Mitsumamoto over uh, Shoshikakuchi and Haruka Egan. Takuma Sano over Makoto Hashi. Um... Wild 2, Takeshi Rikio and Takeshi Morishima over uh, Takashi Sakura and Namichi Marafuji. So all your Noah Young stars in that match. 
Team No Fear, Yoshiro Takayama and Takamura over Daisuke Akeda and Timon Honda, and then Misao Ogawa and Saito over Zamita, Akiyama, and Tawe. It looks like every other early Noah show. <laughs> yeah, 2001 is that era where Noah is kind of like getting shit on by the uh, American fans because they, they call it the most boring wrestling promotion around. Well, there's not really much flair to the booking yet. The They're not really doing much in the way of interpromotional stuff other than sending their guys to some of the early Zero One shows. Um, it's And they don't have any foreign talent yet, which, you know, we'll get to that in a second. But it just was, it didn't feel like it was worth watching, like in that era, at least with the Western fans. If you were seeing, you know, Marufuji and, you know, soon after this, Kenta, when he's still Kenta Kobayashi. Kenter. In, Kenter. Does he know China? We got uh, leader, leader in China earlier, so yeah, Kenter. Come into their own. You're seeing them probably for their matches in Zero uh, One against Takaiwa and Hoshikawa. Yeah. Yeah. So about those foreigners. Masao is coming to the U.S. in May for nine days to Scott Wrestlers to bring in his regulars now that he has television money to work with. He's supposed to, along with Vader, scout in Hawaii, Tennessee, Missouri, look at some Harley Race students in California. Oh, I'd love to see the uh, like a spe- Noah special of that. Yeah, I I have no idea who they would have been scouting in Hawaii. Well, or is that just was... a way of saying we're going to go to Hawaii on the way back, and <laughs> if there's any they're, wrestling they're there, a... we'll check it out. <laughs> well, I mean, they're doing a. Uh... They're scouting the beaches. That's what they're scouting in Hawaii. Visit with Ken and that Curtis. was Baba. That, and that and that's Baba's old, you know, home area. So yes, as a reminder to everyone, for what the last at least what twenty years, maybe more of his life. Yeah, maybe a, maybe a little less. Maybe it was like a decade to fifteen years when there weren't tours. Baba and Matoko lived in Hawaii. Yeah, they didn't live in Japan. Um, so, okay. I'm curious to see, like, who's the full first group of Noah foreigners? Because, uh, yeah, I remember Modest and Morgan. So I searched Modest Cade's match to find his first Noah appearance. So let's see, who else? Did they bring anyone else on the same tour? Okay, so we've got, so this is the July tour. Our first, okay, excuse me, accomplish our first navigation in 2001. So we've got Superstar Steve from Harley no, Races Sco- School. Scuba Steve, yes. Yes. Uh, oh, what's his real name, his last name that he used sometimes? Uh, Steve Fender. So Superstar Steve Fender, Bull Schmidt, mm-hmm. which he was also a Harley guy, right? Uh, he worked there. Yeah. Donovan Morgan and Michael Modest. And yes. And is there anyone else? Do we have Bison Smith yet? Scorpion Vader there. No, that's it. So that's your well, initial full tour of foreigners is those half dozen guys, including Scorpion Vader. And they would be regulars, all of them. So Yeah, and you know modest, you know, absolutely understandably, in his Indie Hall of Fame speech a few weeks ago made a point of thanking uh Masao and talking about how he changed his life. Which one of my favorite one of my favorite bits in the old DVDR chat room. Uh, 
especially it was uh, get CM Punk riled up about superstar Steve uh, constantly going to know why he couldn't go to, and then he as he couldn't go to Japan <laughs> he couldn't get a tour but superstar Steve could get it I, I just love picking at him <laughs> that's where the word scuba Steve came from that was his name for him scuba Steve well no scuba <laughs> Steve came from uh, I mean it was what was it it was the it was around the time where what movie was it Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou or something yeah yeah, that was that time too. Yeah. Steve. But also, yeah. I think it was based on what Steve Steve Fender's tights kind of having this pattern that looks similar to what you might see on a scuba suit. Yeah, it was, there were multiple facets to it. I used to love getting his ass worked up about that. <laughs> um, this group is ready to get their TV show on in both Taiwan and Korea. Well, good for them if they do. Right. Yeah, so. There is that. All right, zero one. There's a lot of talk, which in itself shows how desperate Shinya Hashimoto must be to do a Hashimoto versus Asushi Onita match for the main event on June 14th at Osaka Castle Hall. Onita has proven to be a ticket seller in dream matches, but the matches are always terrible. The Osaka show was to be built around the idea that the matches were shoots, but using Onita in the main event kills that concept. And I don't think Onita works that show, right? Oh, no. Onita, Onita when he comes in, he works with uh, Otani. Uh, and that's uh, down the line. That's not on that show. No. Uh, that that show yeah, is, I think it's a tag match. Uh, that's Shinkegi. Uh, Tom Howard. Yeah, it's Tom Howard in the, who he works. That's right. Tom Howard in the main event. And then you got Ogawa and Yoshitaka Fujiwara underneath. And Otani Murakami, which is an awesome match underneath that. Oh, King of Watanabe worked that show, Vix. So there's that. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I mean, it's this early in Zero One that all of the shows are Shingeki sponsored shows. And uh, we had the uh, Intercontinental Tag Title match of Keiji Sakoda and Samoa Joe beating Kasumi Osuda and Yuki Shikawa to win the uh, championships. So there you go. Ooh. And uh, what did I see? There was some name I found interesting. Now I don't remember what it was. But for those who don't know, the deal early on in Zero One Basically, at first with all the shows, and then as they started running tours more with the pay-per-views for a little while, but not long, was, I forget exactly what kind of company Shingeki was, but they were the sponsors of those early Zero One shows, and they were responsible for a lot of the random prize fighters and martial artists that would show up on the bigger Zero One shows at the time. Yeah. All right, Battle Arts. They ran Regatta Place Event Hall in Toda, not Regatta Le Blanc, on May the 1st. We have a common shooter super rider over Urban Ken. Takeshi Ono went to a 10-minute draw with Yukishikawa. And then this is Battle Arts, so we have pro wrestling rules matches. Kyoko Inoue over Yuka Nakamura, as we have some females on the show. Then Hideki Asaka Masato Tanaka over Mahamayone and Urban Ken. And in our main event... Kasumi Usuda and Alexander Otsuka over Yuka Shikawa and Hakoda Hadaka in your main event. Yeah. This is one of those shows that was part of some deal because the crowd listed. I didn't even put it in here because it was so funny. The crowd listed in attendance was over thirteen thousand fans. It was some kind of. It was at a festival of some kind. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or fair, or who knows what. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if this was any kind of TV taping or anything. I don't. It think was so. not. No. But. Tanaka, Masato Tanaka, does work a decent number of battle arts shows around this time as part of Complete Players. And yes. 
I think it's just a pro wrestling rules match, but like he and I think it was him and Ghetto against Ishikawa and Yone that headlines a show like within a month or two of this. And they have an absolutely tremendous, like just, you know, more traditional style tag match. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's most fun about 2001 really is just the complete players. Yeah, they're all over it. They're in every I mean, promotion, basically. In some form or fashion. Yeah, you know, not as much, not necessarily in Noah or all Japan, but they're, they show up basically everywhere else. You know, and that would be, just for those who don't know, so that would be Tanaka, Hosaka, Jado, Ghetto, and uh, Kori Nakayama. Yeah, and also the, the affiliations with the other... Uh, Far East Connection. Other, yeah, 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 yeah to, and Kanemura. Team 2000. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. All right, uh, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. And we start off with April Weekly. Big Japan began their deathmatch tournament on April 28th at Kish- Kishima Municipal Gym, drawing and announced 1,323 fans. Brian believes every match has a different deathish stipulation. In a first-round match under Barbara deathmatch rules, Kamikaze beat Jun Kasai in 22 minutes with a Big Japan special. Look at how far this stup- his stupid 30-foot dive and crazy bone and tricep exposing bloodbath two weeks ago got Kasai. Not even to the second round of the goddamn Beach of Pandemic Tournament. <laughs> yes, this is right after that. That that is something. That's one of the first big. I don't know if I say. I guess viral Japanese wrestling moments online is the Jun Kasai spot. Yeah. You know. Because people share would share videos, random video like like uh, like a Kenakabashi doing like a backdrop driver or something, but that spot right there was like the one of the very very first viral wrestling videos from Japan. Mm-hmm. Crazy, and <laughs> didn't get past first round of tournament. All right, uh, full results of this show: Fantastic over Naoki Numazawa, Hiromi Yagi over Marcella. Uh, Takakuba Benke and Abdul Kobayashi over Men's Club, Men's Tail and Rujido. Zandig over Shumi Masazaki. Mm. White Beater, Justice Payne and Man Man Pondo over Shadow WX, The Winger and Daisuke Sakamoto. And then Kamikaze over Junkasai in the main event. Then the next day in Corkin, we have Neo representation, Bix. Yoshiko Tamura over Marcella. Mm-hmm. Justice Payne over Fantastic. Kamikaze, Takakuba Benke, and Shumi Masazaki over men's club members, men's Teo, Daisuke Sakamoto, and Rujido. Then more tournament matches here. Round round one match, Barbar Board Deathmatch, Winger over Shadow WX. And then Barbar Board and Strap Deathmatch, Katara Kanamura over Abdullah Kobayashi. And there's a regular weapons deathmatch, members of the big deals, Zandig and Jun Kasai over White Beater and Mad Man Pondo. Sure. A lovely era of... Uh, Bitch fan pro wrestling. <laughs> like we said a million times when we end up doing this era, the CCW guys were just too green for this spot. And pushed too hard. Yeah. It, I mean, you want to, I mean, you want to talk about bitching the Western big Japan fan, the big Japan fans here in Western civilization. They hated all this so much. Hate it. Cause Hama and Yamakawa became the big guys. And then, once CCW gets involved, they just get buried, and yeah. Yamakawa was nearly killed. Yeah, so big issues. 
right, DDT. They ran Kitazawa Town Hall on April 29th for 294 fans. And take, they take the Royal Tournament going on here. We have Tomohiro Ishii over Issei Fujisawa. Tomoko Hashimoto over Black Showa. Takashi, Asaki, Takashi Sasaki over Ritsu Mekawa. Hebekaji over Budumamushi. Not Bullet of the Woods, but Budumamushi. Poison Sawada Julie over Chitoro Kamoi, which led into an Iron Man Heavy Metal title match where Jakaibo Hebider over Pete Chitoro Kamoi. Then back to the Take the World Tournament, Sanshiro Takagi, president, over Exciting Yoshida. Then we have Makami over Tanamasakotoba. And then our final round one match on this day, Super Uchu Power over Kanaka Man. By the way, you have no idea how disheartening it was to learn that the Japanese Star of David is not necessarily the Star of David. <laughs> and Kanaka Man, uh, yes, is part of the cam- the camera. So there's that. Our kid is out of Town Hall on the 29th in front of 294. The tournament continues. Round two matches, Mikami over Takashi Sasaki. Poison Sawada Julie over Hebakaji. Chitor Kamoi over Jakaibo Hebider for the Arabe Heavyweight title. Super Ucha Power over Tomiko Hashimoto. Shishiro Takagi over Tomohiro Ishii. Exciting Yoshida and Chitor Kamoi over Tanama Sakatoba and Black Showa. Yeah, semi-final match. This is Poison Sawada beats Takagi. Then we have Mikami over Super Ucha Power. And then Mikami over Poison Sawada Julie. Mikami's the ace at the time. He's the young star, yes. The spotlight's on him. Yes. Is uh, you got the Jeff you got the Jeff Hardy look kind of thing going yes. on. So Is is taking the Royal like seizing the tactics? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. FMW, they ran Sue Citizen Gym on April thirtieth for a twenty four hundred. So Makazu Morita went to a 50-minute draw with Yoshida Sasaki. Shinjuku Same over Bunji Takada. Then we get this match. Hisakatsu Oya and Tarek Pasuka over Riki Fuji and Flying Kid Ichihara. Who's Tarek Pasuka? Think about it. Oh, Tarek the Great? Tarek the Great! <laughs> Is that his That's real right. name? I guess... Then we have Kyoko Inoue over Amy Murakawa. German and Onro over Baba Sasaki. Narihiro Yamasaki. And then Koto Fuyuki, Katara Kanamura, and Shokaba Mokai over Tetsuya Kuroda, Mr. Kanasuke, and Azusa Kudo. Hmm. Tarek is a guy who would have a different career if he came along 10 years later. Much different career. And Azusa Kudo is, uh, for those who don't know, that's Kusaku Goshikawara without the Gosh- Kosaka Goshikawara gimmick. Right. So, yeah. All right, Michinoku Pro Wrestling. They ran a couple of shows here that's interesting. Fukushima City Gym on April 28th. We have Yashiro Yurano over High 69. Kazuya Washa over Chinen Hakai. Tiger Mask 4 over Fujin. Jinsei Shinzaki over Subo Genjin. Gato, Pentagon Black, and Superboy over Grand Hamada de Togo and Hideki Nishida. And then Grace Sasuke retained the NBA middleweight title, beating Chad Collier, hmm. Metal Master. Then we go to Nagata Faye, Sunday, April 29th. High 69 over Yashiro Urano. Pentagon, Black over Subo Genjin. Gato and Fujin over Kazuya Yawashi and Hideki Nishida. Then we had a P-Mix, 
Grand Prix. Oh, I love how Cage Match has this because of it, they just all happen to also be in that group. Grand Hamada and Ayaka Hamada listed as La Leonestranera when they were Mexico over Chad Collier and Bionic J. And then our main event, Jin Station Zaki and Dick Togo over Great Sasuke and Tucker Mass 4. Yeah, this is a callback to the last show we did from this era. P-Mix was the good mixed tag team tournament that was the, had the serious uh, like intergender and all that. King and yeah. Queen was the one that was all Yuki Ishikawa doing pervert spots. <laughs> yes. Osaka Pro Wrestling. No perversion here. April 29th at Izumi Citizen Gym in front of 574 fans. We have Super Demikin over Takashi Tachibana. Tsubasa over Shusakawada. Black Buffalo over King Otakai. Osaka Tag Festival, round one match. Dial Qualt and Gamma over Azteca and Diablo, representing Kakegi. And then Kachimbo Kamen, Ka- Kaiju Zetamandora, and Super Delphin over Ebison, Takashi Tachibana, and Takara Murahama. So there is Osaka Pro. Torimon. Couple shows here. Gifu Industrial Hong for April 26th, front 1050. Tomohiro Ishii over Genki Horiguchi. Shima over Saito. All caps. Dragon Kid and Kenichiro Arai over Yasushi Kanda and Suzu Mochizuki. Then uh, Masaki Mochizuki's Strongest Legends second match for the British Strong Kama Junior Heavyweight title. He retained his title over Darkness Dragon. And then Suwa, Big Fuji, and Taru, Crazy Max beat Man in Tokyo, Rio Sato, and Stalker Shikawa. Now, three days later, Kobe Chicken George in front of 400 fans. We get a five-way match. Number one contender for the NBA World Butterweight title. That's Susumu Mochizuki beat Darkness Dragon, Dragon Kid, Genki Horiguchi, and Saito. There was Suwa over Stoker Ishikawa. Shima, Big Fuji, and Taru over Man in Tokyo, Kenichiro, Ryan Ryo Saito. And then Mochizuki in the third match of his deal retained his title again, beating Yoshishi Kanda. Any thoughts? I mean... It's the 2001 Torimon show. Yeah, good stuff. It's good stuff. Good it stuff. just it, it just it runs together. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, there's all, all the same guys. Yeah, they haven't done any uh, changeovers yet. So yeah, yep. you know, back in the day, a lot of the time, I would take I would take breaks from watching Torimon because I felt like it would start to run together, and then like I would come back, especially once they started cycling guys in and out of different groups then i would kind of come back for for a few months and take a break for a few months again just because it could just kind of run together and get kind of despite the wrestling being as good as it was it could just feel kind of samey after a while yeah you know a lot of time in this era i preferred to watch the Torimon guys at mishinoku pro they were really going there as much as 2001. They weren't, no. That was it. That, that had been agenda. In 99 yeah. and 2000, to a point. Yeah. All right. Exactly where pride and traditional pro wrestling separate got more blurry with the announcement of Kazuki Fujita versus Yoshiro Takayama on May 27th, Yokohama Arena with Takayama at the press conference announcing a match. Saying he wants to IWGP. wants to tie IWG Championship on the line. As the storyline goes to Fujinami New Japan, it's against that WGB title being put on the line of the prize show. Takayama's going to work Noah's house show scheduled on May, while Fujita won't be working on the Fukuoka Dome. Won't, while, Fuji, while Fujita won't even work the Fukuoka Dome. Fujita's, however, said not be leaving for California, where he would does most of his training, because he suffered a left knee injury in his Osaka Dome match against Scott Norton. Well, I mean, it's pride. These guys... 
they're coming in and they're working these shows because of their name from wrestling. How are we defining working? <laughs> take it any way you want to take it. I'll leave it at that. So, yeah. All right, Joshi. Ultraman Women's Zenjo. They ran Ukita number two apartment in Tokyo. Yes, we have apartment wrestling in Zenjo, Bix. Kamiko Mekawa over sure Kyoto. that's what that place is? It's his apartment. <laughs> what it said I, I'm going to Google the phrase Ukita number two apartment <laughs> see if I get anything other than cage match listings. Kamiko Mekawa over Kayonomi. Nani Takahashi over Miki Fuji. Karuito over Momo Nakanishi in an apartment. And Yumiko Hota, Manami Toyota over Tomoko Watanabe and Miho Wakazawa. It looks like it's an apartment <laughs> complex. <laughs> it's apartment wrestling. No, it's apartment in wrestling the, in, if it's in an apartment. Still. It's st- it doesn't matter to me. If it's in like the it's still apartment of an apartment complex, it's not apartment wrestling. Yeah, but it's an apartment building. So I'm trying to figure wrestling. out what the heck the, fi- the venue is here. Is it... Because it doesn't look like there's really a courtyard or anything. I'm just trying to... I'm just picturing Momo Nakanishi in apartment wrestling, that's all. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm going <laughs> to leave that alone. Imagine the 70s wrestling magazine's headlines uh, on a Japanese women's show taking place in apartments. I... I'm sure it'd be all kinds of uh, wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't even want to bother... With anything here. <laughs> All right, RCN. They ran Cork and Hall, an upstanding building on April 3rd, 1350. They didn't draw too well, but still. They had the ARS tournament, and no, not the Atlanta Rhythm section. Uh, quarterfinals Gami over Rie Tamada. Ayako Amada over Hiromi Yagi. Michiko Omakai over Mariko Shida. Bonnie J over Reina Takasi. Then we had semifinals where Omakai beat Bonnie J. Gami beat Ayako Amada. In the finals, Omakai beat Gami to win the tournament. So there you go. Gaia. Gaia is by far the number one women's promotion in the world, Dave said. They ran a major show on April 29th at Kawasaki City Gym in front of 4,000 fans. Did the unique main event booking with four singles matches, all involving Hall of Fame legends. And in every case, the Hall of Famer went down clean. So the opposite of booking everyone else does. Chigusa Nagaya, who's injured shoulder so injured her shoulder so badly she needs surgery, she still went through her match with Triple AW champ Mayumi Ozaki in the main event. Nagaya, who's in bad enough shape, they only did a six sixteen match, ending with an armbar submission. She had already scheduled surgery for this week. Mako Satamura, twenty one, it was one of the most promising younger wrestlers here, beat Akira Hokuto in twenty one thirty three by knockout in a no time match. The Masami sold an injury on Shikaya Nagashima to beat her by referee stoppage. Also, Kyoko anyway beat Linus Asuka clean. With the exception of Asuka, all the losers are going to be out of match for a while. Masami has a legit knee injury, and they use this match to tell that story. Hokuto's leaving wrestling for now. Resident Kensuke Saki is taking a few months off in New Japan. They're training on the U.S. for a year for a comeback. Oh, we know how that goes. Uh, so Hokuto's going to leave the country with her husband. Basically putting the less well-known wrestlers over the big names appears to be something forced by the circumstance, more than trying to put the opposite of everyone. Although guy has been real good over the past year at elevating young talent, Sotomora in particular. All right, results of this show, we have uh, Chikushin Nagai over Miyuki Maeda, Ashikawa Nakaru over Dama Kensai and Sushi Yamada, 
Kyoko Inoue over Linus Asuka. Shigai Nagashima over Devil Masami. Sonomura over Hiro Hoshido. Kira Hokuto, excuse me. I want to say Kentaro Hoshida for some reason. And then AAAW title, Mayumi Ozaki over Shikusha Nagayo. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty stacked show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of the better shows in company history, yes. Um, the big deal, though, here, and the most famous match on the card, certainly, is Hokuto Satomura, which kind of builds as a retirement match, kind of not. She does do another tour or two after this. Um quite possibly the greatest match in the history of this promotion, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, of all, like, you know, Gaia should be talked about more, but I feel like of all the matches in company history, this is, like, the one you hear talked about from, like, your newer Joshi fans. Yeah. And justifiably so. I mean, this is as good as Satomura already was. This... This is the match that really makes her as a breakout star and cements her as a top star. Yep, absolutely. Uh, let's go to another and end of the spectrum. Yeah, I was go just going to say, very easy to find online for anyone who wants to see it. I believe there's unofficial versions on YouTube and there's also an official version on the Gaia channel. Yeah. JD. They ran Corken Hall on April 29th. We have Obachi Azuka over at Chika- Chiaki Nishi. Super Terrors, Drake Muramatsu, Saya, and Kazuki over Hiroyo Muto, Sukimaru, and Chitoshi Yamamoto. Ram Maru, not Kobayashi Maru, over K- Kirome. Then we have uh, Chiaki Kashida losing her debut to Ayano Omori. Then we have Etsuko Mita beating Sachi Abe in her fifth anniversary match, Abe's. The Super Terrors members, the Bloody and Fang Suzuki, went to a, a no contest with Sumi Sakai and Megumi Yabashida. Inching with a title match for the Queen in the Ring title and AWF Women's title, the Bloody defeated Sumi Sakai to win the championship. Hmm. Fairly typical JD show of the era. I forget, have the Athresses debuted yet? Or is that later? This one, I think uh, Omori and Kashida are actresses. And there's like, there's like a group in Japan now that's known as Actress Pro Wrestling or something like that. That's, um, what's her face? Is that the, the one that got beat down in that weird, like, double cross in stardom? Um, uh, Act Asakawa. Yeah, so there you go. There's even a promotion of them now. Straight promotion. I think the idea is basically for her to be able to do pro wrestling without aggravating her injuries. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. All right, JWP, they ran the Ferriake on April 28th from 300 fans. We had Shabrita Sari over Kiryama. Kala Samana over Akutsai. Kuka Hariyama over Miho Watabe. Great Takeru over, over Asian Cougar. <laughs> there you go. Then you had Pico and Pika, all caps, over Yuki Miyazaki and Tsubasa Kurakagi. Kyoko Inoue over Ran Yuyu, and then our main event, Tsubasa Akagi, Haruyama, Haruyama, and Azumi Yuga over Akute Sai, Yuki Miyazaki, and Masai Genki, Bix, in a main event. I mean, DWP has some good wrestlers at this time. They do. They just yeah. also have some of the Neo wrestlers at times. Well, yeah. they, they get what they can do. I mean, it's interesting looking at this era, though, because, like, all Japan women is really the only one that just is kind of isn't really that interesting. Like, 
the others all have fairly, you know, good rosters. It's just all Japan women's had so much of an exodus to the other companies that it's kind of bare bones. Yep. All right. Well, that's it for Japan. It's halftime. Well, we've done halftime already, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. this is normal. This is normal when I do the halftime segment. So, um, I mean, we could, I could just cut it off there anyway. I mean, <laughs> eh, I'm not going to do that. Hey, I make a mistake. I leave it in there. You always want to cut yours out. So, um, so yeah. So, no halftime. Halftime's already happened. So, we'll move on with the rest of the show. All right, now let's go to uh, the North America, which we're re- well represented in this section. Let's start in Canada. Extreme Canadian Championship Wrestling running a show in Vancouver, Washington. Yes, I know it's America. <laughs> but it's a Canadian promotion. Well, but is Vancouver, Washington? It, well, Vancouver, Washington is near Portland, right? Yeah, but still, it's a Canadian promotion, so I left it in here. Oh, yeah. Oh, next for, yeah, normally you uh, put the, you're at the LA Lucha and stuff in the U.S. Indies. So. Yeah, I know. I know. But well, it's we a already Canadian recorded promotion. U.S. Indies, too. It's a, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all right. It's a Canadian promotion. Anyway, uh, April 20th in Vancouver, watched the Moondome already over Buddy Rose in your opening match. You know, Damon Skyfe over Little Nasty Boy. Wouldn't that be Damon Scythe? Scythe, Skyfe, whatever. Damon Skype. Disco, Disco Fury over Average Joe. <laughs> Not just Joe. Average Joe. Because mm. Joe Legend's just Joe. Yeah. Uh, Tony Cozina over Adam Firestorm. Christopher Daniels over Scotty Mack. It seems like some type of little tournament deal. Um, Disco Fury over Damon Seif. And then Tony Cozina over Christopher Daniels. Dr. Luther over Billy Two Eagles by disqualification. And a three-way for the Pacific Northwest Junior Heavyweight title. Scotty Mack defeated Disco Fury and Tony Cozina to win the match in the championship. Okay, so this is clearly some kind of tournament. Looks that way. Just not recorded as such. Yes. So what, was the, what is this, a nine? Wait, how did we get down to three? So we started with, wait, two, four, six, ten, twelve. Okay. Yeah. So we have a 12-man tournament. Or, or did I count wrong? I don't know. I don't care anymore. Let's move on. <laughs> well, there you go. All right, Mexico. Triple R, Pepinello Scalato won the Mexico National Midway title from Expecto Junior April 27th and Cuadratado at the TV taping. Billy Boy also beat Angel Matal in a Caballero Coach Caballero match on the show. Well, let's talk about that show. La Briosa, La Demoladora, and Marta Villalobos of Aldo Moreno, Cynthia Moreno, and Lady Apache. Chessman, Cuevo, Escoria, and Pentagon 2 over Charlemanson, Mayflowers, Ningman, Pacudo, Los Vatos Locos. Billy Boy of Angel Matal. Pimpy over Espectro, and then Heavy Metal, La Parker Jr., Latin Lover, and Mascara Sagrada, AAA version, over Abismo Negro, Cibernetico, Electro Shock, and Mascara Maligna. That would be uh, the Triple L group at the time, so there you go. Triple A taping. All right, CLL. A was headlined on 27 by El Satanico, Shocker, and Black Warrior of Ultimo Guerrero, Bestia Zavaje, and Mila Jr., by two straight DQ falls. First fall saw them unmask Warrior for DQ. They did three on two in the second falls. Warrior went to the back. They get a new mask. Emilio Lobo Satanico for the second half DQ. Four results of this one. Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Neutron. Neutron. And, 
and Olympus over Fugaz in San Cristeca by disqualification. Tigre Blanco, Ricky Marvin and Starman over Calificado Jr., Virus in Valentin Mayo, La Fiera, Tony Rivera and Felino over Veneno, Arcanjo de la Muerte and Rico Latino, Gigante Silva and Vianos 3 and 4 over Paul Date, Cel Signo, Blue Panther, Universal Smil, and Stanico Black Warrior and Shocker over Emilio Ultimo and Bestia by disqualification. Then we have Calcio on the 29th, Sunday show. Los Restapatillos over Inimigo Publico and Bugaz. Am- Amapala, La Diabolica, teamed up to beat Flor Metallica and La Andromeda. Mascara Magica, Olympus and Super Kendo over Damiana Guerrero, Guerrero de Futuro, and Mugger. Asheri Jr., Brazil de Oro, and Captain Lee over Mr. Mexico, Negano Navarro, and Feneno. And in one of the rare handicap matches where the the team that has the most guys won, Apollo Dates, Bupanta, Fazagrera, and Shocker over Gante Silva, Mr. Niebla, and Super Parca. April 30th in Guanajuato, Ricky Marvin beat Virus to uh, retain the Mexican National Lightweight title. These two are building towards a hair match, which doesn't happen. So there's that. In May 1st, in America Coliseo, we have Flesha and Zeta over Heke and Prisper Negro by disqualification. Brasil de Oro, Sicconcito Ramirez and Elises Jr. over Fiore, Sombrita and Vaquerito. Mascara Magra, Mascara Magica, excuse me. Mascara Magra, Mascara Magica, Ricky Marvin and Solar. Over Mr. Mexico, Valentin Mayo, and Virus. Then we have Felino and Vianos 3 and 4 over Io de Peroff. Oh, yes, the one that broke his leg. Veneno and Zabito. Oh, I forgot about him. Yeah, he saw it. And then we have Avondantes, Gramacus Jr., Mascara, Universal Desmil, beating Atlantis, Gigante Silva, and Tenebus Jr. Another one of those handicap matches. Ooh, that was a. That's a stinker right there. Uh, that aired on TV, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, wait, TNA bosses in a... <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of people in and out. Yeah, there's all kinds in and out at the time, yeah. Okay. I'm kind of surprised you didn't go with the Tiny Balls uh, name. For Tiny Balls Jr. I, it crossed my mind. <laughs> I'm sure it did. Um, on TV this week, which means last week in Mexico, they had a feature on Pedro Aguayo. They rush the angle super hard. They push the angle super hard, excuse me. It appears the guy that had legit neck surgery fix and a prior problem and a Liger bomb type move that Universal Meal did on him. The pay review was a storyline excuse for it. Or they're going to great lengths for an angle. He has a big scar on his neck. They could do it in makeup, and he looks like hell, which Dave guess he did anyway. They should x-rays of somebody's neck with some type of rod inserted into the neck. They called him an ex-luchador, but somehow devoted that much TV time to someone who was a part of the show called an ex. This is like it's one of those Hulk Hogan TV retirements. No, it's legitimate. <laughs> That's a legitimate deal. And I don't know why he called it a Liger Bomb. It was a pile driver. He sat with it. No, it was kind of a... Um, I mean, it was a, re- it was a regular it, pile driver. Yeah, it was the Martinet Negro. Well, no, 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 no. It was the... Uh, b- 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 not, no, Mar- not Martinete Negro. It was... Uh... Montilla Negro, Black Hammer. Martillo Negro, that's right. That's right. Sorry. The Black Hammer. You're right. So, yeah, a regular pile driver S deal, yes. Yes. And he, other than like one tag with his son a few years later where he can barely move, that's it for him. Yep. I think that's it. Oh, okay. There are a few. There are a few. There's, you know, there's yeah, four more matches not- technically after this. Yeah, there's the. There's the tag against Cien and Mascara and Mil in 05, so four years later. 
then a couple random shows where he's teaming with Blue Panther and Hector Garza and some eight man on on an FCW show with the LA Sports Arena in 07, which, geez. Okay. But you know what? I mean, credit to him. Uh, Universo became a much bigger single star out of this. Yeah. I mean, Pero put him over huge. You know, it's an illegal move, so it's not like he loses that much from him, but he, and he turned Universal Dos Mil into a hot heel and set up, you know, the feud that he had with Pero Jr., which was fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. IWRG, Rin Lacapon, April 26, TV, TV Night. We have uh, Eric Draven over Avisman. Nuevo Montefazateco and Sagrado over Black Star and Colt. Boom, boom. El Millonario. Not that one. El Millonario, Mega, Paramedico, and Super Mega over Coco Blanco, Coco Rojo, Coco Verde, and Caltacan Lee. El Dandy, Felino, and Super Parca over Duvante, Pampero, Vanal, and Serrano. And Scorpio Jr. retain the IWRG Intercontinental Heavyweight title, beating El Enterador. Not the WWE one. El Enterador? The Undertaker. Oh, pfft. That's right. Uh, Sunday, the 29th, I have Helene over La Sombra. Not Black that Star, one. No, Black Star, Colt, and Galaxia R2, and Guerrero C3 over Fantasy, Starboy, and Mega Super. No, Mega. you read that one completely wrong. What did I say? You acted like it was a, uh, Atomicos. It's too terrible. Oh, Fantasy, Starboy beat Mega Super Mega, sorry. And Black Star and Colt beat, uh, the droids. Yes. Coco Blanco, Coco Rojo, Coco Verde, of Serrano, Io de Diablo, and Menor Fujita. And then Bombero Fanal, Guardia, and Oficial over Rambo, Super Parker, and Tenebla Sr. Mm. And then we, then we have a special Tuesday sh- show on May 1st. Um, sounds like Dia de los Niños, which would have been the 30th, so there you go. Um, not Dia de los Niños, is that not 30th? What's on the April 30th? There's a holiday April 30th in Mexico, and I can't remember what it is. Mm. It's, it's not Dia de los Niños. Let's see. April 30th, Mexico. I'm looking. Oh, it is Dia, it's de, Dia de, los de los Niños. Niños. Yeah. That's right. I, that's right. I knew I was right. All right, May 1st, we have Catman and Catman 2 over Avisman 2 and Los Sombra. Then we have Black Star and Kamikaze over Avisman and Sensei. Fantasy, Nuevo Multifaceteco and Star Boy over Serrano, El Milenado and Panamedico. Coco Blanco, Coco, Rojo, Coco Verde over Negro Navarro, Ilde Diablo, and Guardia, and then Rambo defeated Oficial in a Caballero contra Caballero match. Yes. Uh, Sensei, definitely one of the last luchadors to have the very racist uh, Asian man masks. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think High Spot sold that mask. I remember, okay. I don't remember if they sold Sensei. The one I remember someone complaining about was that they sold the um, the Dako Chan mask from Mr. Noko. Yeah, Dako Chan, yes. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Monterey on May 1st. Crazy Demon Raiden over Akaro and Junior. Begale, Chujamar Junior and Hatana del Norte over Ben Hur, not Charlton Heston. Dartman and Maldito. Alan Stone and Los Orientales went in two over Jungle Nero Jr., Mongolchino Jr., and Super Vaquero. 
And then Cristo, Safari, Antonio Rivero, Bestia Salvaje, Diluvio Negro, one in Violencia. Oh, there you go. Right. We've got Los Orientales, too, at the same time as uh, Sensei. Yes. So we've got a lot of uh, unsavory masks at this time. Well, it is Mexico and is involved in the Japanese. So, uh, yes. There is that. Ever get to Mongol Chino have an offensive mask, too? <laughs> Maybe. All right. Tijuana. Time Warner officially sent word to Rey Mysterio Jr. He can no longer wrestle in Tijuana. So he missed the Ever 27 show, which is advertised as Rey, Nicho, and Neil DeSanto as a trio in the main event. Uh, with Nicho and Santo team coming off their hot uh, a match a few weeks ago against Cien Carlos, Moscano, and Rey Mysterio Sr. They drew another cell at 5,500 with Io uh, de Lismart replacing Rey. Now, on the show, his team won. Nietzsche was in the ring doing a first match dance when Juventud Hoop, Carrera, who wasn't even booked on the show, did a surprise run-in on him. The little bit of hair Nietzsche has grown back in the last few weeks is now dyed blue. To show how hot the CD is with three different promoters, promotion on his Baja California, promotion on his Mora, and AAA all run different Fridays at the Auditorio and all doing business. They even this week added the April 29th show at the Pelanique, a smaller building in Blossom Auditorio, and drew 2,500. For Redesco Jr. Atlantis La Fiera against Ray Mysterio Sr. Damian Cesar and Halloween La Familia de Tijuana. This show I'm talking about here, 5500 on the 27th. We have Neon and Extreme Tiger over Animac, Animaniac and Shamu. Guepardo, Silverstar, and Calibre over Mozambique, Mandingo, and Mazambala. Depredador and Highlander and Los Pandilleros 1 and 2 over Venom Black, Mr. Tempest, Prince Rondo, and Conquistador. Damiano Alamino was Park um, Brazil de Plata by disqualification. And then Santo Lismark Jr. Nietzsche over the Dinamitas, Cien Carlos, Mascar and Ray Mysterio Sr. Yeah, Tijuana, I mean, that's going to get more in that. There's a t- there's times there when you got four or five different motors all running that, that area, that building. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And which one was the one that did the shows that ended up being aired on Fox Sports' WWA? Was that... BC? Well, that, that would be Mora. That was Mora. If it's WWE, it's Mora, yeah. That's right, that's right, that's right. Then there's, uh, there was a time we had uh, Exlume, and uh, there's all kinds of other different motors that was running around then yes. in the early 2000s. They're working on a final paperwork to get Michael Monis and Chuck Palumbo to work for promotion in Baja California. Because of promotional rivalry, not getting proper paperwork could be a problem, as Sabu, when he worked there, was apparently given a lot of problems, and they've been waiting for Conan, who hasn't wrestled, but has done run-ins, do a run-in, but he hasn't been there of late. Even though they're there now almost every week, it said La Parca and Brazil de Plata doing the same comedy routines, are tearing the house down, and people are coming back for repeat business. Well, they know what they love. They know how to work, brother. All right, speaking of Tijuana, and this has come up on our show recently, we kind of got some clarification on this recently about Dave calling it Norte, California. Vix, you want to explain how Dave got confused? What it seems like it is, is that the northern part of Baja, California, that contains Tijuana and Mexicali, is sometimes referred to as Baja, California, Norte. Does that about sum it up? Mm-hmm. But that's right. So, yeah. I still don't know how he gets Norte, California out of that. Well. Because the name doesn't really make sense anyway, on its own. Yeah. Because Norte, California is where Dave is. Um, yeah. I mean, that would make what? Right? Well, that would make what? BC would be what? Sore, California, by that standard? <laughs> I guess. 
All right, uh, Puerto Rico, IWA, Ricky Banderas, again, IWA title from Glamour Boy Shane, number 28th in Guaynabo. This pretty much had to happen since they announced that, but since they booked Banderas for May 5th, FNW Big Show in the title defense. After the match, Jose Estrada announced a big surprise for the Star Corporation, their lead heels, will be coming next week. All right, the results from Guaynabo, we have Paparazzi over Yasuyurano, Yasu Yurano, Brian Madness <laughs> in Chicano, over Vizago and Pablo Marquez. Abad over Diabolico. And the Anderson over Super Crazy. Then we have Faron Zarux over Anarchy. Do you remember who Faron Zarux is? I looked it up because the name jumped out, but I couldn't remember who it was. No. It's uh, Miguel Perez Jr. There you go. He's going to a Pharaoh gimmick. Yeah, there you go. Phantom gimmick, maybe. Something like that. Uh, Uraka Castillo Jr. over Russ McCullough by disqualification. Okay. More by him in a minute. Cheeky Star and Victor the Bodyguard over Miguel Perez Jr. Nuevo Guanapalo. And Enrique Banderas won the IWA title over Gunboy Shane. Now, Brian Alvarez, a few weeks talked about Russ McCullough here. He's just getting a monster push here, getting squashed guys just minutes with a toe slam. Brian mentioned he saw McCullough on tape this weekend. People already said he looked like a cross between Kevin Nash and the Big Show. To Brian, he looked 100% like a skinny big show, facially. But wrestled in Nash's outfit and did all the moves. All the moves Nash used to do. So, he guess everyone was right. Okay. Well, I mean, McCullough was being talked about as an ex-Kevin Nash. Absolutely. Great. But that didn't happen. Because no. they bring him in. They bring him to the main roster a couple times. He flakes out. And they just get rid of him. Yeah. All right, uh, WC. WC business picked up over the past few weeks with uh, the return of Carlos Colon doing six person main events with Carlos, Carly, and Stacy Colon. Against Eric Gonzalez, Nene, and La Tigresa. Ah, yes, the lovely Stacy Colon. She would have been a hit in the uh, social media world, Vix. <laughs> well, they would have yeah. liked to have seen her. Thunder and Lightning regained the tag titles being Rico Suave and Eddie Watts on April 20th in Calle, which drew 2,000 fans. We have full results. Mr. Equis over Wilfredo Alejandro. Jodan Smith over Bouncer Bruno. Black Boy over Titan. Bad Boy Jeff Bradley over El Bronco. That would be uh, ODG Jeff Bradley, right? Dudley, Dudley. Yeah. Uh, and the Colognes over Rick Gonzalez, Nene, and Tegresa by DQ. Chris Grant Retained the TV title, beating Rhett's King. That Rhett's King. Invader 1 retained the Puerto Rico title, beating Fidel Sierra by disqualification. And then the uh, Thunder and Lightning dog title change over uh, Watts and Suave. It was a dog collar match. So there you go. Hmm. Eh, good on Eddie Watts, too, for continuing to find places to work full-time for someone who started so late in the uh, at the very end of there being territories and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's close out with the uh, other U.S. scene here. And let's start with New England Championship Wrestling. Massachusetts State Senator Bob Hedlund of Weymouth, Massachusetts, is doing the figurehead commission role for Sheldon Goldberg's New England Championship Wrestling. Hedlund is a longtime fan and asked for the spot. Goldberg was more skeptical of feeling Hedlund would take a lot of political flack for participating in pro wrestling angles. Hedlund disagreed, saying he felt ECW was clean, fun, and a positive version of pro wrestling, and if questioned, would say it doesn't have the negative aspects of the WWF product. 
Heather was said to have cut a good promo, but they're going to keep it his role low key. Hmm. Is Weymouth, Massachusetts next to uh, France, Massachusetts, Burn, Massachusetts, <laughs> Harrison, Massachusetts? I uh, Weymouth is in Norfolk County, okay, Massachusetts. You understand that I was just uh, making a talking heads reference, right? Tina Weymouth. I didn't know where you. I- Chris France, David Byrne, Jerry Harrison, Talking Heads, legendary alternative. I know the Talking Heads, but you. Yeah. I know Talking Heads, but you went way, way, way. I know. Uh, left field on that one. Maybe two people got what you did. Maybe two. And I sure, I'm sure they appreciate it. <laughs> All right, uh, it's like Northeast Massachusetts. All right, good time in Porham in Somerville, Massachusetts, on April 27th. We have the prototype of a Frank Kazarian. In a UPW offer match? Well, it's John Cena. He's home. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Kazarian's originally from New England, too, isn't he? Yeah. So, John Cena's home. Both of them All right, then home. we have an yeah. <laughs> yeah. ECW heavyweight title match. Brutal Bob Evans beat Slip Lander Brown to become the champion. Well. So quite interesting main, couple main events here. Yeah. At least the good guy prevailed in the main event. So, Yeah. All right, Jack Sabbath's ICW, or at this point in time, would be still UCW. Uh, uh, okay, wait, when it's did they April launch? 2001. It's April 2001. Right, the change so is until, um, like, September, later. I think. Yeah. yeah. Elks Lodge in New York City, April 28th, for the show called Suicidal Tendencies. We have Jimmy Payne over the shadow. Only the shadow knows. Low Rider went to a draw with Matt Stryker. That would be uh, Teach Northeast Mass Striker. Yeah. Chris Devine over Abadai. Brian XL went to a no contest with Frankie Stars. Oh, good Lord. Prodigy Tom Marquez beat Prince Nana. ICW Northeast Heavyweight title match. Joel Maximo went to a no contest with Red to retain his title. Storm and Norman beat Robbie McAllister. Not that Jack. One. I don't. Jack, Jack Sabbath over the new Dynamite Kid. Oh, boy. Kid Cruel over Mike Quackenbush. Boogaloo Lou over Damian Dragon. A three-way match saw the right connection. Danny Doring and Roadkill. Was Lance Wright their manager here? I Maybe. Guess Danny Doring and Roadkill be Angel and Homicide and the Hit Squad. Mafia Master Mac. And then ICW Heavyweight title. We have... Is this listed as a tag match? I'm assuming it's the ti- winner of the fall won the title. Oh, that's always outstanding. Mikey Whipwreck and Red defeated Xavier and Chris Devine. Where um, it doesn't say who won the cha- who was the new champion. I don't know. <laughs> so there you go. It don't say if Red won or Mikey won, but I'm guessing Red. Uh, tw- Twelve matches, huh? Sounds like a New York City indie show. Uh, par for the course. Yeah, par for of the cor- course. Well, and of course, this is on Frank Goodman's license too. So, yeah. Naturally. Um, I forgot that Jack had any matches at all in any form. Yeah. Um, New Dynamite Kid, uh, a deathmatch wrestler of sorts. Well, at least he didn't, uh, he didn't probably sell tickets for this show, so. Maybe. I mean, the ICW shows would get pared down, though, a bit as time went on. Some compared to the USA Pro shows, certainly, and overall a higher level of talent. Even though we do still have the likes of the of your Frankie Stars, uh, 
a new Dynamite Kid at this point. Yeah. NAWA, Bret Hart did a show on April 27th in Middletown, New York, for them, signing autographs with a big draw on a show that drew a 1,000 fans. Bret never appeared before the crowd, though, but signed in a tent. Nova versus Tony DeVito was the main event. The Backseat Boys against Donnie B and Rick Blay was said they stole the show with a four-and-a-quarter-star match. Also appearing, including Little Guido, Tiger Khan, used to headline Stampede, Chris Chatty, and Crowbar. All right, results. Crowbar over Inferno Kid. Rick Phoenix over Mike Bell. John Diamond over Mighty Finn. Bobcat over Janine. Ralph Mosca over Indestructible Sketch. Yes, we can't forget Ralph Mosca, Bix, in the uh, De Patera, De Mysterio crew. Uh, Don DiBiase. Don DiBiase. Ralph Mosca. Chris Chaddy over Judas Young. Vic Devine over Kevin Landry. Little Guido over Tiger Khan. Primo Cornier third over Damian Lee. Baxi Boys over Donnie B. Rick Blade. And Nova over Tony DeVito. I love how he, uh, Dave spells Rick Blade with a K in Rick at this point. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. NAWA in Middletown in New York. Because he did have some shows past his original run. Are we to assume this is Tony Mara? It's possible. Drew a solid house. Um, what else do we have here? Janine would be any idea who that is? No idea. Janine. Yeah. Garofalo. <laughs> or the porn star Janine Lindemuller uh, of Howard Stern fame mm. but there you go alright the wrestling zone they had a show in Burgettstown Pennsylvania on April 27th Virgil over Bubba the Bulldog <laughs> okay I mean, you know looking at this lineup I'm assuming this is the promoter since he's literally the only non-name on the show no, Bubba the Bulldog worked for uh, Norm Connors. He was a local Western Pennsylvania guy. But he's probably still the promoter of the show because he's literally yeah. the only person on the show that's not a national name. I mean, it's possible. Public enemy of Ron and Don Harris. Oh, joy. Steve Carina retained in the May World Heavyweight title being C.W. Anderson. Sure. Sabu over Kid Cash. And Balls Mahoney over to Sandman. That's, that's a show. It's 2001. I mean, you guys got ECW show here in a while. <laughs> and the Harris twins. Yeah. Well, they were ECW once upon a time too. Mm, Public Enemy and Bruce Brothers had ago. a feud. They had a feud. Yeah. No, by this point they were there five years ago. Oh yeah, sorry, we're ninety. No, I thought two thousand one. Oh, well, that's right. Any... They came back in ninety six. Yes. No, but they didn't feud then. No, but well, the, the no, Bruce Brothers then, were there, but both though. were there yes. in ninety six. Yeah. <laughs> Not at the same. T- I don't think they overlapped though. I think the bruises came back right after Public Enemy left. They did right, right after, like the month after. But still, I mean, same yes. era. They had a very good match in Queens with the uh, the team of Mofad and Mahim, the Headhunters. Yes. All right, Maryland, Aberdeen High School in Aberdeen, Maryland, April twenty seventh. And Maryland is in Maryland Championship Pressing. Yes. Yes. Um, Keenan Creed retained the MCW Cruiserweight title over Chad Bowman. Chad Austin, yes, friend of the show. <clears throat> Ghetto Mafia, toot up and side swipe over Julio De Niro and Marcus Jordan. Orlando Jordan. Is that Orlando Jordan? That is Orlando Jordan. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Candy over Tara. Is that Tara Charisma? Uh, I think it's just some girl named Tara. 
The Bruiser over Earl the Pearl by disqualification. Jimmy Snuka over Dino Devine. Oh, boy. MCW Rage television title. Billy Redwood beat Soda Pop Ronnie Zuko to win the championship. MCW heavyweight title, Jimmy Cicero retained over Thrasher. Oh, my God, this main event. And a handicap match. Jerry the King Lawler and the Bruiser defeated Ramblin' Rich Myers, Myers, Earl the Pearl, and Platinum Nat. (laughs) Yeah, that's an MCW show in 2001. (laughs) Yeah. It's quite the lineup there. Wait, Uh, Andy... Candy Candy is Ronnie Zucco's valet? That's correct, yes. Yeah. The yeah, actually, Strong. wait a second. Did you use his full name? Did you call him Soda Pop Ronnie Zucker, or did you just call I him Ronnie I did. Okay. I did. Just making sure. The Armstrong family somebody opened up a remake of the old Southeastern Championship Wrestling territory under the name of Southeastern Championship Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> they will run a wrestling school and hope to start television on Pensacola. Uh, good luck. I think they do promote a show or two. There's Rad, the Southeastern Championship Wrestlings over the years, so it's hard to Many. say. Yes. IW Mid-South, House of Hardcore in Charleston, Indiana, April 28th. Haziah retained the IW Mid-South lightweight title beating Richard X. Mark Wolf beat Chris Hero, two out of three falls match, two falls to zero. Haziah hmm. uh, retained the IW lightweight title over Adam Gooch next. Trent Baker, rugby thug Trent Baker, beat Blaze in a tape fist match. And then me, Mitch Page, retained the IWA Headway title on three-way dance over Alistair Fear and Roland Hard. So, Pretty much an uh, all-Indiana guys show here. Yeah, no Ian Rotten on the card, so there's that. I mean, no plus also no Ian, but no Punk, no Cabana. Hero. No Steel. Yeah, but Hero's living in Indiana at this point. Yeah. It looks like Terry Taylor will wind up having some involvement in Burt Prentice's new USA Championship Wrestling promotion, which they're talking about a June launch out of Nashville. Not sure how this would be related to any Jerry Jarrett plans or not. It's not a new promotion. It's just a reboot. Yeah, of Music City slash NWA Worldwide slash NWA Nashville. Which Terry Taylor does have involvement. He's neat books. Yeah, I mean, well, like, actually, yeah, read this first. He's from Figure Four Weekly. Terry Taylor's planning on opening up a new school in the Atlanta area. This man apparently was nice enough to send him one of the old WF rings he used. Not nice enough to give him a job, however. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's because I'm not in power yet. (laughs) Um, He's like... What do you even... Terry had been working off and on with... Yeah, but Terry had been working with Burt in 99. When he he was working with... uh, WWF and WCW. He, yeah. he wrestled. No, what I was going to say, though, was at this point, though, post-WCW, I mean, granted, this is early in that, but Terry Taylor, like, was like this freelance booker and agent who would go from indie show to indie show. Like, I can't think of anything else like it. Can you? Uh, not really. Like, he would work a match. But he would also help with the booking if, if you know, the person wanted him to, the promoter. But he would also help agent matches and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he was doing all kind of crap. I don't think he opened that wrestling school, though, did he? Um, no. So if this story is true, do we think he just sold the ring? Uh, probably so. <laughs> Why not? 
<sighs> All right, Memphis. The second week of the Memphis, old Memphis tapes on WMC TV on April 28th drew a 2.9 rating, down from a 4.1 the week before. The real test was this past weekend when the show moved back to its usual 11 a.m. time slot. Mm. Well, okay, it was out of its usual time slot, so there you go. Um, and ter- I think Terry Funk was on the was on the next show too. So yeah. Also, just realized something. Why do you want to help Terry Taylor out with his potential wrestling school when there was a lawsuit pending against him and the remnants of WCW over all of the racist things he said and did while helping run their wrestling school? Well, it is 2001. Well, there's that, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, MCW out of Chicago. Midwest Championship Wrestling. Ice pick Vic Capri beat Donovan Morgan in a 2-3 ball ladder match April 28th of Chicago that win both the APW Universal title at the and the Midwest Championship Wrestling titles. Two groups are doing talent exchanges. They headline with Danny Doring and Roy Coomer, Sudo Dinner and Chris Chatty. They said they'd be doing a taping on, for TV on May 26th for a show that debut of the summer on WJYS out of Chicago. And they'll be doing a Super 8-style tournament on using eight tag teams on July 14th for Chicago. That would be the Interstate T3. 8? Oh, no, T3. It's T3. T3, baby. Interstate 8 was their singles tournament? I think so. But yeah, T3, which I haven't done. Uh, I had that on VHS and DVD now, so... Yes, although... About that many moons ago. You should rip that and put that on YouTube, actually. But what I was about to say is the Midwest Championship Wrestling, though, was always one of those promotions where I wanted to see more video of, but they wouldn't really put stuff out because they would book stuff like Donovan Morgan versus Vic Capri. Yeah. You know, they had a little bit of a different niche from what other promotions were doing because they would work out this deal with APW and... Send guys back and forth. Well, it was like the Indies of that era where you had your local indie stars mix it up with different indie stars from around the country. You know, I mean, that's just that's the way it was. <clears throat> All right, let's go back to the Figure Four Weekly. We have some news for those of you who keep track of title histories in modern wrestling. Get a life. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> the news that the new ECW television champion is <clears throat> John Boy and Billy. I know that's two people, but those of you who actually keep a track of talent history should know that having a co-champion is not unprecedented, nor is it unprecedented for a person who is an actor to hold a major world wrestling world heavyweight championship in this fucked up business. Anyway, Rob Van Dam presented the belt to these guys during a visit on their radio show which sounds no less legit than having someone's non-wrestling mother become one half of the World Tag Team Champions. I remember when this happened. Because John Boy and Billy aired on the Q-6 out of Macon and Rock 103 out of Columbus. So I heard on two separate radio stations <laughs> that was coming on through my radio. And it was very, it was extremely popular show. Extremely popular. And they were very... Sympathetic to wrestling. They had a lot of wrestling guests. Gene Oakland did segments for them, I think, weekly. So, um, so yeah. So, Rob Van Dam gave them the ECW television title belt. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, sure. Ho- hopefully, for his uh, bank account later in life, that was just a work, and he goes <coughs> on to the belt. Well, who knows? Stevie Ray's involved in booking a new startup company called United Wrestling Federation, using the old UWF initials that were used in that part of the country when Bill Watts was running it. It's going to be based in Dallas, but run basically Texas and partially mid-south territories are regional. 
with the weekly major shows being at either at the Bronco Bowl in Dallas or the Cotton Bowl. He's going to use a lot of older stars like the Road Warriors, Jimmy Hart, Terry Funk, Roddy Piper, Jim Duggan, Canyon, and Nasty Boys, as well as a lot of the former WCW talent once their official Time Warner's payroll. They're supposed to open on May 25th in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, May 26th in Monroe, Louisiana, and start running every Friday night in Dallas in June. Does this happen? Yeah. But I don't think it's the scale of what it is. Yeah, Stevie Ray has his UW promotion. Okay. Uh, I think it Con- becomes more locals. Now, is Cotton Bowl a mistake? Outriders, there's something on the Cotton Bowl grounds. So. That, no, there's <laughs> there something on the grounds there that this could be. I don't know of anything. It had to be something different. Now, did they actually run the Bronco Bowl? Since, you know... I don't, think, I don't even know if they ran the Metroplex. <laughs> well, because... You know, going back to like 1990 or whatever, whenever you hear that a promotion's going to start running the Bronco Bowl, they never do. Yeah, thank Pedicina. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, had anyone run that building since the promotional war in the 60s? Uh, there must have been some no. independent promotion, but no one regularly, right? Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking now. Let's see. Um, no, it does not happen. If it does, Stevie Ray never wrestled for him, which you would think he would since he's the boss. I was getting this confused when it, uh, something else, but yeah, because he, yeah, but yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't do this. So, hmm. there you go. Another startup, two thousand one promotion that never really happens. How about that? I'm um, I'm shocked. <clears throat> Revolution Pro Wrestling. They ran a show in Santa Fe Springs, California, April 27th, called This Is Brutality. Oh. We had, what, like, did they what? predict Rhea Ripley or something? I guess so. Shogun over C4. Demento and Gallinero over American Wild Child, Ron Rivera, and Rising Sun. Mr. Excitement, not Dick Slater, over King Fabiano. And Super Dragon over Excalibur in your main event. Uh, those guys would never do anything notable in the wrestling business, much less together. Of course not. Um, I feel like we talk about Rising Sun less than a lot of the other Rev Pro guys. I mean, if nothing else, that guy deserves credit for one thing specifically, and that's inventing the 619. Yeah, I mean, all those guys, I mean... Of course, Dragon is Caliber. They're going to be the ones that are known the most. Disco Machines, right there behind them. Taro and Rising Suns, right there with you know, right behind Disco Machine. Because you're going to order of the guys that got out, you know. Yeah. Dragon and Caliber stayed longer. Machine was right behind them, and then Taro and Rising Sun was ahead of him. So, but yeah. Rep Pro was always fun shit, man. Always good good times and good shows. So, yes, uh, although we didn't get to see enough of them. We always heard how great they were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I mean the, sh- the couple of shows I have were, were, were fantastic, that's for sure. Yes, yes. I mean, it is – it's a different type of tape nerd wrestling from your other work-rate indie wrestling, I guess would be the best way to put it. Like – at a time where most of the influence was New Japan Junior Heavyweights and maybe a little Mishinoku Pro, Rev Pro was basically Mishinoku Pro meets All Japan. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Women of Wrestling. Let's talk about uh, Figure Four Weekly here. 
The women's wrestling organization continues to fall deeper into despair. According to the latest company earnings report, all the performers and most of the production staff were released after the first season, and the company is down to five employees. Okay, real quick, yes. The original incarnation of WoW was publicly traded for some reason. Yes. All right. Uh, not, not, Brian's not sure exactly what those remaining five employees are even doing. It's small to be a one-man operation at this point. The release alerted investors to that fact that if a second season was produced, they'd rehire me into performers. Well, Brian hopes so. Without any performers, that second season would be pretty boring. <laughs> they have $76,000 cash in the bank as of February 28th. The claim per view revenue was $105,000. Brian said, I'm no math whiz, but let's figure this out. A company makes probably 40% of the gross of any given pay-per-view. That sounds horrible, but it's true. According to insider sources, or the pay-per-view does prefer to be, remain anonymous, the, call, the show costs $19.95. So WoW made $7.98 off each buy. Now, this is exact because WoW might have made slightly more or less than 40% of the gross, but it's close. So it comes out to about 13,158 buys. For all you promoters who think you can run a pay-per-view and make a million dollars without TV or big stars, this should serve as a lesson to you. This company even had television, and they only did 13,158 buys. It's probably safer to invest your money in technology. I don't know if that's a wise thing to say in April 2001 either. But <laughs> Well, technology is always growing. Sure. Um, all right. We have not talked much about WoW on this show at all. This version of WoW, no. I don't think we've talked about or any version in a while. Yeah. No. But, I mean, we were all, I mean, we were both watching it week to week, right? Uh, not me. You weren't? <laughs> I thought you were. You didn't no. join in in the DVD? No. Cats and everything? Okay. Um, I don't know women of wrestling. I never watched any of that stuff. Trying to figure out something. Because it's not quite the same as the more recent incarnations, but it's, it's, it's a more, I would say, wrestling-y version of the glow style in terms of the gimmicks and stuff in that like you know Peggy Lee Leather and Bambi are training these women to ha to be decent wrestlers they are not training them to work glow style matches and some of them got pretty decent you know relatively speaking um and the actual, like, in terms of, like, progression of storylines and protecting the champions and stuff, the booking in terms of, like, functional wrestling storylines was actually really good. But it's with all the David McLean gimmicks and the David McLean announcing and stuff, and I don't know if we ever heard any ratings for how they were doing nationally in syndication, did we? I don't remember anything. Yeah, I don't remember anything like that being reported. Um... The pay-per-view was the beginning of the end. They did, they taped more TV that would air after the pay-per-view, before the pay-per-view, and I think at least some of it did, but, uh, like, trying not to give away spoilers, so the pay-per-view was very weird. Um, it was a very watchable TV show, especially when Bambi and Peggy Leather were the only wrestlers with previous experience on it. But the whole thing is just so weird, too, because, like, I think at this point it's mainly just McLean who owns it. But Genie Bus and the Lakers are involved somehow. And it took forever for it to, like, eventually she buys it, but that's, like, years and years later. 
it's always just been a weird thing because like you're you have this show where there's like a decade plus between seasons but they're still using some of the same people who are not wrestlers outside of WAP. Like, unless yeah. you experienced it, it's really hard to wrap your head around. You yeah, know, I that mean, they it, came back in, like, the early 2010s for that... They're <sighs> running now. They're on Atlanta every... Uh, no, every uh, at midnight. They're on every, every market. Uh, Sunday evening. They're on every market in the country. Yeah. They are basically on... Depending on but the market, either a CBS station, a CW station, or a station owned by the owners of one of the local CBS or CW stations. But yeah, I mean, just you don't see really anybody talk about it, but people watch it. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. All right, you'll love this. Stay with me for a weekly. Here are some of the chat room rules for Vince Russo's official website. Oh, boy. I'm not making these rules up, including the last one. This is what the rules say. The chat and forum are intended for Vince Russo and his fans, in all caps. If you are a troublemaker or a hater, do not waste your time or ours by registering a name. We will not tolerate your stupidity, and you will be banned immediately. Posting and chatting on VinceRusso.org is a privilege, not your God, all caps, given right. By entering the chat room and discussion forums, you are automatically agreeing to abide by the following. No Vince Russo bashing. <laughs> no, Vince Ro interview, no Vince Russo interview requests on the former chat room. No vulgarity. No harassment of others in these areas. Opinions are fine. Just don't get too ugly. This includes harassment through private messages. No flooding. Repeated posts of the same content. No advertising. No misrepresentations of wrestlers or other famous persons. No harassing of the moderators. Due to the fact that Mr. Russo is married and his mother visits vrusso.org regularly, we respectfully ask you do not begin to contribute to any posts or conversations that discuss Mr. Russo in any sort of sexual manner. We, don't want, we do not want either of the Mrs. Russo's offended. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, I'm about to do something else I never... Well, not else. Something I never thought I'd do, and I'm googling the words Vince Russo slash Vic. <laughs> um... Oh boy. Uh... I found one uh, called Vince Russo tries to talk about Velma but gets pegged by Twilight. Yeah. Yeesh. Okay. Uh... Well, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> no. Okay, Dale, I have to read one of these lines. <laughs> oh, okay, it's it's Vince Russo, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic slash fic, I believe. Uh, I'm assuming someone wrote this as a bit. Uh, probably so. Well, most of them always are bits, Vix. Uh, well, I wouldn't say most, but he's... Yes. Uh, He's pleasuring himself to some My Little Pony content, and whoever wrote this wrote Vince Russo saying, Oh, fuck yes, I want to clap those pony cheeks. You get the idea. So, no, I would not want Vince Russo's mother or wife to see this either. Yeah. Why is the internet like this, Chris? That's the way it is. Because people working gimmicks and shit, that's the way it is. 
Despite all kinds of reports to the contrary, there are no national deals signed with Hulk Hogan and Universal at this point. The meeting on May the 1st that was supposed to be the final word ended up not even being held. But there are future meetings planned. Basically, there are no negative indications, but they're really in. They really are in these types of negotiations. If you get to the guy who turns it down or says go, there's no done deal. You want to find a proposal what a done deal would entail. It could be something as simple, little as simply a Hogan themed restaurant at a park in Orlando, or bringing a few wrestlers a week to do afternoon stage shows at the park, or something as big as starting a new wrestler promotion. So, are we assuming this is XWF? Yes. Okay. So we know that happens. As we go down the line. All right. Um, Sting appeared on the April 28th edition of Walker, Texas Ranger, playing a drug-dealing biker who got his axe kicked by Chuck Norris. So, yes, folks, that means Sting and Chuck Norris had interaction. I feel like we played a clip of this before, but I don't know why. Um, We did Hogan, if I'm not mistaken. Alright, you want to? Uh, I think I we got did a clip sting, though. Yeah, I found a clip, but I think we did this, and but I don't know why we would have. Yeah, there's a whole playlist. We definitely played this. Maybe we just talk about Sting being an actor or something. I don't know. So what? Just play the one clip. Uh, guest star Sting, Steve Borden. That one. That's too long. I got. I got oh, one. Oh, I see. It's ten, like ten minutes. Okay. Yeah, I got one shorter. Hold on, I'll send that to you. Oh, are you talking about the one that's about a minute and a half? Or, or a couple. Okay, let's see. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how this came up before. Because we definitely talked about this in some form. Uh, let me do the screen share. I have to go back to the call. Where's the little button for that? There it is. Alright. Nice. It's pure. Can I cook speed or what? <laughs> In a way. Do you want to go into a thing like that? That's antisocial. Boy, this is your reckoning. You're cooking meth on Raptor Turf. Y'all get out of there. Look, we got a couple pounds of meth inside. You can have it. Take the whole lab, man. I didn't come here for your drugs or your lab. I came here to set an example. Oh, Blow it. That seems like a bad idea. That's gonna go up. Come here. Hey, Grangus. What about this one? We could use another cook. His name is Grangus. <laughs> And remember, I mean, I guess they're competition. So let's hear what Sting has to say. 
between Brangus. Kill them all. I guess not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> About eight dudes just shot four guys. <laughs> Jesus. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, not the greatest moment, though, in the history of Walker, Texas Ranger, which <laughs> I think we all know what that is. Seems I'm... so much shorter than a week, but in some ways, a lot longer. I know what you mean. Oh, it's Haley Joel Osment. Yeah, he don't want that no more. It's okay, Aunt Alex. I'm a man now. Oh, thank you. That reservation still standing? Barely. And how are you doing, little partner? Fine. And it's little visitor now. Adewayoli is how you say it in Cherokee. Oh, well, pardon my French, but uh, I'll be damned. <laughs> Walker told me I had AIDS. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> right to the point. <laughs> I've never investigated the whole episode to determine what, what the context is for that and why he did not know yet is. Well, it, I don't know. All right. I mean, it also shows how much time has changed with medication and everything that, like, how often do we even hear the word AIDS anymore as opposed to just HIV? Yeah, and then you see the the commercials now that for the, all the drugs that you for take for prep so. and for also for people who do have H R H I V positive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and YouTube felt the need to give me context about HIV AIDS because I searched for Walker told me I have AIDS. There you go. All right, both Illinois and New York are looking at deregulating pro wrestling. In Illinois, it's basically a money issue. The states the state spent two hundred thousand dollars in regulators to pro wrestling events last year, but the annual take on taxing these events was two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> the Illinois House has already voted not to continue wrestling regulation at the end of this year. No word on what deregulation would entail. The usual effects are an increase in garbage style matches and play on indie shows. It was the indie business because it eliminates the tax, which slightly helps for profit loss ratio. There are no studies on pro wrestling at all, so whether injuries are more frequent in non-regulated states as opposed to regulated states is unknown along with the effects of having a doctor at live events has. Of the numerous wrestling deaths, the only one where a lack of regulation can be specifically pointed to is Gary Albright's, as in a state that requires a physical and EKG, his heart problem would have been called ahead of time. Since Pennsylvania deregulated years ago, and Japan doesn't have wrestling commissions, he was never tested and died in the ring in Pennsylvania last year. Ohio is looking at adding a 5% tax on purpose receipts, similar to the tax it already has on boxing. The bill in Ohio calls for no regulation of wrestling, just taxing it, which they believe would add an estimated $150,000 per year to the state's income. The only regulation would be to make sure promoters have insurance, have a bond place, and make sure the wrestlers get paid. Okay. Well, I mean, Pennsylvania was never completely deregulated in the first place. I mean, they still have a commission for wrestling, and then... I don't think wrestlers need licenses anymore. It was it just it got weakened the regulation, but it still exists. Yeah, New the U days of JJ Benz was over with. Yeah, New York. I presume this is the end of wrestlers having to be licensed and just promoters being licensed. Is yeah. what comes out of this. Um, 
I'm surprised Illinois didn't just try to increase their tax on the tickets. Yeah, I know, right? That's usually the move, isn't it? Yeah. Usually. Well, we do have one study to close the show out with. As a pro wrestling any more news of this type this month, the Winston-Salem Journal, April 28th, reported the Wake Forest University School of Medicine found that teenagers in Forsyth County, North Carolina, that are pro wrestling fans are more likely than their peers to have violent, violent dating relationships. The story, which was carried internationally by the AP and also covered in the UK by the BBC, regarded Dr. Robert Durant presenting his findings on April 27th in Baltimore in a meeting of the Pediatric Academic Societies. Durant surveyed 2,228 students at random in grades 9 through 12. A survey among middle school students is currently being done now. This was done in October 1999 and May 2000 and found that 11% of boys and 18% of girls who were wrestling fans had a physical fight while on a date, far above the norm for the age group in the country. Durant noted that this study didn't prove that wrestling caused teenagers to fight physically on dates, but he did say the study showed that having the behavior of fighting amongst the sexes modeled for you over and over on television is a statistically, excuse me, statistically significant reinforcing factor. Data provided by Durant to the observer shows a direct correlation strong among girls and boys in several antisocial behaviors that increases noticeably based on frequency of viewing pro wrestling. The students were to monitor how many times they watched pro wrestling on television over a two-week period. The survey found that 60% of boys and 35% of the girls have watched some portion of a pro wrestling show over a two-week period. The stats were broken down by a number of viewings over two weeks from one to nine, and percentages of violent behavior increased incrementally with every increase of watching. The fact that 18 different numbers told the same story pretty much rules out a fluke result. Based on the two survey dates, approximately 25% of the boys and 9% of the girls would be hardcore fans, which meant they had watched at least six pro wrestling shows over the previous two weeks. Gary Davis of the WF responded by saying, There's a lot of discussion going on as to how much influence television has on the behavior of teenagers. WFTV is not a television show, not a children's show, excuse me. But if a parent decides it's appropriate for their child, we urge them to watch it with them. The parents define an arbiter in the home as to what is and is not appropriate entertainment choice. Durant's study measured links between smoking, drinking, drug use, fighting, and carrying weapons while watching wrestling. The survey was originally not done regarding wrestling, but simply involving those activities at a high school level. The strongest category where wrestling fans were above the statistical norm was teenagers getting into the fights themselves. Second was teenagers getting into the fights, which ended up with medical attention being needed. And third, and for whatever reason, the category that got the most publicity was teenagers starting physical fights against their dates. Among the general public, 4.6% of the boys and 9.4% of the girls have started a physical fight while on a date. Keep in mind, these are not the numbers of non-wrestling fans because most of the boys surveyed have watched wrestling and one-third of the girls had. Figures for those who haven't watched any wrestling would be lower. 3.7% of the boys and 8.5% of the girls. For those who watched only one pro wrestling show the previous two weeks, the numbers increased to 5.2% of the boys and 11.1% of the girls. However, among those who watched four times or more over two weeks, which would be the serious wrestling fans, the numbers are 7.6% of the boys having started fights while on a date, 18.2% of the girls are basically at double the level of those who never watch wrestling. The increases continue the same correlation up to nine or more viewings over a two-week period. Durant said, to the degree of meanness it takes to have escalated significantly, if they're watching television and women are referred to in a derogatory manner, that's going to influence what children think is acceptable. The study was performed after the principal, William P., 
at Philo Middle School. That name after Philo Beto, the character off Every Which Way We Lose, played by Kelly Eastwood. I hope it is. Told him that the Duran had they had a rash of injuries at recess by children between the ages of eleven and thirteen, imitating wrestling moves on each other. <clears throat> However, the survey showed a greater degree of increased girl on boy violence among girl wrestling fans than the other way around. The study measured not only fighting on dates, but fighting in general, victimization in fights, as well as drug usage. There's no difference in being victims of violent acts or a vandalization of personal belongings by the general public as compared with casual serious wrestling fans, even those who watched nine or more wrestling shows over the previous week, which is soon to indicate that the peer group risk factor and explain the other numbers away isn't a valid argument. Girls who watch it were far more likely than boys to have different behaviors, such as increased violence and drug use, than boys who watch regularly. With women in every category survey, with the exception of drinking and driving, with no increase in a very tiny increase in substance abuse, there were significant increased levels the more wrestling was viewed. With boys, the increases weren't anywhere near significant. Probably the bigger question, biggest question as to the results is more of a question of what they mean. There's a strong argument that people who are more prone to acting violent are also more prone to being fans of fighting, whether it be boxing or wrestling or even football. <clears throat> Durant knew of no studies that studied being fans of boxing, ice hockey or football, violent pro sports with increasing violent or antisocial behavior, so there are no comparisons as to whether pro wrestling is as bad or worse in this category. There are numerous surveys that show links of violent viewing on television and violent behavior, and those studies uniformly show that whether the violence is real or not has no bearing. In that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that everyone knows is made believe has the same correlation about watching a violent crime on the news. Is it the watching wrestling that causes the increased physical violence, or is it the type of person more apt to that that is simply more likely to enjoy pro wrestling? The latter, which would yield the same results, or pro wrestling would not be a casual factor. If you didn't take a research to see the wrestling's on Monday night, not casual, causal, ca- causal factor. Sorry, <clears throat> it didn't take a researcher to see what that wrestling's on Monday night and Tuesday. You got kids who are, are wrestling. He said, "It didn't take a rocket scientist if there is evidence that this is behavior escalated on Tuesday or Friday, which hasn't been proven. That would be a better study as if the pro wrestling was a casual factor as opposed to the latter theory of the study." Wrestling supporters brought up a survey that showed more than 80% of adult wrestling fans watch wrestling with their children and consider time spent watching wrestling as important family time. What about that? I mean... Well, here's what I find most interesting <laughs> about this. Because yeah. Gabe is right that, like, you can just as easily assume that people are going to be more violent or going to be drawn to more violent things in the first place. That's correct. Yes. But what I find most interesting is the coincidental timing of this coming out, uh, what, two, three weeks after the most heavy man-on-woman vi- violence angle in the history of WWF television up to this point? The Austin and lead at Austin Triple H beat down on Lita? And then the thing is, though, is the, vi- the, the, the really the more statistical, statistical violence is women on men. That's right, where the increase seemed to be was with the female partners. Yeah. Yeah. And that's up. But I'm actually kind of shocked that Dave doesn't mention the timing here. <clears throat> no. Because, I mean, you know, we. I don't think we've ever done that week, right? With the. The Hardys and Lita so. versus Austin Triple H and Stephanie match. I don't think so. Especially knowing, because look, I'm just going to take people behind the curtain. We haven't recorded the WWF section yet, as we're recording this. We're doing this out of order. But I did scroll back to make sure nothing was talked about. They immediately dropped anything coming out of that storyline, pretty much. 
Um, even if not knowing it didn't go anywhere, that was such like a. It felt so unnecessary and excessive watching it. And also, it felt like it was this desperate attempt to get heat for Austin because of the idea the turn wasn't working. Well, they were trying, they were trying their best, yes. Yeah, but I, I find it interesting that Tape doesn't say a word about that coming off of that angle, which was, if I remember right, pretty roundly criticized for just how excessive it was. It was, at the time, very different. I mean, even by the standards of when we would have more of a tolerance for that. Yeah, it, it was, was just something that wasn't done. very fucking violent angle. It was just something that was not done. Yeah. Nowhere. So, yeah, the study is interesting. I mean, but it, the results, I mean, who? it's, it's, it's fairly obvious. Just like Dave said, people that watch wrestling, more often than not, you know, I mean, by the people that watch wrestling, or people that have like that type of rage and anger, are going to act out. People that are more people that are going to be more violent are going to be drawn to more violent entertainment. It's yeah, it's that's well, not yes, yes. Now, I do think for younger kids, I do think kids get certainly more ideas about ways to do violence from watching pro wrestling. I, I don't think there's nothing causal there. But I don't, I don't think it really leads to much in the way of like, how do I put this? I don't want to say real violence, but like, there's a difference between, and I'm talking about younger kids, not the age group they're talking about here. Like, the bulk of that is still kids who are just wanting to go out and do pro wrestling. It's not kids who are trying to maim each other. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, yeah, more often than not, they're just, they're, they're trying to do the moves they see on TV. Right. Um... I mean, here, look, I mean, they had a pretty decent-sized sample. Seems like they did as good as a job as you could try to do to do a legitimate study here. It's an interesting study, especially the way the increase is is more direct among the girls. But I'm still not sure you can glean that much from it. Because, again, people are going to be violent. are going to be drawn to violent programming. Yeah, wrestling has the characters that boxing that, that that appeals to kids that boxing doesn't have. Yes, it's it's just it's just a whole different thing. Wrestling is wrestling, you know. Yeah, I mean, you watch you watch cartoons as a kid. You're not dropping an anvil on top of somebody's head. Yeah. It's but it's much easier to try to hit somebody with a clothesline, you know. Which is probably also the reason why Power Rangers had some backlash. Well, yeah, the way it did. But you, it has. Not realistic, but more realistic fighting than other shows at that age group, aimed at that age group, would have had at the time. So, it's like you get the cause for concern, you get that this appears to be a legitimate study, I just don't know how much you can take away from anything like this. Yeah, exactly. Alright, that's it for this week's show. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to the 80s, 1988. And yes, I know we just did 1988 a few weeks ago, but it's a very important week. And it's a big anniversary, which we'll get into in a minute. Jim Crow Promotions. We have news on the end of the Midnight Rider angle. 
So there's Dave chimes in on that. Of course, he has a lot of thoughts on that. Plus some interesting house show stuff and uh, possibly a new home for uh, wrestling television. So there's that. Turner uh, on, uh, with Turner. All right. Um, we got a big show for New Japan, which has a lot of backstory behind it. We'll talk about that. We got some Lucha stuff. We got Owen Hart's year plus reign as North American champion ending in Stampede Wrestling for reasons we'll talk about. We have a big show in Puerto Rico to talk about. Uh, we got a new song, FNN Score in Wrestling. The Parade of Champions is at the Texas Stadium. We'll talk about that. That's the last one. So we have news on that. We got the Wrestling War of Oregon to talk about. That's Billy Jack Kane starts his promotion up. And Don Owens bringing some big guns in to help out. We got uh, WWF doing some really solid house shows. And an interesting article in Variety Magazine to talk about there. But the big story of our week, 35 years ago, Charity King Lawler becomes AWA World Heavyweight Champion. So he's, he finally wins the big one. So we'll have news on that. And so much more between the sheets. As we're recording this, the notes aren't all done yet. Um, so there's no guest book, but I'm pretty sure I will have a guest book. Okay. So don't know who yet. So there's that. But um, yeah, it should be a fun show next week on Between the Sheets. And the 80 show is always fun, and we got a lot here. So yeah, Jerry Lawler Night in Memphis. Well, I can't believe we ain't done that week yet, but we haven't. So we're going to do it yeah. now. Yeah, I mean going to be interesting to talk about all those uh, Minnesotans that Kurt Hennig is having call the 900 number <laughs> that, stuff the ballot that box. Show, yeah, that Saturday show is uh, during our week. For the so guest we'll referee. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, all right. So it should be fun stuff next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Vic. Thanks as always for the rock of the show. And it's Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Yo, you dealing with the X Factor. I got everything I ever Yo. wanted, and I'll never Yo. give that back. Yo. Oh, I know you hate that factor, factor, but you ain't gotta look at me like that. I said you ain't gotta look at me like that. Yes. What you looking at? What you looking at? What you looking at? What you looking at? You run around pulling stunts like that. See, never in my life could I front like that. I ain't caught like that. I couldn't run like that. I'ma keep it non-fiction and take my hat. Oh, oh, never back when things look grim. I spent a lot of money and time on whims. I remember the crew. Remember the good times. Remember the orange and I remember the sunshine. It's all gone. That's the thing of the past. The fact remains that it moves real fast. So while you sit around hoping things won't change, I'll be sitting pretty singing, hey, Rocky Way. Gotta tell you, baby, life's been good to me. And I know that makes you mad, cause that's something you can't see. I got everything I ever wanted, and I'll never give that back. Oh, I know you hate that factor, but you ain't gotta look at me like that. I said you ain't gotta look at me like that. What you looking at?
everyone, and welcome to the Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 79. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We're back in 1998 again, but in the other big promotion. Yes, as we look back at the uh, legal and backstage and everything else uh, battle between Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair. Yeah, so we go from Mike Tyson to this. <laughs> and, you know, as much as shit is these days in wrestling behind the scenes, you know, just just think, you know, this is the era before social media. Oh, God, if this happened during social media. Well, oh, just we, everything. Well, the Tyson stuff. Well, yeah, but, well, look, at least nobody involved in any of the current drama ever tried to take anyone to court or bankrupt. Oh, never mind. I mean, just think, just imagine how wrestling fans would have reacted to Mike Tyson in 1998. And just think about how people would react to all this stuff. You know, I mean, it's just insanity. So let's get started. 25 years ago. My God. All right. The week of June the 15th, towards June 20th, observer June 22nd. Charlotte Observer ran a story in June the 12th regarding Ric Flair's lawsuit and attempted to get released in WCW deal. Basically, arguments over whether Flair can be held to the letter he signed in 1997 in November, agreeing to stay for three years before the actual contract was signed. Flair's lawyer, Bill Deal of Charlotte, said the deal isn't a, a letter isn't a contract and called it nothing more than an outline of proposed economic terms that haven't been agreed to. According to the lawsuit, WCW has failed to recognize Flair's status as an internationally known wrestling champion. And so WCW reneged on his promise to treat Flair during the terms of the deal as the Babe roof of wrestling. WCW made attempts to settle with Flair this past week to get a return from the Georgia Dome show, but from all accounts, sides are no closer. After the ratings defeats, it's believed WCW once again attempted to settle with Flair even more favorable terms. Bringing back Flair, which should, while well, should help the ratings a little, probably a lot when he first comes back, is still like bringing in Jim Helwig, putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound in regards to having far bigger problems that needs to be addressed in regards to shaking up the pecking order. Yeah, you got that right. All right, Torch has us uh, on this. Uh, Rick Flair fought a lawsuit against WCW on June 11th, seeking to be relieved of any contractual obligations so he would be free to negotiate with WF. The lawsuit filed in Mecklenburg County in North Carolina said the letter agreement that Flair signed in November last year is void since WCW failed to follow up in good faith as specified in the written agreement. In response to the apparent end of any chance of Flair returning to WCW, WCW new book, and new booker Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, huh? that was interesting. Made plans to reform the Four Horsemen about it. The plans for the Four Horsemen to be led by spokesperson Arn Anderson include Kristen Wall, Mongo, Dean Malenko, and Fit Finley. Meanwhile, Flair and his representatives have made it clear that they want to join WF and that WCW's two million dollars lawsuit as Flair for breach of contract is to turn to WF for negotiating a deal with Ric Flair. We hope to extricate Mr. Flair from any further dealings with this company, said Bill Beal. Bill Deal, not Bill Beal. Flair's attorney explained to the Charlotte. Is he any relation to Fred? I guess guess WCW last week. On February 15, 1998, Flair's five-year contract with WCW expired. Three months earlier, WCW proposed a three-year extension, letter of agreement, a short-form contract for Flair to sign, outlining the basic terms of an eventual long-form contract. Flair did not sign the initial letter of agreement dated November 5th, but did sign a letter dated November 11th. That letter of agreement called for a three-year term paying Flair for $725,000, $725,000, and $500,000 respectively each year, with potential for more in the third year if he was asked to make more than 130 appearances. 
The last paragraph of the letter agreement said a more detailed contract would be prepared by WCW and signed by the parties. But until then, the letter of agreement would be fully enforceable and legally binding between the parties. Flair and WCW Vice President Nick Lambros, or as Gene Oakland called him, Matt Lambros, signed the agreement. Before signing, though, Flair insisted on a qualification, a handwritten note in the margin that said he agreed only if subject to review the mutual acceptance, and Flair's representatives contend WCW violated that note, thus voiding the letter of agreement. Flair's lawsuit says Flair's informed WCW during negotiations late last year that he sought a three-year agreement providing him substantial income, a working environment, and relationship with WCW, a fair treatment, reasonable involvement in storylines, support professional wrestling, and legitimate consideration of his 25 years of experience and his status as one of the most popular wrestlers in the world. The lawsuit states that WCW assured Flair would, would be provided all the above and would be treated as the Babe Ruth for professional wrestling. The lawsuit claims WCW assured Flair the letter agreement was nothing more than an outline of basic economic terms and the two comprehensive documents were to describe the actual contractual relationship between the parties. The lawsuit points out that Flair insisted that the more comprehensive documents would be subject to review and mutual acceptance. All right, real quick before we keep continuing. You know, I keep seeing this Babe Ruth professional wrestling. I mean, Ric Flair basically was the Babe Ruth professional wrestling because when when Babe Ruth left baseball, he was told basically that he would become a manager uh, for a team. And then when he retired, nobody called nobody called him. And he told, was told that by the Boston Braves when they signed him, when he ended his career, that they were going to make him the manager, uh, you know, after he retired. Didn't happen. And then he sat, and then he's one of these guys that, that most of his life, the rest of his life, he sat by the phone hoping that a team would call him to become a manager. So Flair was being treated more like Babe, Babe Ruth than he knew <laughs> at that time. On January 18th, WCW sent two draft agreements to Flair's agents in Los Angeles, but they were deemed unacceptable because they failed to acknowledge Flair's experience and status, failed to specify Flair's influence over storylines, failed to include the requirements that WCW and its representatives deal with Flair in a civil and respected manner, contained new agreements never agreed to by the parties, Failed to specify a reasonable vacation time. Specifying the amount not agreed to what was less than his full contract salary should Flair suffer an injury. Contained an illegal non-compete clause for any reason, including a breach by WCW. Allowed WCW to license Flair's name without his consent. And didn't allow for Flair to examine WCW's books to determine sums due to Flair under any licensing agreements. And failed to eliminate provisions, which allowed WCW to eliminate Flair as a wrestler for three years, as long as they paid him, nearly destroying his career. Wow. After Flair refused to sign the proposed long-form contract, negotiations continued, but according to the lawsuit, Flair's relationship with WCW deteriorated drastically. Explained the lawsuit, WCW reduced the number of Flair's appearances at his promotions. Flair's appearances on WCW's weekly television programs were de-emphasized and for over a month completely eliminated. Upon information and belief, Flair's role was downplayed, in particular by Eric Bischoff, in order to satisfy demands made by and commitments to other wrestlers, including Terry Hollywood Hogan. Bischoff is reportedly vice president of WCW, in charge of wrestling, and simultaneously the self-styled public spokesman and TV personality manager for one or more WCW wrestlers, including the New World Order and Hollywood Hogan. Throughout the time period, Bischoff has treated Flair off-camera in an increasingly hostile, rude, threatening, and degrading manner. Bischoff asserts himself as a czar and seems to believe he has dictatorial, dictatorial authority over Flair. His language is crude, rude, and socially unacceptable, even in the world of professional wrestling. Oh, this is tremendous. He has threatened to bankrupt Flair and put Flair out of work, banished him to some foreign country, and referred to him as garbage. He did all that when Flair was not there. So, 
there's that. The lawsuit asks for a declaratory judgment stating that given all the subsequent circumstances, the letter of agreement does not bind the parties together, and therefore Flair did not breach any contract, and the lawsuit WCW filed against him several weeks ago for $2 million, thus being invalid. The lawsuit says WCW is aware that Flair had discussions with WF after it became clear that Flair and WCW would not finalize an agreement, and that WCW is filing a lawsuit against him is groundless, and is intended to chill any further discussion between Flair and WF. It says Flair believes that WF is not willing to enter an agreement with him until the WCW lawsuit is settled. The lawsuit says Flair suffered damage as a result expected to exceed $2 million. And finally, the lawsuit asks that the Dunner agreement isn't rescinded. The agreement would be reformed to reflect the true agreement of the two parties. The lawsuit says the letter of the agreement was fraudulently induced because Flair signed the letter based on assurances by WCW that the final agreement would contain certain provisions executed at a later date. Upon information and belief, these representations were false when made, and WCW has no intentions of fulfilling its promises. The lawsuit could be tied, could tie Flair from legal system for a long time to come, but Flair ideally would like to see a rapid judgment that would void his WCW agreement and free him to negotiate a return to WWF. Flair, 49 years old, would like to quickly move into a respectful final phase of his career. Bix, your thoughts? Assuming that the parts that are factual statements are true... This seems pretty fair, you know? Yeah. You know, that he sounds like he's being pretty reasonable here. Um, Ric Flair uh, taking issue with someone being rude and degrading, huh? And the thing is, is what, I mean, what we know is the, the stuff that Bischoff said was when Flair's not even there. Yeah. No? It's just so That's weird. That's the thing about it. They make, they make it sound like that he was saying all this stuff in front of Ric Flair's face. True. But for all we know, he never did such a thing. That's what sticks out to me in all this. But yeah, I mean, I get well. We haven't we haven't seen the actual wording about that part in the lawsuit, though. It's possible that. Um, Deal told the Charlotte Observer, "We hope to put WCW in a suplex. That's a wrestling hold." That was what he said. Oh boy. <laughs> Lord, Lord, Lord. See, when you, when, if I was Flair, I would have fired him for saying that comment. <laughs> yeah. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a newspaper story about pro wrestling, Chris. But that's his lawyer saying that, though. I know. He's trying, he's trying to butter up the newspaper. I guess. I, I, well, here, well, here's the thing, too. You know what's going on that same week? And in fact, it was uh, five days after Flair. Bobby Walker filed his lawsuit against WCW. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, completely separate lawyers, but... I know, but still. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Um, so that not only they got Flair, they got the Bobby Walker lawsuit. Well, yes. The original, or... Is this the first time or the second time? Well, I mean, it's the I guess the first time. Okay, because you know later he's back with Sonny Ono and everyone else, so I don't know. Um, but that is interesting, though. <laughs> you know the timing of that. I don't think it's by but, uh, design or anything, though, right? I don't think they're working together in any way. No, but uh. I mean, anything else? I mean, of all that stuff I just read, anything else stick out to you? Oh. Oh, wait. We have a friend here. 
Well, Chris, here's the thing about me not saying those things about Ric Flair being garbage and bankrupting him to his face. I am a fucking coward. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that when you blocked me. <laughs> you know, I never did anything to get blocked. I mean, he, I didn't. I don't know why he blocked me the first time either. I mean, now, well, I can understand me. you. But that, yeah, he unblocked me, so I don't know. But yeah. uh, just fed Bischoff on TMZ into that, and boom. <laughs> Is there oh, anything right. you want uh, Eric to say? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're we're fine right now. All right, so um, Torch said that we should have been negotiating to get Flair back in time for the July 6th Georgia Dome show. Obviously, negotiations t- broke down. With Nitro losing the ratings again this week, there are late rumors that WCW may make a last-ditch big offer to Flair to get him to drop the lawsuit and get him back soon to actually be part of the new Four Horsemen. Flair, though, was dead sitting in front of WCW, given how disrespectful he was treated the last year by management on air and behind the scenes. Sure. All right, let's advance to the week of June 22nd. And we start the Observer. Uh, Torch, June 27th or June 29th. Representatives of Ric Flair claim their key point in the lawsuit against WCW to get out the three-year agreement, which is part of the signing agreement with both parties. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Eric's message me again. Wait, what's this about? Hey, Chris, it's Eric. Why the fuck are you reading any of the shit written about me by fucking Meltzer? You have everything <laughs> that Wade wrote from his home in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. So why would you use anything spewed by that <laughs> schmuck in California? <laughs> Oh my goodness! I don't know, Eric. I guess it's both sides of the story. And this one's working out very well, though. <laughs> to hear this entire show, support between the sheets on Patreon for just five dollars per month. Go to patreon.com/slash/between-the-sheets.